Digital Gonzo, episode 111, recording Saturday, Friday the 17th of November, 2012. The Two Towers, part one. What business does an elf, a man, and a dwarf have in the Ritter Mark? Speak quickly! We track a band of Urukai westward across the plain. They've taken two of our friends captive. Look for your friends, but do not trust to hope. It has forsaken these lands. We're lost. I don't think Gandalf meant for us to come this way. He didn't mean for a lot of things to happen, Sam. Come back to you now, at the turn of the tide. Saruman's forces have begun their attack. He is using Saruman to destroy your people. They were unarmed. They had no warning. This is but a taste of the terror that Saruman will unleash. You must fight. I will not risk open war. Open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. In you rising. Its victory is at hand. There is an army bred for a single purpose, to destroy the world of men. You must lead the people to Helm's Deep. By order the king, the city must empty. Where is she? The woman who gave you that jewel? The alliance between men and elves is over. Our time here is ending. Arwen's time is ending. Let her go. Where is it? Just tie him up and leave. No! You know the way to Mordor. There will be no dawn for men. the ring. Frodo! It's taking hold of you. You have the gift of foresight. Tell me what you have seen. He is not coming back. The defenses have to hold. They will hold. There is nothing for you here. Only death. There is Welcome back to the Digital Gonzo Lord of the Rings movie specials. Tonight we're talking about the first half of The Two Towers. My guesting co-hosts are Chris Eason of Gameburst. West through Hull. And Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast. I just said good evening in sign language. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's do the whole podcast in sign language, huh? <laughs> you don't know this, but I just flipped you off in sign language. <laughs> And joining us this week is Joshua Garrity of Cane and Rinse. Hello there. Hello there. 
A month shy of exactly ten years ago in 2002, Jackson and Co. delivered the sequel to The Fellowship of the Ring. They had a lot to live up to since the first film met with overwhelming praise and box office success, and unlike the first and last parts of a trilogy, they had no beginning and no end. We all knew it was merely going to be an episode in the general scheme of things, and their challenge was to give us something worth watching while we waited for resolution, something that deepened the characters and fleshed out the world. In moving the story to Rohan, a very practical society based on Viking culture with a little Celtic and a chunk of Beowulf, they departed from the lands of elves and dwarves governed by magic that was impossible to comprehend. Instead, they presented the viewer with something that felt considerably more historical. This matched the tone of the book that now focused on the struggling race of men, abandoned by their mystical former allies and put in danger of sheer extinction by the combined armies of Mordor and Isengard. Meanwhile, the path of the four hobbits, now divided, grows even rockier. They meet strange and dangerous beings, some of whom end up being the most fascinating and complex characters in the story. The halflings are tiny, insignificant stones in the Lake of Warp. They will create ripples that affect the entire world. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to start off straight away, uh, as the film did, by flashing all the way back to the middle of Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf versus Balrog. Round two. This was a great way of immediately grabbing the audience's attention. Mm -hmm. The Two Towers has a lot of characterization and exposition it has to get through in the first half. So they needed something that would just grab the audience by the head and go, look at us, pay attention. You're going to want to pay attention right now. And flashing back to that scene in the Two Towers was a great way of saying, 
you know, we're back as biz- uh, back to business as usual. This film is going to be just as epic and just as amazing as The Fellowship of the Ring was. Yeah, it's also a lot better than what the film execs wanted them to do was add a prologue, which is, would basically be a, a quick run through of everything that happened in the first film. Which I'm so which, glad they did. I know. Yeah, I know. I just, like people who care will have watched the last film before they go to see this new one. So people who no don't don't matter. We don't yeah. need to do them a prologue. <laughs> yeah. Was there a exactly. prologue before The Empire Strikes Back? No. No. <laughs> no, you have to think about that. <laughs> we have to though, think about you? that, yeah. Technically, <laughs> the no. crawl at the beginning with the, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. previously on Star Wars. Yeah. But this was a nice way of doing a previously on Lord of the Rings, but not really, because it added um, more shading to the scene. Um, and then, because it goes immediately to that jar of Frodo waking up and, and it apparently being his dream, it connects you immediately to where you are now. The concession they do make, however, is Galadriel's halfway mark recap on this is what's happening, these are where, you know, the pieces are moving, the board is set, and uh, then I believe it almost immediately cuts to Faramir pointing at the map and going, these armies are here, these armies are here, this is how it's going. So, I mean, ultimately, again, if you can't follow that, then you're probably not really going to understand what's happening in the next movie and a half anyway. But that is testament to the skill of the filmmakers that they found ways to weave that information into the plot rather than simply having a, you know, somebody appear at the side and going, just in case you're not following, this is what's going on. Also, this is a prime example of what the movies managed to do, which was not featured in the book. They depict Gandalf effectively becoming Superman with a sword, fighting the Balrog in this incredible epic struggle that would be, I mean, again, not not entirely dissuited to, to Beowulf or one of the, you know, the great saga ballads of some, you know, incredible feats of warriors. And it's, you know, 61-year-old Ian McKellen. So in the Fellowship in this, they managed to depict the bits that Tolkien didn't really talk about, like the, the wizard fights from Fellowship and the Balrog fight. They, they sort of had that that they could do themselves it sort of showed how, how, sort of how good sort of filmmakers and sort of special effects and everything they are and they just did an awesome job at both of them and it's that they told the story better than Tolkien did which is I'd say not that well, much they're, well they're great they're filmmakers they're visual storytellers yeah. I was just going to say, they're very visual pieces, though. Yeah. So I think Tolkien stared clear of them because they were very visual pieces that he found difficult to, to put into words. It, and also, you know, we, we're talking about what it means to the film. But just on its own, I think it's a spectacular piece of action filmmaking. Mm. It's one of the highlights of the entire trilogy for me, just in terms of the cinematography and the music that swells up in the background. It's interesting yeah. to say cinematography because so much of this is going to be model work and blue screen. Well, when I say cinematography, what I think what I really mean is camera work and the way they yeah. frame the shots. And oh my the, god, am I actually going to use make. this phrase from film studies, mise en scène? Yeah, that's the first time I've used it in a <laughs> film review. Jeez, okay, yes, that means that, stuff that's on screen. Just yeah, that that camera angle and the way they framed it of the. You know, when they pull back and have just the, you just see the, the flame of the Balrog coming down. Yeah. That there's is a sen- such a good shot. Yeah. But- there's a, there's a sense of speed to it that you don't get in a lot of films. These two characters are really falling at terminal velocity. <laughs> and, um, if there but, wasn't yeah. water below them, they, you know, they'd splat on the ground. Yeah. After yeah the- they said in the, in the extra stuff that you think they go like about 500 feet in one frame. Yeah. 
which <laughs> it's quite a lot. It's immensely far. And originally, the, one of the concepts was going to be that the Balrog, on contact with the water, becomes a, a creature of slime and filth, and it immediately cools. But his the lava, uh, you know, around his body that it was composed of starts sort of cooling and cracking, and it, it just becomes this horrible creature. And that actually allows uh, Gandalf to get the upper hand eventually. But it also requires him to fight back all the way up an immense uh, winding stair which they again never really go into but it's it's the sort of stuff that's that's so epic you can only ever describe it using superlatives yeah um and also here's another thing and this very rarely happens in films it's the same scene shot in two different ways inspiring two completely different but similarly powerful feelings you know, the, the, in the Fellowship of the Ring, you feel this in, in immense loss, but in Two Towers, you're like, yes. <laughs> well, it's where the yeah. focus goes, isn't it? In, in Fellowship, the focus remains on uh, the people who've lost him. Mm. Yeah. Um, whereas in uh, Two Towers, the focus is on Gandalf and on what he's doing. Yeah. I, I also noticed that the lighting is slightly different in these two different scenes. The the lighting in the Fellowship of the Ring is slightly colder when Gandalf uh, falls down, mm. but in the Two Towers, it's much more bright, and I think that adds a bit more energy to the scene that wasn't in the original one. Technically, uh, when you're watching it in Fellowship, you're watching it from the remaining Fellowship's point of view. So they're in the cold, in the shadow, watching Gandalf fall in Two Towers. You're in Gandalf's shoes right along with him for the ride in the face of the Balrog. So, yeah, what we're going to do, folks, is we're actually, rather than jumping about, going Frodo, Aragorn, Merry and Pippin, Frodo, we're just going to go for all of Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli up to the point where the first disc changes, which is where they uh, depart from Rohan, uh, and then Merry and Pippin, and then all of Sam and Gollum. That way we can just keep focused and streamlined. And I believe that's how Peter Jackson actually edited uh, these stories because it allowed him to focus on exactly how it went together. And then he spliced the finished three threads all together. Um, so the next technical scene, if we're following Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, is the Emnet Gullies where uh, the Uruk-hai are bringing Merry and Pippin. But we're not going to go there yet because that's Merry and Pippin later. So effectively we go next to Aragorn listening to some rock. Their pace has quickened. They must have caught our scent. Hurry! Come on, Ghibli! Three days of light's pursuit. No food, no rest. No sign of our quarry, but what fair rock can tell. Short distances. 
They needed a scene to reintroduce the characters, and I thought this was very effective. Just, you know, first we come to get Aragorn, who's demonstrating his tracking skills, then to Legolas, and then a bit of comic relief with Gimli. It just puts the audience right back in the headspace that they were in with Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, interjection. I don't recall Gimli being quite so much the figure of comic relief that he was uh, in this and uh, Return of the King in Fellowship. I think at the time you had the Hobbits, but they refocused the character as a figure of fun here a lot more. There was the whole, not the beard bit, but that was really one of the only um, scenes in Fellowship. Now suddenly, ah, almost everything Gimli does here is for fun, which... I feel is somewhat shortchanging the dwarven race. But uh, then again, they didn't have much to work with. Have you read The Hobbit? Yeah, no, yeah, and it's, that's, it's ridiculous. That's a fa- yeah, that's just. Fa- I mean, I think they probably did draw on that because there's, there's a lot of uh, humour in The Hobbit for the from the the, the dwarves. And yeah, but as you said, they sort of had to have a comic relief character when once they got rid of Memory and Pippin. And you can't make it Legolas, really. And Aragorn's supposed to be a king, so he yeah. can't be funny. I think I'd be bothered by it more if Gimli wasn't as competent as he is in battle. Very true. He does show his yeah. true strength. And also, John Rhys Davies is actually funny most of the time. And yeah. Yeah. usually it's amusing enough. So there's very few head slapping. The only real head slapping bit is when Theoden is very dramatic uh, in his, his hall. He's, he's pondering whether they should go to war or not. And it, and Aragorn's <laughs> open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. And then it cuts to Gimli, and he's like swilling beer and going, Bleh. and it's like, oh, for that- goodness. <laughs> it's Isn't important that what- to show that they're not being really po-face. They had no humor in this specifically. It would get very po-faced. And uh, mm-hmm. the, there's the whole, there's the, a bit in that South Park episode, uh, Return of the Fellowship of the Ring to the Two Towers. The story begins in ages past, in the deep regions of Middle-earth, where Scorn first thrived in the kingdom of Gelgala. Seven rings were cast and given to the races of men, mm. seven to the races of elves, five to the Gloondark villagers of Gelgandar. Wow, the production values are really good in this porno. Yeah, it almost looks like the Lord of the... Oh my god! It's, it's, they've nailed it, absolutely. This whole sort of, you know, very sort of portentous sort of, you know, you must go to the plains of Galukala. There you will learn from Yoda. There has to be something to mitigate that somewhat. Yeah. Just so that we can relate to it. If nothing es- else. Especially with the Helm's Deep storyline, the Rohan storyline, because there is a lot of misery in yeah. this art. Okay, so then, huh, interesting, you should say funny, <laughs> uh, a line's just about to come up, which is the funniest line in the entire movie, and it wasn't supposed to be. Well, what do your eyes see? Yeah, but very swiftly follow both of those together. It's kind of a twofer. What do your eyes see? Which is one of the clumsiest and daftest lines ever. It's like, just yeah, that, what do you see? All you need to that, say is that. Um, yeah, he's an elf. Nudge, nudge. It's immediately then followed by the taking the hobbits to Isengard. Legolas, <laughs> what do your eyes see? Eurus turned northeast. They're taking the hobbits to Isengard! Josh, have you heard the song? Yes, yes. Okay. 
Yeah. I think everyone that has been alive for the last what, five years or so has heard that song. Well, just in case. Um, I'm oh gonna, no. I'm gonna play it now. Not, not, I'm we sorry. don't have to listen to it, but everyone at home's gonna have to. It's not the sorry. whole thing. Totally the whole thing. <laughs> darkest line in this film comes up next. Oh yeah? They're taking the Hobbit to the Hobbit's northeast to Isengard. It's only dark because you know the geography of Middle Earth, right? It's not, but they had maps. In terms of scoring, we've already had an incredible sort of continuation of the Balrog music. Then we had a reprise of the Fellowship theme. It's it's slightly less powerful and slightly less crashing than the ones that played in uh, the first film, because they've now been diminished, which is appropriate. Um, but then we get the Rohan theme, which is one of the best in the entire series. And uh, I think one of the remits that uh, Howard Shaw had when composing all of these is that the key themes had to be hummable, that you could, you know, find yourself coming away from the film humming the theme to yourself and that it would stick with you. He absolutely accomplished that with the Rohan theme. I think it's my favourite piece of music um, in this film just because not only is it such an earworm, but it conjures up a lot of really dark stuff. This film in particular deals with a lot of dark material, Mm. and I associate that piece of music with that stuff. See, it's the kind of um, piece of music that actually paints a picture for the listener before they've even seen a frame of the film. Yeah. You could listen to that, and it would actually conjure up the appropriate imagery. I don't know how he has done it. But it's it's astonishing, yeah. I think it's 
mean, he, he's very good at using odd instruments, and, and the, the main instrument for this was a, I can't remember what it's called, some, some sort of Swedish violin-y thing. It's a Norwegian Hardanger fiddle. Which, uh, you know, when you play a note, it has uh, sympathetic notes which play, you know, at the same time. So it sounds completely different to, to what you normally hear on a, a sort of a score of a film or just in music generally. So that, that makes it sort of otherworldly and, and sort of unique to a, a race of people, which it, you know, the Rohan thing perfectly does as soon as you hear that. And then as soon as you see the riders, it's like, oh yeah, that fits. Well, that's who they are. Like every inch of the design of these movies, it communicates culture. And it's not just the, you know, it's not just the art design that does that. The music does that as well. And it's one of, for me, this is what Lord of the Rings does better than any other film I've seen, is giving a sense of identity to all these different people. They go the extra mile to fill in the gaps that aren't necessarily in the film, but they're there. We get to see uh, Edoras early here as well. Uh, I think this wasn't actually uh, in the book. They, um, I think they spoke of these events, but it's when Theodred's been mortally wounded and you meet uh, Eowyn and Eomer and Wormtongue specifically. And it sort of it sets the stage for what um, Aragorn, Gandalf, and uh, Legolas and Gimli are going to walk into in about forty-five minutes. Brad Dorf in this film is so fantastic. Um, he's one of the better performances in this entire trilogy. Mm. Um, uh, up there with Gollum for me, uh, just in terms of the way he physically portrays the character yeah. and he delivers his lines. Um, and uh, there are stories uh, from behind the scenes where he would just stay in character all the way through the shoot. Yeah. He would never drop that voice. It must have been incredibly creepy for all of his co-stars. Because <laughs> yeah. he has yeah, I, an American accent, so when he finally dropped it after eight months and months and months of filming, Ian McKellen didn't believe that that was his real accent. He thought he was putting it on. Yeah, I didn't know who he was before this, and I mm. thought, oh, he's just English. And then when I watched the extra stuff, I was like, how is he American? That's far too good of an accent. Um, the fact, you know, the, the fact he puts that such a good accent on, and he because you'll act so well with it you know yeah. put so much layers of emotion and creepiness into it now that they're free of um, elves and dwarves again with the with a more focused more realistic some would say more gritty new direction for the story to take there's a very Shakespearean vibe about especially everything that happens in Rohan and his altercation with Eowyn uh, around about Theodred's death, the way he actually manages the lines, I mean, there's some of the best, most chewable dialogue and the, and the most, you know, scintillating script writing and adaptation, because a lot of it really is the raw text, you know, just performed fantastically, is around this area and, you know, utilised, again, by Theoden as well, which who we're going to talk about in a second. But the scene between Wormtongue and Eowyn at the uh, beginning, I'm going to play for you guys now. Oh, he, he must have died sometime in the night. What a tragedy for the king to lose his only son and heir. I understand. His passing is hard to accept, especially now that your brother has deserted you. Leave me alone, snake! 
But you are alone. Who knows what you've spoken to the darkness in the bitter watches of the night when all your life seems to shrink, the walls of your bower closing in about you, a hutch to trammel some wild thing. So fair. So cold. Like a morning of pale spring still clinging to winter's chill. His instincts were dead on with that scene. He yeah. knew exactly when to rein it in, to you know add some, some extra emphasis on certain words. It's only the best actors can de- deliver lines that way. And his, his, in terms of his character, we've not seen him developing for all of these years, but he's finally got himself to a position of power. He's been you know sneaking around in the background, and he's gotten himself to the point where he's actually got his hand around Erwin's throat. He has finally got control, and he's Wormtongue is triumphant at this point because he's done what he set out to do. I think part of what sells that scene so brilliantly as well is Miranda Otto's response. The fact that she is completely frozen and it's like a small furry creature looking at the snake that's about to swallow it. Mm. And then you get that flash of Eowyn's true character coming back when she basically rejects him and walks away. It gives you some insight into where her character's going to go, which in the book was very sorely lacking. Um, we also do get to meet uh, Ao Mayer, who you know, is, is more compelling here when, as played by Carl Urban than, again, the barrel-chested warrior in, in the book, who is not massively distinguishable from the other myriad barrel-chested warriors that uh, Tolkien depicts. I did notice that when he gets um, grabbed by the Bother Boys under Wormtongue's thrall, they punch him in the gut while he's wearing armour. Yeah, Punch him in the well. face! It's soft! <laughs> It'll hurt more! Yeah, I don't think they thought that through when they were choreographing it. Yeah, but it's yeah. fine. You know what? But as Sharon mentioned, the, um, the, the point in the extended edition where he holds up the, the king signed it this morning and you get this sort of really weak pathetic scribble that uh, of the, the formerly powerful king's signature there and it's just such a brief moment but they, they had to trim it out of the theatrical edition this is the one that really got trimmed down I think a little bit too hard if you the, the jump between the theatrical and the extended edition and all of the extra substance added to it is, is pretty huge it's oh, almost absolutely. a good film yeah, because the um, extended, uh, the, the theatrical cut doesn't actually explain who Theodred is very well. No. Um, seeing the extended, obviously, AMA finds him after uh, being attacked by orcs. And I was going to say, you don't see him found in the uh, theatrical no. edition, do you? just see AMA br- br- riding back with him. Yeah, Which is such a shame because that scene has so much more weight. Uh, when Kasaraman has this speech towards the beginning of the film and he ends with. 
uh, Rohan, my lord, is ready to fall. Yeah. And, and it just, in the extended edition, it stops on an image of all these soldiers and all these horses lying dead on the ground. And I thought that was a much more powerful way to end that speech yeah. than the way it ends in the theatrical cut. Which I think is just on the burning houses, isn't it? Yeah. I was about to say, Theodore is that he's, he's quite an important character, and you know, especially this this film. He's, Despite not saying a word, he gets a lot of well, things started. Even yeah, cause he's. Him. I mean, he's. I think Theodore's like major impetus for for going to War of Saruman that he's yeah. murdered his char- his son, and the um, a lot of it is around its guilt surrounding the fact that Theodore was not yeah. compass mentis enough to do something about that as well. In fact, his death has almost the same weight as Boromir's. Though their families react in entirely different ways. Yeah. Any any more on Aemir? He's well, he's a lot better characterised in the film. He's he's not a very complex character. I think for me, and I think this was mentioned by some of the writers um, behind the scenes, is he kind of represents what Eowyn would be if she was born a man, um, and there's there isn't a lot to him. But I I'm glad that they actually fleshed him out a bit more than the books because in the books he's a bit of a two-dimensional character. I was going to say one thing I thought was really interesting about the, the dynamic between um, the, the characters of uh, Aomer and Eowyn in terms of like their actual personalities and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later on but even after Theodred dies there is never any hint that the kingship would pass to Aomer. And Theoden particularly, and we'll, again, when we when we talk about the funeral, we'll probably touch on this, but um, Theoden seems to feel very much that his line has been cut now. Yeah, I think that's partially the, why they wanted to make Aomer a sort of bigger character in this, because obviously eventually in the third film he does mm. become king, and in the third film Theoden does realise that Aomer is his, you know, is his heir now. And just sort of, if they'd done the characterization in the third film, it would have been a bit odd. You know, yeah. they, they just jump up the character. But they do refocus the relationship on the the key relationship is actually Eowyn and uh, Theoden. In it, yeah. there, there's there's a lot of unspoken stuff uh, about it. Uh, Sharon, you theorise that it's possible Eowyn might have actually been betrothed to Theodred. Well, that, I mean, that was just an idle thought, speculation. Really. I yeah, yeah I, I don't think there's, there's much to bear that out. But I, I certainly think that if you if you look at the, the setup of the court of Rohan, all of the women's work, it would appear, has fallen to her. All of the attempts at healing, which went very, you know, obviously didn't go very well with um, with Theodred, um, the whole preparing him for being buried would have fallen to her she's had to look after Theoden while he's been crippled and, and old and you can see why she's so resentful of being forced into this women's role because there are no others all of the, the noble women's work has fallen to her and she's been making do with her uh, abilities and, and this and just about managing to hold on but the point when uh, she breaks she uh, is when she runs out to the um the front of uh, Meadowseld and the, the wind catches the flag and blows it towards uh, Aragorn and uh, Gandalf. It's That's basically the, the, the last straw for her. If, if they hadn't turned up at that point, I think she probably would have given up right there. 
So Aragorn, Gimli and Legolas cross paths with the Riders of Rohan and this is the first part in the book when I actually started thinking oh Aragorn's becoming a proper character here because he flings back his cloak and says I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn and actually comes out of his you know shell of being Strider but um, again in, in the book he never really stops that he's just you know suddenly he goes from being I'm not sure whether I'm capable of this to I'm totally sure and at this point, then, and that's it. His arc ends at that point. Two Towers refocuses on Aragorn, his motivations, uh, his relationship with Arwen. Uh, th- this is the Aragorn film of the three. This is where the most characterization for Aragorn takes place. A lot of the this arc is finished off in Return of the King, mm. but um, the ch- the big the biggest chunk of it happens here. Yeah. I actually felt uh, a little bit unsettled that uh, Return of the King takes the focus off him so much. I was like, well, can we go back to Aragorn? But no, <laughs> this is his movie. This is, this is the major obstacle he has to overcome. Yeah. He effectively, while, you know, he's absolutely aided by Gandalf in all of this, Aragorn is the one who prods Rohan into action. It's not his original idea. He's just there uh, uh, with... Um, with his companions trying to find Merry and Pippin. But when Gandalf leaves, he effectively then once again says, this is on you. See ya. And then rides off. And then suddenly it's all about uh, Aragorn keeping Theoden going. Well, there's a scene uh, between Aragorn and uh, Gandalf where Gandalf says, Sauron fears you. Mm. He fears what you could become. And I feel like during the Battle of Helm's Deep, you get a sense of what Sauron is afraid of. Mm. It's not its not his power as a warrior, it's his ability to rally men to his cause. Yes. Well, everybody keeps saying that the, the world is being turned over to men. Now, if they all unite, ultimately, Sauron's stroke of luck, if you like, is that men have remained divided and he's been able to keep them divided by hammering them every now and again for, you know, getting at Gondor from this side, getting at Rohan from that side, keeping them separate, stopping them from banding together. Um, and that's what Aragorn represents, is that all of that divide and conquer would be no longer to his advantage if they're all coming towards him under the same banner. One thing I find really interesting, actually, is that Aragorn has a lot to do with overcoming the objections of the older generation of of men, the older generation of rulers. Um, He has to ultimately prove himself to Elrond. He has to prove himself to Theoden. And although he doesn't do this directly in person, he has to prove himself to Denethor to take over that throne as well. Only person he doesn't have to prove himself to, uh, it seems. Oh, he also has to prove himself to Boromir. Who is an extension of Denethor? He's an extension of Denethor, yeah. I would say. Yeah. But ultimately, it's it's that older guard that he is effectively coming to overthrow, um, and he basically has to to convince them that he's worthy of that. Small scale, he also has to prove himself to Legolas and Gimli, and but they when they follow him at the end of Fellowship, they they were all ready to give up, and were it not for his resolve, they would have. Yeah, it's basically the only one is Gandalf. He's the He's, you know, he's a major figure in sort of the, the old world mm. as it becomes by the fourth age that, and, but he knows that Aragorn has the strength and ability to become king and he you know, has... everyone just, he, obviously Aragorn does not see it at the moment, but, but Gandalf knows that he will come into it eventually. Gandalf has more faith in him than he himself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Gandalf is in a unique position because he's kind of outside all the other races. He can look at things objectively and calculate exactly how things are going to go. And he can see things in other people that they will not see in themselves and other people won't see in them either just because he's standing on the outside. I think the essence of that is that Gandalf's able to take the really, really long view. Yeah. Speaking of Gandalf, Aragorn and Co are about to meet uh, the White Wizard himself. Uh, before they go into Fangorn, there's that scene where they find the burning pile of Uruk bodies after they meet the Riders of Rohan, and Gimli proves to be an extremely rude and unhelpful <laughs> companion. Yeah, can I just mention about that? that, that I, I really like the way that was shot, mm-hmm. the, the scene with the Riders. They, they basically shoved a few cameramen in amongst the Riders, and you get that you get the feeling that, like um, with the Moria fight, you get the feeling it's like it's a war reporter. You're directly in with the, the, the major characters and you are just a, another character that's there, which I quite like. But as I said, the even as written in the book, Legolas and Gimli are terrible ambassadors for their races. <laughs> yeah. Second they meet, and they start threatening an entire well, group of riders. It's because elves and dwarves are seclusionary. Yeah. I mean, that's... that's and rude. Well, they're, they just, they're both a bit up themselves, let's be yeah. honest. I, I think well. it's fair that Aomir thinks there's something suspicious going on with yeah. a human, an elf, yeah. and a dwarf travelling together. I think he's right to think, okay, maybe something's going on here, because this is not uh, a usual sight. Maybe these are orcs in disguise or some kind of spell. <laughs> very good disguise. <laughs> really just good. About to they, say. The orcs' makeup department is, uh, <laughs> it's it's just, is the best in Middle-earth. Probably more, more than guys, more that from, you know, before they think, think, you know, Saruman and wizards are supposed to be allies, and then obviously Saruman turns, and so any, anyone's anyone turn, yeah. Elves, yeah. So you get Elves a sense of the paranoia in Rohan now as well. I was just about yeah. to say, it really does give you a sense of how cut off Rohan has become and yeah. how um, disconnected with the outside world um, Aoma feels. And everywhere his spies slip through our nets. Also, um, this is actually. Uh, Narratively speaking, it's far more interesting that there are immediate clashes and that there's back and forth and there's conflict because, and I'm going to come back to this again, war in the north, everyone is so flipping friendly with each other. <laughs> they just go, well met, how is it going, kinsman? And like dwarf is chatting with elf and elf is chatting with human and everyone gets along. There is no conflict within the group. It's thoroughly boring to watch because there's no characterization there. You can't see where people's boundaries lie, where people's limits lie. If everyone gets on, there's no story there. That's just kiddies' playtime. It's like bizarre kiddies who don't fight. So, yeah, um, interestingly enough, Sharon and I have been playing a lot of the Third Age. Quite a lot of conflict within the group. Quite a lot of secrets. Quite a lot of back chat. A far better game in terms of uh, narrative characterization. So, they get to Fangorn. Around about the time when they meet the pile of uh, burning bodies, uh, folks who've watched the extras will know this story well. Folks who haven't, at the point when they believe that Merry and Pippin are dead, and uh, Legolas is praying quietly, Gimli's mourning, Vigo kicks a helmet towards the camera and gives this feral roar of frustration, anger and despair, and falls to his knees. That's because Vigo Mortensen broke his toe Two toes, in fact, kicking the helmet towards the camera. And rather than go, oh, God, I've been hurt, he used it. Used that scream to show the agony his character was feeling, which is a great way of not wasting a terrible injury. 
one of them we built. We failed them. Fortuitous it happened then, just at the exact moment he had to do a lot of anguish screaming. A lot of acting. And I don't actually know when it was... I assume that was off... Was that after they'd done all the running bit? Or no, no, they did the running stuff after this. So I watched the behind-the-scenes stuff today, oh. and that stuff was really hard for them to shoot because uh, Orlando Bloom had broken his rib. Oh, yes. He'd broken his toe. Something he does. didn't let anyone forget it. Yeah. And Gimli's double uh, dislocated his knee. So all three of them were injured and they had to run about some, uh, run about on these mountaintops. And it was awful for all three of them. Not for Peter Jackson though. <laughs> no, he got to stand there and laugh. <laughs> yeah. So then they go into Fangorn and meet, uh, Gandalf the White. And there's that wonderful bit of blending of Christopher Lee's voice and in McKellen's. I don't know if that's... Is that how, exactly how it's described in the book? He's supposed to be so, like, bright that they can't really get a bead on the character. And if he came in and started talking like Ian McKellen, you'd know immediately what was happening. So it's a really nice sort of way of keeping you guessing. And I suppose the way you could explain it is that he's now channeling the power that Saruman had. And a line that he gives in the extended edition that they didn't include in the theatrical one because it was just a confused regular people was, I am Saruman. Or rather... Saruman as he should have been. Yeah, I don't think, I think the books they don't really mention the voice because it's obviously harder to portray, you know, audio, but I think they say it's, it's weird and doesn't sound like Gandalf. Mm. The white wizard approaches. Do not let him speak. He will put a spell on us. Watch Aragorn when Gandalf makes his sword really, really hot. It's the silliest face Vigo pulls in the entire trilogy. You must be quick. You are tracking the footsteps of two young hobbits. Where are they? They passed this way the day before yesterday. They met someone they did not expect. Does that comfort you? Who are you? Show yourself! Well, it's for it's for the audience's benefit. I know, I know it yeah. doesn't really work in a book. It works with the, the film. It but. got Lyra to drop her jaw. She was like, oh, "He's alive!" But they have to consider the fact that there are people in the audience who haven't read the books. He's on the and poster. They, yeah. Oh, is he? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's that's Great the problem. Boy, do, he's in the trailer. Um, they do a scene which is. We'll think about a bit more later where they, they hint at who he is, but they don't explicitly say, which looks like it's a, a, a nod to, oh, we know it's Gandalf, but we're not, you know, we're not letting on until they have the reveal, but if they had it in the trailer, that's, that's, it, destroys that moment. Is this another Terminator 2 situation where the film is designed to make you question whether mm. wh- which one is met, sent there to kill him, but the trailers reveal it anyway? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes it is. Mark 
marketing people destroy artistic talent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, getting Ian McKellen back in, for, uh, you know, whether they spoiled the surprise or not, would have ensured that they got maximum box office success as well. People were like, oh, totally. Also, it, you know, within the first week, it would have been completely out and all over the early internet. True enough. Mm-hmm. No, no point keeping that particular secret. It's not like um, the Dark Knight with that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, right, so they've lost hand, other hobbits. They met Gandalf. Now, one thing I should have mentioned last week, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it, I was thinking about why do I love McKellen's performance so much as Gandalf. I managed to pin it down to one thing, and it specifically affects Gandalf the grey more than the white, where he seems slightly more removed from the situation. As depicted in the books... Uh, Gandalf the Grey is somewhat aloof and very mystical. He's wise far beyond the Hobbit. And because you're seeing it from the Hobbit's point of view, he's got everything in control. Because it's a film, it's very much from Gandalf's point of view repeatedly. And he is very worried a lot. And because he clearly cares a lot, and because he clearly worries a lot, he is depicted as a, a vulnerable human being. He may be imbued with wizard powers, but he's not some lofty demigod-like figure, that, you know, able to move mountains with a wave of his hand. He's a human who happens to be extremely long-lived and be possessing of some power that he does not believe is up to the task which makes him far more of an identifiable, rootable underdog character. I think his wisdom and his intelligence fuels his fear because he understands the weight of the situation mm. um, where so many characters don't, you know, especially Merry and Pippi, uh, Pippin early in The Fellowship of the Ring. They don't really appreciate the magnitude of the situation. Mm. Um, Gandalf is always worried, but there is still that level of confidence of I have some idea of what I'm doing I'm not totally sure if it will work out but at least I have a plan yeah yeah I think that's the same with Aragorn as well he's you know he knows what his his forebears have done he knows what would happen if he does the same and sort of gets corrupted by the ring and you know when he takes power if he gets corrupted by power what will he will doom Gondor so he doesn't want to sort of take on that power yet which is Similar to Gandalf in you know, Gandalf the Grey, he's happy being the Grey under Saruman the White, and and then until he's basically forced into it by dying at the hands of the Balrog, he you know he has to now be the wizard in Middle Earth, so he has to go around saving everyone effectively. I think with a lot of older writers, they tend to um, make out that fear is a negative thing that true heroes and true warriors do not feel fear they're brave and they'll face anything without fear at all but that's completely false in order to feel courage you have to also feel fear fear is not a negative thing it just means you understand how important something is fear is only negative when you let it overtake you So when you see characters who are clearly afraid but overcome their fear and overcome that obstacle, those people are heroes. Mm. Sharon? Um, I think the other element with um, the way Gandalf implements his powers as well, particularly once he becomes Gandalf the White, when it's more noticeable because you know how much more power he has available to him, he doesn't want to effectively become 
become the inverted commas good version of Sauron because he would end up being corrupted and he knows that. Oh, uh, I, no, yeah, no, 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 oh, sorry, about the ring. Sorry. Exactly, sorry. and that's why he turns down the ring in the first place. But if you look at the way he behaves once he becomes Gandalf the White, he's still moving very small pieces. He could, technically speaking go out and take all the orcs that are threatening Rohan, but he doesn't. He tries to encourage Theoden to take that role because that's what Theoden's supposed to do. He doesn't want to take the authority away from the men who are in charge of these countries because ultimately he knows that they will have to rule. And and like he does with Aragorn, he pulls back and says, right, now it's your turn to make these decisions. You now have to take this, this leadership. He could go around solving everybody's problems for them, but in the long term it wouldn't achieve anything i don't think he's yeah. superman as you're describing he he couldn't right. take all the orcs he's mortal even even as gandalf the white he he could be killed most definitely he's he's not all powerful and yeah i do realize i said he was superman before when he was fighting the balrog but that was figuratively and saruman got killed by a knife in the back okay yeah, well that's but... that's fair enough but i, I think it, it, he could do more than he does um, but I think he doesn't through choice. His position I, yeah. is one of influence rather than power. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah he sees himself as the easy option because he knows if the ring is destroyed, he has to leave Middle Earth. Mm. So he is trying to set it up for the future rather than just a, a short-term thing. Well, he's a teacher and a guide, not necessarily a leader. He's there yeah. for you to you know to have a chat with and discuss ideas and encourage you to take the. Uh, the better route, but he's not going to take control away from you. His influence is actually what scares Denethor the most, This the idea that letting this man into his house, he's letting in this snake who will whisper into the ears of everyone close to him and, and turn the entirety of the city against the stewards. It plays upon his paranoia that um, things are changing beyond his control. Uh, to address, by the way, the thing you were talking about, Josh, with um, the uh, idea of fear... Again, because Tolkien's writing from the Hobbit's point of view, the Hobbits feel fear all the time. They're entirely ill-equipped for what they're, they're, they're put through. But because they're only observing these characters, I mean, the characters are trying to hide and keep down that fear and not bother or frighten the Hobbits by saying, you know, I've got a feeling this whole thing's hopeless. So we are thus kind of denied the more complex characters underneath the people that the hobbits interact with. And then they went to Eduas, and there was a bit in the cinema when Shadowfax turns up, and I sort of, you know, sucked in a breath, and I was like, that really is the most magnificent-looking horse ever, and it's photographed so wonderfully, and the entire audience was just sort of a little bit uh, awestruck as he sort of galloped slowly across the, the field. And then this little kid piped up, Is that his horse? <laughs> and it was like, Yes! God damn it! Oh, I've got an anecdote for a bit later in the film as well. Oh, I, I, I really know, is. of course. The, oh. Yeah, my one's worse because it was bloody adults doing it. Okay. That, really irritating. A uh, kid can be, you know, forget <laughs> yeah, I'd, blurting that out, but... Sh- yeah. Okay. I suppose the parents wanted to bring him in to see this incredible thing, but it's it's important, folks, to get your kids to just watch in silent appreciation. <laughs> if you're taking them to see The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, gag them. <laughs> oh, yeah, there was that one kid who went, it's okay, he comes back. No, really loudly. Was, so everyone... was, he's not really dead. He's not really dead. <laughs> Jesus. 
Or what? You ever ever on notebook? No, well, she was saying it to another. She was saying it to her kid. little sister, so okay. clearly she didn't know. So that and you she know, got really upset at the prospect that Aslan was, was dead. A, yeah, that that was the one child who didn't need to know that piece of information. <laughs> also, um, someone blurted out really loudly in the uh, Goblet of Fire, "Is that the case? He's got the real Mad Eye Moody in." It's like, oh fuck. <laughs> <sighs> so yeah. Parents, anyone listening to this show, I would imagine you're really good at keeping your kids quiet anyway. Although I once got into a big fight on a forum, not ours, with a guy who was like, I think it's my God-given right to allow my kids to speak loudly in the cinema. Sorry, Kermode's rules, not mine. What was his argument? Was it if you don't want to hear kids talking, you shouldn't go and see films under a 15 certificate? I don't anymore. I don't go to the cinema and it's your kids talking. That's one of the reasons. He was an idiot. He was an idiot. Anyway... Okay, so Edoras, very powerful scene when uh, Gandalf draws Saruman out of uh, Theoden as poison is drawn from a wound. Yeah, Bernard Hill has one of the creepiest laughs I've ever heard. Yeah. (laughs) Exceptionally good uh, transition between the, you know, the the haggard old drank from the wrong grail Theoden uh, and Bernard Hill as we we know and love him, the Captain Birdseye, Captain of the Titanic. (laughs) Yeah, and also I really, I really like the um, the the cuts they do in this film. Of, you know, Gandalf sort of pushes forward, and you see Theoden sort of pull back, and then Saruman is pushed across. It's sort of nice. Sort of, you know, it enforces the point that Saruman is is controlling him from from afar, and it's just a, a nice way of showing that. And as I said, very subtle magic. There's a sort of a, a, a bass beat as Gandalf says, I release you. And there's a little bit of wind that blows their hair. It's not enough to really be like a major effect, but there's enough to make it feel like there is a field of energy going on around here that we can't see. So it's it's, it's like they've, they've decided, look, magic happens in this world, and by and large, we can't see or understand it. And that's how it should be. If you explain it, it's midi-chlorians. <laughs> and I'd much rather, uh, you know, subtle stuff like that than, you know, a light show where it's all like, oh, I'm sparkling glitter into them, <laughs> cleaning up the wind. Like, you know, the old 80s fantasy films where they had those rubbish special effects where they're representing magic. Yeah. Make magic more subtle and it's far more powerful. Yeah. Because it feels like a force of nature then when you do it that way. It does have its place. I mean, Harry Potter has a lot of flashy fireworks going on, and yeah. ultimately it's it's a good way to... With with children, sometimes subtlety isn't necessarily the best way all the time. There are yeah. other elements of Harry Potter, especially in the later ones, where subtlety is applied to other things than magic. Also, wands look stupid if they don't have anything coming out of things. You're just waving around a very small, a small stick. stick That's yeah. true. It just looks like a, you know, a fairy wand then... Yeah. Um, a staff is though a, a much more sort of it looks much more powerful than you don't so you don't have to overdo the special effects. Yeah. One thing I wanted to say about this uh, this scene as well, and you won't hear me say this very often, um, but Eowyn's dress in this particular section is absolutely amazing, and it from a, a costume perspective and a, an aesthetic design perspective, it epitomises the medieval England atmosphere that they were really, really going for with this. And and that, I would say, Edoras, more than anything else, really brings out the Arthurian mythological um, atmosphere that I think Tolkien was going for. 
Yeah, not even medieval, just like uh, almost dark ages. Tolkien always figured that if the Saxons had had a cavalry, then they would have won the Battle of Hastings. So Rohan's kind of the Saxons as they could have been. There is actually a painting that's just called Guinevere. Mm -hmm. And the dress she's wearing in that is very, very similar to this one that Eowyn has in this bit. Well, Eowyn here is every bit the uh, maiden, as you were uh, talking about last week, Sharon. Mm. Yes, so hence the white and the golden yeah. works perfectly. Yeah. And then immediately switch to uh, dark uh, funereal robes for Theodred's sending. It's, um, again, not in the theatrical edition. They didn't have time. But um, it, it's this really somber, powerful song, song almost without any musical accompaniment as well. It just rises yeah. up near the end. Yeah, it's a shame that was cut out because that... I mean, that and the, the scene directly after it is just so powerful that, that I, I wish they'd kept both in for the theatrical, really. But There is almost a different slant on it, actually, with the funeral not being there for the theatrical cut. Mm. Um, and again, you, you've already said that The Two Towers suffers the most from, from being cut for the theatrical edition, in my opinion. Um, but it, the implication is that Theoden was not even mentally present for Theodred's funeral. Yeah. yeah. I got that that would well. have been a massive kick in the heart. Whereas at least in the in the extended edition you understand that he was there for that. He was able to lay his son to rest at least. Yeah. Yeah. But he is also faced with the literal product of his absence. Although Gandalf, as Gandalf says to him, it's not his fault. Even if he had been fully compass mentis, there's no guarantee that Theodred wouldn't still have died. Yeah, but any parent in that situation, like no matter what rationalisation your friends will tell you, you'll still blame yourself. Also, it would have muddied the the very clear, sharp, stabbing feeling of um, how this affects both Theoden and Eowyn, this... This funeral, they're both laying to rest someone that they thought was going to be around for many, many decades. And they're laying to rest the vision they had of their futures. In terms of Theoden, it's the future of his line. In terms of Eowyn, she was going to be serving this man as a king. And she was extremely close to him, clearly. So it is key to their characterization. And when Theoden says, no parent should have to bury their child... Every year that I watch that, it becomes sharper and more painful. Absolutely. Ever has it grown on the tombs of my forebears. Now it shall cover the grave of my son. Alas, that these evil days should be mine. The young perish and the old linger. That I should live to see the last days of my house. 
Sadra's death was not of your making. No parents should have to bury their child. He was strong in life. His spirit will find its way to the halls of your fathers. This this whole section of the film um, makes me cry every time I watch it. Um, from the moment um, Ferdin uh, takes his sword from uh, his from its sheath, and to this scene in the funeral, uh, it's so effective uh, at drawing out that grief from Fairden and it's Bernard Hill that does it his performance um, is really subtle he doesn't overplay it and I think that's what makes it great it's like what we said with the uh, Serenity podcast it's not somebody crying that's powerful it's watching somebody trying not to cry and I think Bernard Hill does that until he eventually breaks down um, when Gandalf's talking to him. And there's more throughout the entire movie. It's obvious that he wants to just sit down on the floor and just give up and just have a nervous breakdown, but he can't. He has to keep going for his people. It's a brilliant way of drawing everything that Aragorn is going to have to feel into another character. There is a great benefit to these films from having several very well-trained older actors mm. playing the key, some of the key parts. It's rare that you get such a mix of old and young or all in the same boat in, in, in a, a film designed for everyone because mm. it doesn't work on <laughs> when they're designing and focus grouping the films. They only need one or two old people to appeal to the older people, and they need mostly young people to appeal to the kids, and a couple of people, you know, slightly beyond that for middle age. But this is they have to stick to what was actually written on the page, and, and ultimately, they technically the hobbits weren't supposed to be quite so young but they have a youthful energy to the characters which allows them to I mean like for example Billy Boyd is considerably older than Dominic Monaghan but his character acts younger so there's that that, that mix of different energies and, and different comprehensions of what's going on there's an innocence about the hobbits as well which makes them more childlike and yeah. I think because Sam and Frodo are taking on more uh, responsibility at least at this point yeah. um, that gives them more of a feel of being older teenagers um, and Billy and uh, Dominic present more as a, as younger characters mm. um, but the, the it's the and I think I, I said this to you before it's the intergenerational interaction yeah. is one of the things that truly truly sells this world and I, I said this on the, the the previous podcast about if you create a world that has no women in it it doesn't look real because the real world has women in it if you create a world in which everybody is the same age that doesn't look real because in the real world everybody is not the same age unless it's logan's run in fact, no, we, we picked up on that in um, when we were watching Never Let Me Go, didn't we? Because everybody, apart from the, the central characters, all the surrounding characters are old, and that immediately makes everything look wrong. Which was right for the actual story, because it was yes. supposed to be a, yeah. a, a, yeah. a dystopia. Mm. 
but a very gradual decline of a dystopia. We meet Brego, who isn't even mentioned by name in the uh, theatrical cut. Again, a, a casualty. Um, the, the wild horse. Sharon asked, and this will turn up at the very beginning of the next part, why does Brego get set loose with uh, saddle and bridle? No, he's not wearing a saddle, but he is wearing a, a halter with a rope attached. Uh-huh. It is literally like when, when uh, Aragorn said, turn this fellow loose, somebody literally led him out of the stable and just let go of the rope. Didn't bother <laughs> taking all that stuff off, which he would need for... He would need the freedom when uh, running free with all the other horses in that country. Mm-hmm. But it's so that Aragorn can ride him later. <laughs> yeah, That's the only real reason. I know. <laughs> he said you can ride a horse without anything on it. Yeah. Unless, of course, it's a super intelligent horse (laughs) and it robbed somebody else's stable. That is exactly (laughs) what happened. He keeps Brega. That's the horse that he rides to the Black Gate. Mine. (laughs) In fact, technically, Brega chooses him. Like the steeds in that Avatar movie. (laughs) (laughs) She'd think I'm a steed. And uh, we get the, the short scene with uh, Erwin and Aragorn, and uh, it's the straightforward, I do not like my place in this society moment. And this, of course, relates to that thing that we're going to keep coming back to on this show, which Daniel Floyd voiced about uh, women, how much they accept and reject of their place in society. Eowyn, very specifically, and it is key to her character, wants to be able to fight exactly the same as a man. I don't think it's quite that. Um, the, the reference that Aragorn makes to shield maidens, I suspect it may have been before her time, but I think there has been some martial role that women have played in Rohan's history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I don't think it's so much that she wants to, um, to take a male role, but I think, again, I think it comes back to this idea that all of the, uh, the responsibility that would traditionally have been spread out among several women in the in the court has all fallen to her, and I think she wants to get away from that. And what she sees when her her cousin and her brother have ridden away to fight, she sees freedom in that. She sees them escaping from the scent of death, from the uh, the the weight of having to look after the old and the young and the sick. And I don't think it is so much that she she particularly wants to be masculine, and she, even that she particularly wants to fight, but she wants the opportunity for that freedom. She wants to be able to choose. Well, she says in a scene with Aragorn, because Aragorn asks her, what do you fear, my lady? And she says, I fear a cage, you know. Mm, yeah. um, she fears not being able to do anything, is what I get from that she wants to be able to take action for the people she loves also because again because she's seen her her male kinsmen come back with this honour and glory and and valour that's something that she has a great deal of respect for ultimately though she's not seen war she's not seen until Theodred comes back and she sees the result of that I think that's why they have that bit where she's kneeling by his bedside and she is so there's a, a quality to the way that she's crying that seems to be a little more wrung out. Because it's like she's seeing this is the end result of that valour you were seeking. Well, there's no honour in war. That's no. the reality. Mm. War is a terrible thing that should be avoided at all costs. Um, and I think people only realise that when they're in war. 
it, yeah. they don't they don't realize it from a distance because it seems oh it's heroic and it's brave and it's adventurous no you'd never ever want to be in that situation ever yeah. but once she goes through that yeah. if you looked you know looked at who she is drawn to ultimately it's faramir who is much more gentle um and and has a much less uh combative side somewhat opposed to her brother yes very true. And she ends up by the uh, close of this film locked in a, uh, a, a box. And she ends up at the end of this film effectively in a cage guarding the uh, the women. And there was actually going to be a scene where she fended off the attacks of uh, some Uruks inside the caverns, which they took out. Uh, I think possibly because they knew that her character was going to be able to flourish in the next film. It minimises the threat of the Uruks as well, I think, because you you get the feeling throughout the whole Helm's Deep section that basically if they get into those back caves, that's it, it's all over. Fine point. And if only one woman with a shield and a sword can keep them at bay... Mm. Then yeah, absolutely. You diminish that. Yeah. yeah, but I think that that uh, the the scene where uh, Aragorn not confronts her but but speaks to her in the in the hall, um, that's obviously the the beginning of her being drawn to him because he acknowledges that um, that desire in her for that freedom and the the ability to to seek valor for her own account. Um, and I think that's the first time that's been recognized for her and somebody said to her yes I think you could do that I think she has a lot of um, gratitude to him for that okay so next story thread Merry and Pippin and we go back to the Eminent Gullies with the Uruks Merry Merry wake up my friend is sick he needs water. Please. Sick, is he? Give him some medicine, boys. <laughs> Stop it. God, take his clothes. <laughs> Leave him alone. Why? You want some? Huh? Then keep your mouth shut. extended edition they meet the orcs and we immediately get that culture clash uh, and the sense that there is uh, there is a superiority complex that the uruks have where they've been told you are the successors to the orcs and that they're having to deal with these you know scum from mordor and worms from moria it's demeaning that they have to actually now deal with them. You feel that as an audience member as well, because you look at the Uruks and they're these giant gorilla men, essentially, and then you see the orcs who just 
look like you know they're very close to how Gollum appears. He's very they're very weak and scrawny, and also we have to mention that Urukai can travel in daylight and mm. orcs can't. So the being scared of the sun makes them seem significantly uh, uh, weaker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Merry and Pippin at this point have. They've been snatched away from their protectors. They've been snatched away from their purpose on this particular quest, which is to help and protect Frodo. They're effectively useless at this point. They don't know quite what's going on. The the one thing that they latch onto is the idea that if they keep up the pretense that one of them's got the ring, or at least that they don't start saying, I don't know why you've got us, we don't have anything that we can give you, that they can still be of use as uh, distractions. And they come through as extremely selfless. Again, they they want to go home, but they're they're aware of the far larger story here, and they want they don't they are prepared. It would appear to give their lives for this particular cause, which is really endearing because they're so far out of their depth. I think, I think Merry more than Pippin, though. Yeah, I feel like Pippin's Pippin a bit oblivious is, for a while. <laughs> yeah, Pippin's following Merry's lead. Yeah. Uh, I think Merry has really taken on the situation and really realizes what's going on. Yeah. Is it Merry or Pippin who takes off his? Uh, uh, it's Pippin. Brooch. It's Pippin who does brooch. that. Yeah. So even though he's not entirely on the ball, he's aware of what's going on. Well, yeah, I think it's because I mean I think in the fiction Mary's slightly older, and he's like Pippin sort of looks up to him and sort of yeah. does what he does. And in this, Pippin takes off the brooch because Mary's been hit on the head and is quote unquote acting. I just thought that looks so horrible that grog Orc juice. Yeah. What was it? What was it? Is it peach iced tea and Soda Stream cola? So the yeah, stickiest yeah. substance in the world. <laughs> Uh, Dominic even actually gagged at one point. He wasn't yeah. faking. But, <laughs> but they, Peter Jackson kept saying, oh, I can't oh, see more in there. <laughs> and uh, yeah. they, there's a, there's overtones of the um, cutting back to Isengard and the da-da-da, from Fellowship, where it's like, you know, Simon's still doing this thing. Everything that you saw before, this was, was the lead up to his, you know, his big push. And uh, so because you've got all that out of the way in Fellowship, they don't have to introduce it all in this. They don't have to explain it all. It's just business as usual for Saruman. He's still making Uruks. He's still the, the fires of industry. And as I, I noted, interestingly, it cuts almost immediately from the fires of industry to Rohan literally being set on fire. I know this is an obvious comparison to make, but there are a lot of parallels between Isengard and Nazi Germany. You I mean, didn't he's say. no one's ever mentioned this. One. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the Uruks are the master race. Mm. You know, he's constructing these perfect beings, Superman, super orcs. Yeah, and yeah, the- you know, and Saruman's Hitler. I mean, I know that's an <laughs> obvious comparison, but he is. He wants the way to instill he- order in what he could perceive yeah. as chaos. Yeah, yeah. The the biggest one though, which they mentioned in the thing is um the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Tolkien was not very impressed. <laughs> he hated the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And well, he grew up very much with a child's eye view of the world as being rural, like Hobbiton. And then uh, yeah. as as industry crept into his neighbourhood, because it had been going in London for hundreds of years now, but as it crept in, it was like it was tarnishing and despoiling everything that he held dear. Yeah, and it's obviously encapsulated by Saruman using the term industry and yeah. and 
de- kind of destroying all the trees in the the ring of Isengard just to, to fuel this machine. There is a slight the... overtone of uh, progress and indeed science bad, nature good. I was yeah. going to say you've also got the um, the cutting between the uh, the scenes where the orcs are making their uh, their armor and their swords, and everything is ugly. Everything is purely functional. There is no aesthetic value whatsoever. It's tough. It's hard. It's sharp. And that's all it needs to be. And then you intersperse that with uh, the the. Um, the architecture in um, in Ed, Ed, Edoras and uh, the Rohirrim swords and everything is very elegant um, and very stylized and they you know, everything's the horse, got which is a exactly and everything's old as well. Everything is traditional. Mm. Everything is is you know from previous generations. There's a lot of wood, but it's yeah. well cared for also, wood. It's not just burned and used. Also, I mean, the horse is a use a symbol of the past in the you know sort of industrial terms of when the car was introduced. That was yeah. the so they just you know, progress with the car which is technically you know obviously early ones were terrible compared to a horse but people wanted progress and and so the horse was was sort of by the wayside although for the record prior to the invention of the car the number of protests that people made in various towns about all the horse poop everywhere well, yeah <laughs> <laughs> pollution is not new so the edge of fangorn forest the uruks and the orcs clash once again yeah. This this is the point where people on, in the theatre that I was in started to laugh at the orc voices. Yeah, why can't we have some meat? Yeah, it's like, they're not funny. You have the intellectual capacity of a child. <laughs> Shut up. Um, I think they were supposed to be a bit funny. I don't think they were. I think that's how orcs talk. That's how they talked in The Fellowship, and that's how they talked in this. The Uruks definitely aren't, but I think Snaga no. and no. Um, Grishnak, the... How about their legs? They don't need those. I mean, I they just sound quite like, scary I, as well. I just think they sound like cockneys. <laughs> Snaga, the squeaky one, is actually voiced by Andy Serkis, even though he's played by Jed Brophy. I think there's definitely, like, dark comedy there. I don't think it's, like, laugh out loud. Oh, no. ha, ha, oh isn't this a jolly time? But it is uh, quite humorous. Uh, especially with, looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. And I, as I said on Twitter, at what point do the Uryx become familiar with menus? Tonight you shall have a choice of uh, man flesh surprise, man fingers... <laughs> thing is, Saruman might be an evil dude, but he still has etiquette. So when the Uruks around his house, they have to, you know, eat with knives and forks. They have yeah. to have their bibs on. Chicken or beef. I think I just uh, enjoy watching Jed Brophy work as Snaga, his um, you know, physical acting through that character. Uh, I, a lot of the orcs, in fact, pretty much every, um, every, every evil creature was chewing on licorice or something because they've got black um, spit sort of dribbling out of their mouths all the time, which is very effective. Even Wormtongue has it. This is the most impressive makeup I've seen in any film. The orcs all look really believable. There's never... Only when I really look do I see, like, the seams, but really it blends in. It really blends together well. And I, I like that they decided to use practical effects combined with CGI because yep. you get the best of both worlds. Definitely, and practical effects hold up 11 years later when some of the uh, CGI effects don't quite. And yeah. not just practical effects, the acting workshops where they got into the mindset of an orc 
and the mindset of an Uruk. And I was watching one yeah. of them where they were just sort of loping around the room. And it was just like the guys in tracksuits and stuff. And suddenly when they're goblins and they're sort of all bow-legged and sort of skittering around the place. And when they're Uruks, they're sort of trembling with rage. But extremely straight and extremely kind of... Gorilla Men is actually quite a good way of putting it, uh, uh, Josh. Partially they did that with the, the costumes. Like they said that the, the, El, the, the Lothlorien elves, they specifically made them in a way to make the actors... You know, have straight backs and you know, it's obviously a lot more elegant and sort of be mm. sort of do sort of ballet sort of poses. And and I, how I are they? are all willowy male models. Well, <laughs> students. And female they models. Were. And female models, yes. I just find uh, male but, models funnier. Sexist. This male is a very models. awkward conversation. <laughs> really, really fantastically good looking. Okay, so Merry and Pippin meet Treebeard, who rescues them from Grishnak, which actually got a cheer from Lyra when he got squashed. <laughs> it was suddenly, this is a good tree, suddenly. Mm. She knew, she knew she went, it in her bones. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> it's been quite interesting, actually, because she as I said before, has been terrified of Gollum. Really didn't want to see it. Every time he was on screen, she would screw up her eyes and put her fingers in her ears at best and at worst run out of the room and upstairs. Um, but we had to teach her about how complex the character was and how... Uh, we'll talk about him in a second. But um, she grew to grasp much of this film. The thing that she began to get a bit cheesed off with was the Battle of Helm's Deep because it is there's not much in there for little kids. But, um, impressed by the man with no eye, though. Yeah, she liked him. There is a lot in this film that will can can actually be appreciated by the younger kids. And the fact that the hobbits are small, from the very word go, that was one of the... I, I know Tolkien wasn't writing for kids beyond the hobbit, but um, making Bilbo the oh. size of a child was a great way to net kids. Say Ted wasn't writing for children. Technically, I mean, he was asked to write for children. <laughs> I think his son read it and said it would be okay for children. So I think he did that, have that in the back of his mind. He, I mean, I think he probably would have liked it to be. He wasn't writing to make it published, but I think as it was published, he would like it to be read as much, you know, sort of broad demographic as possible. Just because I don't think he was particularly one of the thing, one of the ones to you know have to talk down to children. I'd say what well, he, he wasn't writing for a broad demographic. He appeared to be writing for Oxford professors of language. But it's the second most popular book of the 20th century after the Bible. So one yeah. would one would infer from that that a lot of people quite like it. Yeah. I would I like to know these statistics these days for picking up the book and then putting the book down again before you even get out of the Shire <laughs> for new readers. It's got to uh, be a pretty high a percentage. They just have to watch the film now, so I don't know if people even read the book anymore. Yeah. New people. Yeah. A lot of uh, old fans are going to be buying it on Kindle. But I wonder how many paper books get bought any, uh, again mm. still. Must be, you know. I'm assuming with The Hobbit coming out that there will be a sudden resurgence. Yeah. Anyway, Treebeard. One of the most boring characters in the book for me because he's described as being incredibly slow and like an old man and a slightly senile one at that. And his entire race do things incredibly slowly. And it was, you know, Merry and Pippin were there, but they weren't exactly thrilling in the uh, book either. So this was one of the, the harder sections of the book for me to actually slog through. And uh, it's fortunately it's trimmed down in the, even in the extended edition, there's a lot more tree beard. It goes on and on and on. So there's a quote from Peter Jackson that says that um, 
Shreebeard is boring, but I quite like that. So. <laughs> but Ron Reese Davis as Shreebeard gives him a really kind of rich, warm, relatable voice. So you kind of you don't mind him talking away. You can you know you can doze slightly when you're uh, when you're watching him. Yeah, I think that they, I mean, do dress it in the film that Mary, there is a scene where everyone just fall, you know, just, just basically looking at each other saying, yeah, this is pretty boring. <laughs> Which is the basic, you know, nod to the audience say, yeah, we know Treebeard is not the <laughs> entertaining of characters. Exactly. Yeah. We'll be moving on soon. Um, it's important. Uh, I, there's actually a scene, a, a line from Pippin that I really like. It's a, um, trees talk, it's sort of trees talking, uh, don't talk to it, don't, don't encourage, encourage it. it. <laughs> it's like, oh, really like that. The idea that if they don't talk to it, maybe it'll go away. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's an interview like a with... That old man in the park. Yeah, basically. There's an interview, Josh? There's an interview with, um, uh, John Reese Davis where he was, um, talking about how he did the voice for Treebeard. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, I started doing it by breathing outwards and delivering my lines as I was breathing out. And that's where that, like, really weird pattern to his, um, uh, speech comes in because every time he breaks, he breaks to breathe in so he can talk as he's breathing out again. I thought that was a really clever way of, um, Manipulating your voice to create a very unique sound. Wasn't it actually they played the voice through this giant wooden tunnel so that it would have this sort of great sort of oaky resonance to it as well? Yeah. yeah and it's, it. it sounds like the creaking of an old tree when he's talking. Murarum, little ox. Which makes perfect sense if you think about it because the, the closest a tree in real life gets to vocalisation is the wind blowing through the branches. Yeah. Quick cut across back to Saruman and the wild men of Dunland. Um, this is very briefly gone into uh, in both versions of the film, but they're men who I believe used to live in Rohan, but were driven out by um, the uh, nomadic race referred to as the horse lords of Rohan. Hence, they are necessarily... justified in their uh, trying to take it back. Well, that may not necessarily have been the case. Bear in mind that we get that information from Saruman, who is not the most trustworthy historian in the world. Ah. Yeah. Ed, Chris, having read the book, anything on um, the, uh, the world? It, it is not clear. <laughs> Brilliant. They are men from the hills, so... Um, Lyra shouted, they're so ugly! <laughs> <laughs> I think they are Middle-earth hillbillies, basically. Mountain so. men. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's not explained very well. <laughs> and there's a, a brief bit of interaction between Wormtongue and uh, Saruman where you, you get their uh, dynamic now. Suddenly Wormtongue is, is and has been for some time clearly the spy and to a lesser extent the dog's body of Saruman. I think ultimately it, it's a case of uh, that some time ago Wormtongue decided better to be on the side of the devil than in his way. Yeah, I, I really like... Um, sort of how how that scene is shot, the the lighting, especially, it just it looks, it sort of looks creepy. It looks a bit like a sort of a horror film, mm. and the the expression on Christopher Lee's face sort of disdain because he has to deal with Worm Tongue, who obviously is, yeah. is, is far lesser. Yeah, and there there, there looks like a sort of a, a slight shine, you know, sort of light on on Christopher Lee just to give that horror look. Yeah. There's no sense in in this film of uh, the weakness that we saw at the um, 
beginning briefly in Fellowship of the Ring. He's a man absolutely dead set on his course. Again, uh, he has that air of Hitler about him. Like, yep, this is the right thing to do. I am not going to waver in this. He becomes inhuman. Which is not human to start with. Oh, for goodness (laughs) sake. (laughs) You are technically correct. The best kind of correct. Um, When I say inhuman, I mean unrelatable as a human. I mean, obviously, Gimli is inhuman, but he is very human in his mannerisms. Inhumanoid. (laughs) That sounds like an X-Men comic. expressive. Okay, um... And also we get the notion of gunpowder, which, again, this was... They did blow up the Deeping Wall in the um, book, didn't they? Uh, yep. Tolkien set this 6,000 years ago, considerably before the Chinese had discovered gunpowder. Ah, so it's it's kind of this forgotten era. Not dissimilar, in fact, to uh, the Hyborian Age in Conan. It's sort of like prehistory. There's a, a lot of space in the back of people's minds to actually accommodate for this. If they have a certain slightly, slightly romantic-leaning soul, they can go, oh, yes, there's just all this stuff we haven't found out about yet. Well, Gandalf is using gunpowder for his fireworks, presumably. Yeah, yeah, good point. So it's a secret known only to wizards. Basically, Which would yeah. make sense. Yeah, You wouldn't want a bunch of Urukai running around with pump-action shotguns, would you? <laughs> it just so, I mean, that. They have pump-action crossbows, which weren't uh, do, yeah. in the book, and, and then that was a new one to Im- imply that the bow was being superseded now by something which was industrial and practical, and it made sense to just be able to kit these guys out with something that would actually be an easier version of what their enemy were using. Yep. That, that fight wouldn't have lasted long if they had pump-action shotguns. <laughs> <laughs> that pump-action crossbow is from a 15th century German combat manual. It is. Well noted. <laughs> God, there's like one up with shit in this one. It's, I've studied it's more. A, it's a bow, that's my field of expertise. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. And, uh, there's, a bit that goes, there's a bit that goes very wrong later in the film, but well. <laughs> Must forgive the bowstrings. <laughs> no, it's not... I'll get to that rant when we get to it, but... It's not a rant. <laughs> it's a oh, nitpick. It's not. Even. They went to so much trouble to get it realistic. They said they wanted it to be a historical recreation, and they got the bows wrong. There is no. I. I mean, I've been shooting for about four years. I, I've watched loads of people shoot. They always shoot on a specific side of the bow, depending on your bow arm. That is set in stone, but they get it wrong. That is inexcusable. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm specialist. I think we're going to have to allow him this rent. Right, so let's just get the Merry and Pippin side of the story uh, closed up uh, with Entdraft and Old Man Willow, entirely not present in the theatrical edition because ultimately it does not really serve the plot. The Old Man Willow was a nod to the Tom Bombadil scenario and it shows that the trees really can be quite dangerous and vindictive. Yeah, they, they picked the only good bit out of the Tom Bombadil section. Yeah. <laughs> but it's important to establish that this forest is something that uh, is a force to be reckoned with. Well, yeah, again, it doesn't really get to fruition in the theatrical edition because they cut out that scene where the Uruks run into the forest and get savaged at the end. Yeah, yeah I was, was going to say yeah. they need this scene for that scene to make sense. Yeah. Well, you know, it doesn't need to make sense. I mean, in the, the extent that Urukai run in and the trees shake. So yeah. it looks. Yeah, it's like they're being eaten. <laughs> yeah, but it gives the audience a better understanding of what's yeah. actually going on yeah. in that forest. We've not seen any actual trees attacking. We've seen Ents and been told that they are not trees in no uncertain yeah. terms by an affronted tree beard. Don't call yourself tree something then. 
and don't look <laughs> like a giant tree. Well, he doesn't call himself Tree Bird, but some call me Tree. Um, yeah. Uh, the other Ents get to the uh, the point where he's going home at the end incredibly quickly. Considering they move um, incredibly slowly normally. It did, I think it's mentioned in the book that when they want to, Ents can really move fast. Yeah. And can teleport. <laughs> but how did they not know the forest was being cut down, like completely cut yeah, down I, there? Surely someone would have sent a message. I, th- I think the point is they needed someone outside to rouse them. I think they... they that he doesn't particularly car cast well in the film because it's just yeah Trevor just like oh I've just noticed that all the, all these trees aren't there anymore even though I probably would have walked around here before but but we said last point, week that we could hear the tree the Huons screaming I, when they're being pulled down in fellowship yeah <laughs> yeah but <laughs> Plot I, I, Plot I, holes. there's lots of them wouldn't the a sparrow is, tell him I don't know for me it was symbolic of Pearl Harbor yep I said that waiting. exact same thing to Sharon yeah, it, it's it's a wake up call. It's like okay, we can't ignore. Ball. We are not anything to do with this. You know, we'll we'll watch it. We're, we're not going to take part. Oh, suddenly they kill people next door to us. Okay, right now we're in. We can talk about like yeah. inaccuracies all day, but I think symbolically it does exactly what it needs to do. That yeah. scene. It shows that the uh, certain cultures, certain factions, certain people will only move when they've been attacked themselves. When suddenly that is slammed home to them, uh, the end draft scene is again kind of important to show that that the hobbits are literally growing from this experience. I mean, this is it's like yeah. figuratively they're growing, but then they drink end draft and literally grow. That that all ties in with the, the fact that they become the heroes of the Shire later on. And I think that's where we're going to leave Merry and Pippin for now, and we should go on to thread number three, Frodo and Sam and Gollum. So we start off in MNWI, one of the most featureless, boring, horrible, rocky, immediately describable in one sentence, grey rocks. Um, places imaginable. Even though uh, a lot of it actually was filmed on location, it sometimes feels surreal. Like more of a nightmare than an actual place, which I suppose is absolutely the point. Yeah, I, yeah. I felt like it was trying to communicate that the closer you got to Mordor, the more lifeless the environment became. There's very little vegetation, and what vegetation there is is decaying and disgusting and slimy. It's Especially a, when they get to the bog. It's a figurative descent into extreme depression as well. Yeah. Things get worse and worse as they go along. It goes from being listless to being straight out, you know, absolutely terrifying. And that's why I feel the scene between Frodo and Sam when they're at the bottom of this cliff and then uh, Frodo discovers the salt that uh, Sam has. And, uh, uh, yeah. and to start with, it's quite, you know, a humorous scene, but it ends on a very poignant note. This, it's a little piece of home. It's a little piece of hope. Um, that was going to keep us going mm. to remember what we're fighting for. 
which obviously comes back at the end with Sam's massive speech. And uh, Sharon said last week, I don't know if you've heard this bit yet, Josh, uh, that Sam is that fragment of the Shire that Gandalf insisted that Frodo take along with him. So that salt is a microcosm for Sam. Uh, then Gollum finally turns up. Now, for a lot of people, this was like, okay, right, what's this going to be? Because in 1999, three years earlier, we've been introduced to Jar Jar Binks, an entirely CG character. Not the first entirely CG character. I think Blop in Lost in Space actually has that accolade, a horrible little color-changing monkey thing, which you would just chuck into an airlock without thinking about it. Uh, and Jar Jar Binks was nightmarish, absolutely you know, disgusting pathetic clown that would improve matters immediately and noticeably simply by being ejected from proceedings. So what was Gollum going to be? Was he going to be this, you know, stupid, weird, clownish thing? Was he going to be um, the, the way he was portrayed in the Bakshi one? Um, was he just going to be... I mean, the, every chance this character would have to be annoying and unbelievable. And astonishingly, he ends up as maybe the most complex character in the entire series and an absolute technical feat marrying together computer mastery, the photography and the actual techniques they use to actually get the performance and the raw talent of Mr. Andy Serkis. There was a lot of serendipity involved in this, though. I mean, the fact that they they chose Serkis primarily based on the voice performance that he delivered Mm. they couldn't have known at the time that he would give them such a physical performance as well that it would get to the point where it made more sense to map animation onto what he was already doing Mm. um than than to simply you know create the character entirely digitally afterwards Mm. um and the fact that they had so much time to work with as well meant that they had that you know they were able to develop all these unusual ways of doing things that usually would be rejected because you wouldn't have the time on a film to develop them. It, it was a landmark in cinema, absolutely. This is one of the most important technical feats in recent cinema history. You think of how many films have been influenced by the experimentation that went on with Gollum. I mean, Avatar wouldn't be what it is without. You know the the basic you know the luck involved in discovering and and fleshing out the techniques that would become performance capture. Mm. Yeah, I think it. I mean, specifically Gollum. It the I think the entire reason it works so well is is hinged on the fact they had Andy Serkis. Oh yeah, rolling around in the gimp suit they called it, Mm -hmm. Um, which they completely obviously painted him out, which is a bit I would. I want to see that. I want to see the entire film just with him in it. Um, <laughs> but he, seem, he seems to believe that he wasn't on screen, which is fascinating because he's technically, because of his performance, he's more on screen than most of the other characters. Well, I, I think, think he was talking about initially when they were first doing the, the reference passes where they did actually physically remove him. Mm. Well, yeah, because I think they did. They, the, what they were planning to do was, yeah, use the, the reference shot to. to to, sort of, to, to run through what the we're going to do, it. Yeah. Show them what and doing. then they were going to use the scenes where just you know uh, Frodo and Sam were just acting to, to emptiness. Yeah, yeah. And then they they found out, which obvious, which is very obvious when you think of it, that the scenes that Andy Serkis were actually in physically worked so much better because they had something to to play off 
and then that's how you can get the um, the eye lines perfect because there is actually someone there. Yeah. Um, and obviously some of the some of the the fight it, you know, sort of some of the like when uh, Gollum jumps up on Sam and bites him, that is because of sort of a struggle that he had with Andy Circus, and they just sort of worked out how to animate that. When I watched this for the first time in cinema, this is the first time where I felt like a CG creature had a soul. Mm. And and it's so much of that is Andy Serkis's performance. Because mm. even though, you know, the, the special effects in Lord of the Rings have dated a little bit, but let's be honest. But because you can see the person in that CG creation... Gollum still feels alive, just as alive as he did then, as he does now. It's just amazing. Yeah, I think they needed, yeah, they needed someone to inhabit the character, which he does, and doing the the uh, motion capture because the the movements look so fluid, and just you know that's hard to animate correctly. And they just just really just kept the animation for stuff he couldn't do, like climbing down the rock, mm. and to do the face because um, you know, sort of facial mapping wasn't advanced enough then for him to actually use his face. Although this actually jump-started to the point that it became something along the lines of uh, uh, Beowulf or um, Image Movers Digital or Uncharted. Andy Serkis was kind of behind this movement. Uh, You know, he has been one of the figureheads of it and actually really understands performance capture now, along with this uh, with Weta, this side of Weta Digital more than anyone else in the world. It all started here. But none of that is to take away from the fact that the animation on Gollum is absolutely outstanding. Oh I mean, God. you talk about yeah. Gollum having, a, you know, appearing to have a soul. Yes, a lot of that comes down to to Andy Serkis's movement, but ultimately, all the facial stuff was animated. And what um, I think uh, Jackson said this himself in in some of the extra features that you you look at Gollum and he is putting across emotion. And when you look at a person and you think you can see emotion in their eyes, you're not... I mean, all you'd be able to see if you could actually look through their eyes would be their optical nerve and their brain. That doesn't tell you anything about the emotion. What you're you're perceiving is all of those tiny little movements around their eyes. It's what shape their forehead creases into and all of that little subtle body language that you don't even think about that you're picking up. And the animators got that into this... Um, this digital creation they managed to get all of those subtleties across and the 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 expressions and the performance and of course because they had circus as a reference they were able to create that in a way that really really got that through and it's amazing to watch it really is that that an animated character can make you cry that way outside of an animated film of course it's the fact that he's an animated character surrounded by live-action characters. You'd think usually that would be enough to put most people in a critical frame of mind where they're watching his every movement and, and going, right, that doesn't look right, that doesn't look right. But you get swept up in the performance of Gollum. Most of the emotion in traditional animation comes through exaggeration. Yeah. This is emotion that comes through subtlety. Yeah. Yeah, they sort of start. They sort of picked the one of the hardest characters to do it perf- perfectly with. But Gollum is such a complex character, and there's so much they had to do. Because I mean, the, the previous animated versions of him are awful. Um, you've either got Gollum, uh, you've got Frogman or Skeleton. <laughs> yeah, and that that just it, that's not what Gollum is. You have to have he is 
He's a hobbit, a ho- an extremely a ho- old hobbit. Uh, old and corrupt, you know, sort of morally Emaciated and uh, yeah, insane, and out of his mind. I, th- I think they, they sort of picked the, the hardest sort of character to animate and they did it so well. But uh, it, because there's so much to the character, yeah. that gave them so much fuel to be able to go, right, now what do you think? And the, show it, this was the bit that grabbed Lyra because we were saying, right, okay, see if you can get this into your head here. As a four-year-old, on one side, he's Smeagol, ultimately at heart, a nice person. And on the other side, Gollum, a bully and a fragment of his mind that has become obsessed with the ring enough to actually become a whole dominant side of his personality. It's two people in one body. Andy Serkis has said in interviews that he was inspired by heroin addicts when portraying this character physically. Mm -hmm. And... I and I personally feel, regardless of what the subtext is in the book, in this film, Gollum is a metaphor for heroin addiction, mm. and the relationship. Or it's has, applicable to heroin yeah. addiction. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it the the parallels are you know very obvious, and I, and the relationship he has with Frodo is very similar to the uh, sponsor. A relationship you find in rehab where it feels like um, Frodo's trying to help him through because, and he says this in the film, I have to believe that Gollum can come back because what if I can't, you know? Yeah. It, they're yeah. both going through this very similar experience. Obviously Gollum is way more far gone than Frodo is, but Frodo can relate to him because he knows this could happen to him. And this is something Sam doesn't want to grasp. He, it's, it's quite frustrating the way that Sam actually keeps pushing Frodo's uh, uh, idea on this down and rejecting the idea that uh, Frodo can be anything like Gollum. But if he'd met Frodo at the beginning with, I actually understand this, then there would have been a lot less clashing, obviously a lot less drama. But Sam is a very simple person and has a very, very good, strong heart. And he literally refuses to see the connection between them. Let's just tie him up and leave him. No! That would kill us. Kill us! It's no more than you deserve. Maybe he does deserve to die. But now that I see him, I do pity him. We swear to you what you want. We swear. There's no promise you can make that I can trust. We swear to serve the master of the precious. We will swear on the precious. Alan, Alan. The ring is treacherous. It will hold you to your word. Yes. On the precious. On the precious. I don't believe you! Get down! Sam, down! Sam! He's trying to trick us! If we let him go, he'll throttle us in our sleep!
know the way to Mordor. You've been there before. You will lead us to the Black Gate. for his promises. The scene in the Dead Marshes uh, with the... Uh, when Frodo goes uh, under the water and, and uh, those ghosts come up to, um, uh, to, to grab at him, absolutely nightmarish. That whole scenario is the sort of thing that, that, that would feature in, 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 the, in the worst of dreams. And the imagery there is, it's, uh, well, to kind of phrase, haunting. Without a doubt, deriving from Tolkien's own nightmares, having witnessed his now lifeless brothers in arms submerged in the flooded battlefields of World War One. Sort of the closest thing to, to a metaphor that you can get in these, in these books or films. That's something that he might have applied metaphorically without even realising that he was doing it as well, because, yeah. I mean, that's something that... Stephen King swears blind that seeing his best friend get hit by a train and killed when he was six years old has no impact on the way he writes, and I I call him out on that one. Oh yeah, you can't stop your life experiences um, affecting your creative work, whether you want it to or not. So especially a story he started writing in the the trenches at that at that time. One of the better changes the film makes over the books is that they replaced. Um, they decided that Gollum would save Frodo from the marshes and not Sam. Yeah. And because we already know Sam's there for Frodo whenever he needs, uh, needs him. So they needed to establish that there's some hope for Gollum. They needed to establish that Gollum could possibly get through this and come out the other end a good person. That his better nature would actually overcome the, uh, the the overriding desperation to just get the ring. Yeah. That there's already the conflict is working on him at this point. He is compelled to do something good. And uh, actually, this is just before the um, scene where Frodo calls him Smeagol. That while Frodo confronts him with it, it's a seed that's been planted already. So I mean, for no other reason, he's actually been around good people for the first time in. Five centuries. centuries, yeah. Because who did he have before this? He was tortured in Barad-dûr, and before that he was in the Misty Mountains surrounded by goblins. That's it. 
and before that he murdered his best friend. These are the nicest people he's actually, apart from Bilbo, briefly, that he's met and actually is then compelled to be around. Their inherent stand-uppedness does start to rub off on him. The scene where I really started to feel for Gollum is during the Dead Marshes, and I think this was cut out of the theatrical version. Once it takes where, hold of you, it never lets go. Yeah. 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 Always moves me every time I see that scene. Yeah, the, the, it just starts that the way he, sit, he sort of sits down dejectedly, just looks so... It's like just, aw. It's an aw scene. You f- you finally get what Gandalf meant by yeah. you'll pity him rather than hate him. Like you don't feel like Gollum's a bad person. You just feel like he's a character who's trapped. Yeah, who's had the worst worst existence as well, and is buried in it. It all adds to the um, the, the childlike impression that you get of him as well. I mean, he's he's the same size as the hobbits. He you know he comes from the same stock, and he's basically like a beaten child, like somebody who's had no foundation of caring and love and support to, to give him any reason to think that he's worth anything at all. And I don't think that it, it would take a very hard person to not feel any sympathy for that at all. What is it? Is that toastal? <laughs> it tries to choke us! We can't eat hobbit food! We must starve! Well, starve then. Good riddance. Ringwades are scary. They turn up here. I didn't really mention it last week. I think I just said the whole the spectre of death. There's something very powerful about the fact that we never really see them. There's a disconnect between them in Wraith World, uh, with, where they're sort of the, the white kings, uh, and what we see them in the their blackness. When we look into their hoods, and it's just absolute void our minds can conjure up far more terrifying faces than Jackson could ever do. With all of Weta Workshop working round the clock, they could never come up with something as horrifying as what we can imagine. That, that's what the word wraith means, though. It means something with shape but no substance. Yeah. Um, which I find terrifying. <laughs> Just this, you know, completely empty being. It has, there's nothing to it. It's just, yeah. it's just, they're just, they simply are an extension of Sauron's will. Yeah, I've got a bit of a strange analogy that this, the, the ring race are the agents from the Matrix. Yeah. That you can't fight them, that your only 
recourse is to hide or run away and that's that's you know because they're, they're just these impre- supremely powerful beings that there's nothing you can do and that makes them so scary <laughs> elves have emptied entire quivers at them and hit nothing but air <laughs> this time I'm be... on the other side <laughs> sorry <laughs> the most <laughs> carry on Lieutenants, you are given specific (laughs) orders. I know how he works, Josh. Believe me, I'm just waiting for him to get it out of his system. It's out, it's gone. Enjoy. Um, No, I was just going to say that the the most frightening term um, referring to sort of a demon or anything like that that I have ever heard is the faceless one. Oh. Um, And I think that's one of the, the things that when we were doing um, Legend of Ang, the most frightening thing in that entire series for me you is Ko. You mean Ko the face stealer, yeah? That I've, well, I've heard faceless ones or faceless one used in, in other mythologies, but the idea of something that effectively taking the face away takes the personality away and therefore removes the soul from whatever it is that you're looking at. So they are they are creatures that have had everything that is essentially them stripped away and they are entirely vessels for Sauron to use in whatever manner he sees fit there's something very Terminator like about them as well they don't run ever I mean they, they gallop on the horses but when they get off they I mean it, he even moves very very slowly and deliberately almost in slow motion in um, fellowship It's it, it emphasises the fact that they will not stop. They don't need to run fast. They just need to keep going. And there is no sense that they will ever, ever turn back or that they can be turned back. It's every dark shadow that you've ever jumped at as well. Also, the fact that it has no eyes, and that's again where Bakshi completely screwed up. Having no eyes means you don't know where it's, it's looking and it could be looking straight at you. And it could it could be seeing you or looking straight through you, and so you don't have that sense of that it's even that a that it's a living thing that has eyes and thus requires eyes, and it doesn't appear to require anything. That's another thing which makes you feel like it just doesn't have any weaknesses apart from fire. Um, yeah. But b that it doesn't have that thing that would connect it to the rest of the world. There's a sense that you can't reason with them. Yeah. Like with the orcs, at least you can get them in a situation where they're afraid of you and they'll run away in cowardice. They but speak the, English. They can yeah. be, you know, intimidated. They eat. Yeah. They get yeah. tired. Where it's where with the the Nazgul, it's like they're just this machine that is coming towards you and it will kill you if you do not get out of the way. Mm. There is no talking it down. There is just move or die. Also, it's not even like that they will they will kill you. There's there's less of a sense that they're just going to find you and kill you. Like like I mean, they're based quite obviously if you've seen the Frighteners on uh, the Soul Collector, which is effectively a flying Grim Reaper. But there's a sense that they don't need to kill you either. That they could just snatch you away or, or take the ring or kill everyone around you. It, it's, there is a nebulous sense of their ultimate purpose 
which makes them more scary. If it was like, they are going to find you, they are going to stab you, that makes it kind of, well, you know what, I can just, I can work my way around that. But if it's a sense of that they will just pursue you until they get what they need, whatever that may be, that again, it's, it's all about the unknown with ring waves. Yeah, I think the, the fire, you know, them being afraid to fire is the, the important part. So basically the personification of the dark. So I mean, obviously, you know, Light banishes dark, uh, you know. Fire banishes his ring race. I think. Yeah, I never thought and, of that. And you know, every, you know, every race in history, every creature effectively has a fear of the dark, just because it's unseen, unknown, and anything could be out there. Yeah. One thing, um, fell beasts. I always took when I was reading the book as fell in this context, meaning of an inhumanly cruel nature, fierce, capable of destroying, lethal, dire, sinister, sharp, and biting. And uh, beasts, meaning that they were horrible beasts. But they appear to have taken it very literally and gone, no, 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 they're fell beasts. They're a very specific flying lizard thing. Yeah. I I, I like this. I, I like there was a bit in the extended edition where one of the uh, wetter design people had an argument, a zoological argument with that, uh, John Howe. With John Howe, yeah, because Howe yeah, was over drawing the... spikes on it. Yeah. <laughs> Like it's like that. it doesn't make sense, and yet John Howe <laughs> will be very persnickety about the exact movements of armour. And bows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I liked the fact that this, this mature uh, man with his realistic artist's eyes, ultimate closing argument was, shut up, it looks cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm John flipping Howe! <laughs> so we get to the Black Gate, and uh, Sam's plan is to just charge in there at the front... Maybe, I mean, like, I, I think the best bet we worked out uh, in the kitchen today with um, a, a blanket would be to hide <laughs> under it and Scooby-Doo style go, do-do-do-do-do-do-do, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And then every time an orc looks at you, you just go, down, I'm a rock. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> and yet when Gollum says, no, 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 wait, there's a back door, Sam actively opposes him and says, no, he's a villain. This is the best way. That's crazy. That's a time when Sam is dead wrong. Well, it's because it does sound very suspicious. It does. Especially suspicious. (laughs) Why didn't you tell us before? Because Master did not ask. Yeah, I I know. I I, I have no idea what Sam's plan was. Mm. Um, Get, I think, get shots was (laughs) the plan. Well, I mean, run as close to the gate as you can. (laughs) Hurl the ring over the top and hope for the best. Their their best plan, really, would actually be to uh, wait for a bunch of orcs to uh, to to come their way, uh, see if they can pick off two stragglers, dress up as orcs, which they do later on, and then just sort of sneak in that way. That would literally have been their best bet at this point. Probably would have worked. I mean, they probably could have got right up to the gate at at night if they'd been like taking the whole night crawling and then just wait until the gates opened again, but. It would be, I mean, the second they get through the gates, they don't know that there's not 7,000 orcs standing directly behind it, all looking at yeah, the gates. Yeah. It's just, it, there's too many variables, it's too dangerous, everything could be wrecked at this point. Sam is not thinking with his head. Even though Gollum seems like an untrustworthy villain, this is suicide. Yeah. I know saying some, saying that there isn't enough of something isn't really a complaint because it's, you know, it's a compliment really, but I wish there were more of the Easterlings in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Chaps with the Up Shadow. <laughs> I just, I liked that. This the is armor? really shallow. The armor just looks really cool. It does. <laughs> yeah, you see, you see about three of them at the Battle of uh, uh, Minas Tirith, but that's yeah. it. 
No, no, yeah, I agree. Uh, they, they're, they're yeah, kind of cool. It's it also it's a whole culture of Middle Earth that is marginalised. They're like they're there. I I think they were trying to get away from the uh, slightly racist undertones. Yeah, considering uh, that, that, that in America at this point, Middle Easterns were not especially beloved. Yes, yeah, pro- you get the, the the only evil humans are the Eastlings and Haradrim, and they are all dark skinned. Is is. Yeah, not it's... something they want to play off in the films. Um, but that, so let's focus on is... orcs instead, shall we? Yeah, I have a point about that, but we're not up to And the giant yet, scary elephants. Uh, you notice that around this stage that Frodo's really starting to feel the pull of the ring. He's He's been doing and keeping roughly con- uh, on, on a par with how he was in Fellowship of the Ring in terms of... Um, occasionally zoning out and, and playing with the ring but now he's really starting to stroke it and the ring is singing to him and it's starting to get to the stage where he is slowly being consumed by it and it's extremely effective having Gollum there to show what lies at the end of that road so you can actually see the gradual decline and ramping up the tension and arguing with him and Sam is very important to the development of the film because again in the book um, Frodo and Sam are best buddies and until round about the time they get out of Kirith Ongol and put on the orc costumes at that point Frodo really starts to go to pieces and, it, and from that point onwards it's really Sam's quest and he's carrying Frodo uh, but here it's we, we don't want to see them argue and it's heartbreaking to see them do it but it also really emphasises what Frodo's going through at this point from an early stage. Or at least a middling stage. There was, in fact, a moment um, that they removed from the uh, finished film that uh, actually involves Faramir later on, where after he says, Chance for Faramir, Captain of Gondor, to show his quality, and Frodo says, No! and reels away from him. In the corner is a cowering... Frodo Gollum hybrid creature who snarls at Faramir and the captain of Gondor begins to realise what an incredibly negative powerful infernal device this thing is and it sows the seed for later on him realising that this thing absolutely cannot be used as a weapon I, I am glad that they did decide to cut that scene out though in it the is end. a bit too rubbing it in your face yeah yeah and ultimately, that information is conveyed perfectly clearly just sure. by the dialogue that they have anyway. So it, it's, yeah, I get it what they were trying to Frodo's do. It Frodo's descent a bit too steep. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. at this point, it is slow, gradual decline. And if we, if we jump straight to that point, then it's like we've gone to 11 straight away and we've seen what Frodo could become. So ultimately, just him snarling and, and saying, no, at uh, Faramir is all that they need. And when they're in Athelion, we get the standout moment for Gollum, I think. I think if people try and look back on, on real moments for Gollum, this is the one. Smeagol and Gollum fight. Yeah. This is the scene that cemented Gollum as my favourite character in the trilogy. Yeah. And it's Andy Serkis's performance again, and the animation. This is where it's at its best. Mm. And I think uh, watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, they were saying they pretty much copied Andy Circus note for note. They made almost no changes. Um, and the because sk- watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, you see Andy Circus switch between the two characters, and it's instantaneous. Mm. Like, there's no... Um, 
cut where they, okay, right, now do the Smeagol bits and, okay, now do the Gollum bits. He does it all in one go. That's an amazing feat of acting there. He had two cameras and he was pointing his face into one and then his face into the other. And it was, it was just that running all the way through. It was, it's like a, it's effectively a soliloquy with two people. And, and the way that scene is filmed as well, um, having those two cameras, it really emphasizes the fact that there are two people in that person. And their facial features are different as well. They actually, yeah. they look like two different characters, which sells that even more. Lyra got it. She understood. She actually, she tapped the left side of her head and said Smeagol, and the right side of her head and said Gollum. So if you can explain that to a four-year-old, then you're doing the right thing. I don't know if you noticed, but one of the fundamental physical differences between them is um, Smeagol's pupils are more dilated. Yeah. Mm. And Smeagol's um, face is narrower. He's more upward-looking, and his jaw is, is lower, less gritted, more expressive. Gollum is this sort of warped, bubble-headed creature with bug eyes, gnashing, savage teeth. Folks have heard my Gollum voice several times before. To do it right, you can't just do the Gollum voice like this. You have to hunch your shoulders and become that character. You have to feel his mouth and teeth. You have to get the claws of his hands together and, and feel the frustration and the knotting and unknotting of muscles and, and the pressure pushing down on this character and the conflict and the Smeagol, it's it's like you have to tilt your body downwards and look upwards a little bit and, and, and clench your stomach like this. But that's that's why whenever I hear someone doing a Gollum impression, just doing it with their mouth, it's not the same thing at all. Whenever I, I see someone who's actually able to do it, it's like, well, respect at that point. Yeah, that's that's why they picked Andy Circus to begin with, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Peter Jackson was so impressed by all the effort he put into the voice he sort of, cre- sort of created the character just by himself, just yeah. by doing the voice, he thought how does this character react and what sort of facial movements do I have to do to create this voice and he Oop. basically Andy Circus made Gollum how he is he was actually hurting himself to put on that voice yep. as well. They had uh, in the behind the scenes documentaries, they were talking about his Gollum juice, which was like a combination of. Honey <laughs> it sounds and really and obscene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, he needed that so he could keep doing the, the voice because it was tearing up his vocal cords having to do that every day. Yeah. It's it's not a pleasant place to be if you're actually going to go into the Gollum mindset. It's it's actually quite traumatizing to to go through that. Listening. I'm not listening. You're a liar. I'm a thief. Nope. 
get away. Go away! <laughs> I hate you. He's coming back and doing more. I'm incredibly excited to see what he'll do and, and the places they'll go with it because we only get that one scene in the original Hobbit book and I know there's going to be more. I really want to know if they're going to try and do, um, or the, you know, they've looked into, this is probably for the extra stuff, looked into doing the actual facial mapping this time. Yeah, now that, like now that the technology's advanced, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, they said that obviously they, they based the finished design on him and he said it looked like his dad and his new across his dad and his new newborn baby yeah he was a bit freaked out <laughs> but so possibly so yeah i i hope they will have will have least looked into that doing that to give him more of a you know sort of physical presence on the screen because I, uh, I have to imagine they they have done yeah. that because that technology has advanced so much since the lord of the rings that i think Gollum. I, I think it's a safe bet to say that Gollum is going to look amazing in The Hobbit. Well, if they don't use that, yeah. then it's actually going to be a lower tech than Bohan, played by Exercus himself in Heavenly Sword, where they did use facial mapping. Mm. So, yeah, I, I completely... The the thing that they'll have to do is match it, because if he's way too expressive and completely... You'll be, you won't be able to tie that up with the character. It'll, it, they have to rein mm. it in and, and, and marry it together. It's important, look, again, to note, and this is not bashing Tolkien so much as pointing out how they managed to develop the fascinating character that Tolkien wrote down. This scene isn't in the book. When Andy Serkis first uh, heard, you know, that this role is up, is up for grabs, he was like, oh, this sounds rubbish. And he read through the book and realized it, he's the best character in the book as written. The, the, the complexities of this guy. So um, I, I don't know where. I have no idea of the kind of people that inspired Tolkien to actually write this character. But it's uncanny. Speaking of which, Uncanny Valley is uh, why, possibly, uh, Gollum freaked out Lyra so much. Because he looks like a real person, but your brain tells you something's off. He's too thin. He's too deformed. And his voice doing that, it just... Your brain sends off alarm bells for the first few minutes of watching him on screen. And you're just like, what is this old man? And... Eventually, you just learn to accept him. I think the design of Gollum 
and how that links in with how Tolkien describes him in the book, he's actually one of the best examples of the success of what uh, this idea that Tolkien was trying to create uh, a mythology for, whether it was for England or whether it was for the British Isles as a whole, which I, I you know, you know my opinion on where he stood on that. Um, but um, I think the the way that the design for Gollum and, and a lot of the other sort of backdrops in the um, the film kept, comes through is that this is what what you see in the films is not just the product of the period of time that the films were being made. There were people who brought work to this that they had been doing for decades beforehand. That they had, you know, that they'd formulated these ideas since they first read the books as kids. The um, I think when they were talking about the, the behind-the-scenes stuff with the design of, of Gollum, most of the people within the workshop had some kind of input, but there was one guy who sort of brought those designs together and had the, the main say in, in the direction that Gollum went. And a lot of what he worked on was sketches of Gollum that he'd done years before, that this this book had seeped into his consciousness so much um, that he was able to bring all of that to it. And more to the point, it married up with other people's ideas so well that it, it instantly almost came together to create something that everybody immediately recognised as Gollum. Yes, that's the Gollum that I imagined too. Yeah. And I think that from that perspective, it may not have been for a geographical collection of people that this mythology worked, but I would say that from uh, in terms of the, the demographic of people who love Lord of the Rings, Tolkien succeeded completely in creating a mythology for them. It, that's that's in the collective consciousness of those people now. And it is then passed on to everyone who saw these movies, which is immense. The amount of people that, I mean, let, let's just uh, double check how, mu- how much money these films made. A lot of them, of course, will be people going back to see it multiple times. That's how Titanic and Avengers made that much money, and, and Dark Knight. Um, yeah. I think uh, I've watched them about five times each at the cinema. I think, uh, was it five times for all of them, Sharon? And then we went back when they were, they were showing Fellowship again, weren't they? It was at least five times each, so. Yeah, we did, we, we went many, many times. Uh, bear in mind that by the time Two Towers was out, we were living right next to a Cineworld, so we actually. And had Cineworld cards. And had Cineworld well. cards, so we could effectively. We, had just, we could go see it every day if we wanted to. <laughs> that was a good time. <laughs> Didn't it get to the point where when we were moving, one of our first criteria was how close is it to a Cineworld? <laughs> <laughs> okay, worldwide, 2.9 billion. Whoa. And that was on a budget of $281 million for the entire trilogy, plus astronomical advertising costs. But still, one of the most profitable film series of all time. Now, we can't extrapolate from that how many people went to see it, but a lot would appear to be the number. Uh, so that has now been passed on, and to everyone who that now in the future has difficulty reading the books, which is going to be a relatively high percentage of people picking it up for the first time and going, geez, they've got the films now. This mythology is not going to die. It's not going anywhere. This won't be relegated to the 20th century without the uh, without these triumphant films. It's possible this book could have faded away and been relegated as... If the films had sucked... 
if the films had just been disappointing, like The Golden Compass, it's quite possible that his dark materials in the future will actually subside substantially in readership because they don't have a movie series that gets people going, these are brilliant, I want to read the books as well. Yeah, I, I, I think The Lord of the Rings are a bigger cultural phenomenon than his dark materials were. So Yeah, significantly. I, I know, I know the point you're trying to make. But basically, if the films had been all right or rubbish, then it could have been decades before they attempted remaking them again. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Alice in Wonderland, and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader all spring to mind. Yeah, it's... In the meantime, a lot of people getting cheesed off with the book. Or it could simply become dated, overcopied, and culturally irrelevant, like Orwell's 1984, which has been perverted by reality TV and now reads like a parody of every other evil fascist government in the future story. It also was a trailblazer for cinematic fantasy. Everything was following suit after this. There was there were series that were started on the strength of this. Where like you know the uh, the Dark is Rising came out of nowhere and was rubbish and then sank without trace. So now no one's reading those books anymore. That's a perfect example, actually. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> it's uh, was it the secret, and that's yeah. why. Yeah, <laughs> if, if that if that film had been fantastic and had had multiple sequels, those books would be celebrated now. But they're not. Mm. Harry Potter, because the films were so great and because the books came out at the same time, was a phenomenon which kind of went hand in hand with Lord of the Rings because they came out almost exactly the same time. I mean, so many others seem to just be following suits. The Golden Compass was a literal attempt from New Line Cinema to go, right, let's have another one of those. The Narnia films. The Narnia films. And again, stalled when the studios became gutless. They needed a unified production team who really took joy in and knew what they were doing with strong leadership on multiple fronts as well. It couldn't just be one director or one person pushing this forward. There had to be multiple production heads to really push this forward in a way that only really the Harry Potter series have really been able to match over the past decade. I was going to bring this up, but I might as well bring it up now because you've mentioned it. Right. The, the thing is, I, ne- I don't really see these films as Peter Jackson's a trilogy. No, it's because, a disservice to everyone else involved. Yeah, so so much of this is a, cl- a collaborative effort. Yeah. Uh, Peter Jackson, for me, watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, seems like he was guiding it in the right direction, but everyone had a creative input mm. in this project. Yeah, especially, I mean, the amount of units, filming units they had, he obviously couldn't be everywhere, so they had, like, six units that he wasn't in charge of. They all did stuff that was thematically consistent. Ultimately, um, he's the guy who gives, you know, the yeah. okay on decisions, but he's not in control of everything. So everyone managed to inject their personality into no, it. Yet. There were loads of bits that he kept, he was supposed to be doing himself and he kept forgetting yeah. or like not having the time to do it. So someone else actually had to deal with it. Yeah. And it still yeah. came out all feeling like, like part of the same thing. But again, I think that reinforces this idea that the, the mythology has been successfully created and it's permeated the minds of everybody involved sufficiently that they were all working with one vision. Yeah, and I think sort of specifically the sort of modelers, because they worked for about, what, five years on this one production and quite a lot of their, their first ideas of things that have gone into the thing, like the also like Treebeard was basically drawn, was created by one person. Was it Dan Faulkner? Uh, I think so, yeah. I, have his I mean, even, even Alan Lee and John Howe did, had not 
drawn Treebeard because they, they didn't really know how to draw it. When he was reading the books, the character clicked with him so much and he just drew what he thought and that, and that that's, was perfect. That's a rarity as well. The idea, because they were adapting these books that have been around for ages, these characters have been wandering around in the heads of the creators for often decades, and it was finally yeah. just like putting them onto paper seemed natural. And then being able to render that into real life, it's it, it's the the way they were able to to tap into the collective unconscious uh, viewpoint on these books is because they all had these very strong ideas of what these characters would be like. I think that's one reason why the um, the, the Golden Compass didn't quite work because it hadn't had that time to yeah. ferment in people's minds. Um, the I mean, Narnia had a, a, a got close because again they've been around for decades and and many many people already had their ideas of what those environments looked like i actually think the line the witch in the wardrobe is triumphant as well it's wonderful adaptation and especially for lordlings they had people who sort of did so much extra work just i mean those two two people who made every single suit of chain mail oh, just sat and there that, for three years threading plastic rings yeah, together yeah enough that they wore down their fingerprints that's yeah. that's a ridiculous amount of dedication that you probably wouldn't you would not get on the majority of films just because they love the the world and basically what they were doing with the film the way the film was progressing they thought yes I'm going to do this for three years and it was actually a cunning ruse on their part so that they could pursue a life of crime without any repercussions (laughs) (laughs) Um, let's just finish up because uh, we are going to talk very very briefly about the introduction of Faramir and then we will get out of here and come back tomorrow for the second part Um, we get to see the uh, these Southrons, the uh, the guys leading this. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah Haradrim. After Gollum insults Sam's cooking, which I, Sharon said that that rabbit stew looked absolutely delicious today. Yeah, was, I can't it does. Really it's gorgeous. I read on the website that re- they're really annoyed that Sam never got to eat it. Yeah. It's almost, uh, Sharon mentioned that Gollum would actually have quite a soft spot for Eowyn's cooking because it appears to be raw (laughs) and wriggling. Um, It's it's a wonderful little bit of, that is one of the very rare amusing bits of interplay between Gollum and Sam because at that point, Gollum isn't threatening Sam. He's just insulting him and Sam's insulting him back. It's a nice little bit of ball busting and we get very little of that because from then on it's it's back to them being mortal enemies again. Yeah. Although Gollum keeps his under wraps. And it, but it, that really comes to a head in Return of the King. So this is just this is the high point. The point where Gollum is chasing the the point where Smeagol is chasing the fish down the river, which by the way in filming was absolutely freezing and yeah, and, and he almost and went over the edge. Yeah. And, and turns around and smiles. That's Smeagol's highest point because he can see a future for himself helping Frodo. And that's the best part of the film for him, because he's got a fish and he's got friends. Yeah. And it's all about to go time. horribly wrong. Yeah, it's the first time in years that Gollum is not pestering him and he's, he's yeah. actually being, being able to be Smeagol again just because 
Frodo's made him, effectively. Yeah, but at that point, Sam and Frodo are starting to clash, and it's, it's yeah. the beginnings of uh, of a, a downward spiral again. And um, so, yeah, the Oliphants go mental, and this is kind of this was in the book. The actual, it's an Oliphant, sir. He was definitely showing us the Muma kill early, and then when Faramir in the extended edition gives a little existential lecture to Frodo and Sam on war and the nature of war and what it does to to people. You're bound to an errand of secrecy. Those that claim to oppose the enemy would do well not to hinder us. The enemy? His sense of duty was no less than yours, Adim. You wonder what his name is. Where he came from. If he was really evil at heart, what lies or threats led him on this long march from home? He would not rather have stayed there. In peace. War will make corpses of us all. Find their hands. You know, you're talking about the whole sort of uh, uh, paranoia of Middle Easterns. Well, he's talking about the South one that he's just shot in war. Almost everyone on that field doesn't want to be there, especially if they've been there for a long while. Yeah, I really like this thing because it, it highlights my annoyance with 90% of war films. Yeah. Um, is that war films, especially American ones, um, paints the enemy as they're all evil. Yeah. And that is so Usually completely wrong. Usually they're British too. Well, yeah, but I mean, especially, I mean, they usually equate it to World, World War Two, where like, yeah, the Nazis were evil, the SS were evil, normal German soldiers did not have a choice. So, calling them evil and... Painting them, them all with the evil brush and making them yeah, caricatures. It's, it's A, simplistic and B, you know, it's not helpful in a, if you're trying to paint your, your soldiers as people and then you're, mm. you're having them fight, you know, evil blobs effectively. You know, yeah. it's just that, that doesn't, create any tension or sense of war it's just like oh they've got to win because they're the good guys and it just ruins the ruins a, a film but the way tolkien writes his orcs are blacker than black there is nothing good about them there is no sense that i mean there's a sense that they're being slave driven and, and and bullied into this but no one ever says maybe we should liberate the orcs i think the orcs if they were left alone wouldn't necessarily harm other people they might actually um, end up being more like orcs in warcraft and being sort of a proud angry aggressive yeah. race but not driven for conquest as they yeah, are in, I mean, in this they're used as I mean, especially I mean, saruman yeah just uses them as tools they're just the the, the foresight bred to kill people and yeah. don't care about about them so i think i, I think they serve a narrative purpose of having an enemy yeah but I like in this film they they sort of humanise the human enemies and say like they're just like us and war is effectively futile. Only at this bit, most of the rest of the time, oh. we're not really thinking about it much. But it's it's a nice little yeah. bit from Faramir to show that he thinks more than the average soldier, as depicted in films where they're trying to show everyone as being very black or very white. Personally, I dislike immensely the use of the term evil when it's used to apply to people. I think people can do evil things, but to call a person evil, to me, is lazy or, at the very best, shows a lack of empathy because you're 
you're disregarding the notion that that person has motives just the same as you do. You don't know what they are. You don't know what's driving that person. And if you can't be bothered to figure that out, then it's easier to just write them off as evil. In something, in a film like this, or in films like these rather, it's the fact that it's fantasy just about lets you get away with that. But there are little seeds of turning that around which is what really makes these impressive for me and then the really annoying thing about this extended edition disc one is unlike the fellowship of the ring which has a definite act break at the close of the council of elrond uh, the two towers just seems to stop mid-sentence Welcome back to the Digital Gonzo Lord of the Rings movie specials. Tonight, we're talking about the second half of The Two Towers. Once again, my guesting co-hosts are Chris Eason of Gameburst. West through hell. West through hell. Sharon Shaw of Dorkcast. Good evening. Good evening. And Joshua Gowarty of Canem Ritz. Hello there. Hello there. In the 2004 76th Academy Awards ceremony, Return of the King was nominated for 11 awards and won how many folks? All of them. All of them, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Original Song, Best Original Score, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Editing, Best Sound Mixing, but not Sound Editing for some reason, and Makeup. This was as it should be, considering the quality of the production, even though it did make for yet another year's worth of awards predictably dominated by a single film. However, this seems to be some kind of organised two years delayed awardgasm on the part of the Academy, who were annoyed that this production took place in New Zealand, thus stimulating its film industry and indeed the entire country, whilst robbing American filmmaking crews of work. They took our jib! They took our jibs! In 2001, at the 74th Awards, despite being one of the greatest films ever made, The Fellowship of the Ring lost Best Picture, Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay to A Beautiful Mind, which by all accounts was rubbish. Best Supporting Actor to Iris, Best Original Song to Monsters, Inc. If I were a rich man With a million or two I'd live in a penthouse In a room Best editing and sound mixing to Black Hawk Down and best costumes and art direction to Moulin Rouge, only netting visual effects, cinematography, makeup and original score. A year later in 2002 at the 75th Awards for Two Towers lost best picture, editing, sound mixing and art direction to Chicago. (laughs) Which I like. I mean, I do like Chicago, but it's not the Two Towers wasn't even nominated for Best Director, although convicted child rapist Roman Polanski did win that one. Or Best Adapted Screenplay. It only won visual effects and sound editing. My disgust with the Academy should be well known to you all by now, but to reward only Return of the King on behalf of the entire trilogy, despite unanimous critical and box office acclaim across the board, without some kind of formal notification, is both deeply patronising and dismissive to the insane amounts of hard work in the first two films, a great disservice to the other movies of 2003 that might have actually deserved an award, not to mention the other nominees of the six token awards they received for The Fellowship and Two Towers. 
When viewed in retrospect, this depicts the Academy as a corrupt grooming station positioned to only champion films about mental illness, family dysfunction, Nazis, biopics of dead people, and whatever else Tom Hanks, Sean Penn, and Clint Eastwood trot out in any given year. 1997, remember the year that uh, LA Confidential came out? Yeah. Titanic, 11 awards across the board, best everything. Though a film whose key emphasis was that Los Angeles was built upon lies and blood was never going to get the clean sweep at the Academy. <laughs> I mean, it, it was... I could understand Titanic getting some awards, but come on. Best screenplay. I don't think it got best screenplay. I think that actually was uh, LA Confidential, but at least best adapted. Oh, thank God. But, but uh, it, no, it didn't get best original screenplay. That would be ridiculous. It got everything else, though. Maybe not best actors, although I believe Kate Winslet was nominated for best actress. <laughs> I think that was the year that they nominated four British actresses for, yeah. uh, for best actress, and the Yank got it. Kate Winslet for Titanic, Julie Christie for Afterglow, Helen of Arnold Carter for Wings of the Dove, Judy Dench for Mrs. Brown, and Helen Hunt won for As Good As It Gets, which again I like and was a fantastic performance. But come on! It helps if you're a dame as well. I mean, I've got a giant list of various years between 1990 and 2004 where one main film got huge chunks of the awards, but the Titanic one really stuck out for me because, I mean, I, I like Titanic, but Jesus. <laughs> so same as we did uh, last time, uh, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, who get the lion's share of the story this time because there's a huge amount of Helm's Deep here, uh, followed by a very brief moment of Merry and Pippin because it's really just the Entmoot and the sacking of Isengard. Uh, and then we'll finish on Frodo, Sam and Gollum. So uh, let's start off. If you remember, this was just at the point of the leave-taking when they're leaving Meduseld on their way to... Is it, Chris, you might be able to qualify this one. Is the valley named Helm's Deep and the the actual fortress that they hold up in actually just called the Hornburg? Uh, I think so, yeah. I believe that was the case, yeah. And so while they're trotting along... First off, you get the Eowyn and Aragorn bit where she sort of starts to talk to him and, you know, trying trying to get to know this exotic new warrior who's just sort of um, come into uh, her life. And this is an interesting one because in the book, you never get to meet Arwen at all. But in the film, they're actually fleshing out a character who really didn't have much interaction anyway. So basically, both the female characters are given far more screen time and presence. And they are directly put in opposition of one another, effectively, uh, in, for, for Aragorn's affections. There's, he has every inclination to let Arwen go into the West, which is just about to come up, and to actually become involved with Eowyn. Because this would seem to be, if he wants to be a king of man, there's, there's worse ways he can go than actually forging a union with uh, Rohan. So, I mean, what, what do you guys think of Eowyn and Aragorn? I It never crossed my mind that Aragorn was interested in Eowyn. I, it wasn't so much a love triangle as Arwen and Aragorn are a couple and Eowyn was kind of just on the outside, kind of secretly hoping that Aragorn might pay attention to her. It... I think Aragorn has pretty much made up his mind at this point that he's in love with Arwen, so... But he has yeah. so sent Arwen off into the West and said, this is never going to happen. Goodbye. So he can see her obvious affections to him, and, and it certainly would be a good idea. It comes later, but I would say the point at which he accepts the cup from her in Return of the King. Yeah. 
is quite a significant point because that that the, the the formality of that gesture obviously means something. Like, for example, having a wreath of flowers placed on your head and then a dance. Um, but um, are we then decleaved? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, but um, no, I I I think you're right, Josh, in that there's it's not really a triangle because at this point there's there's not much that Aragorn's doing to to really give Eowyn any any hope that he might be interested in her as a wife. But I think he is, he's encouraging her is the wrong word. But what she feels for him, as I said last night, I think stems from the fact that he acknowledges what she wants and and basically gives her um, approval for that. And one thing that struck me when we were watching it this time, actually, is that her, her affections for him, as they develop and as they grow, they seem to be more like the, the, strong feeling that a soldier would feel for their captain. So kind of like what Sam feels for Frodo. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. But the the idea that she wants to it's it's almost like she wants to fight with him. And it's that's Or that's indeed Boromir eventually feels for Aragorn. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a good parallel. Um and because I think it's absolutely essential that they had the intercuts with Arwen because those little flashbacks and those little snippets give you the indication that, that the relationship that Arwen has with Aragorn is completely different because Eowyn sees him as this as the king or the future king and certainly the, the captain of this great battle that her people are going through she looks up to him she has a, it's, it's a crush that she has on him really she yeah. sees him as she idealises him and she sees him as almost perfect Arwen has seen his doubts yeah. She's seen him struggle with what he's going to have to go through. She's seen him at his lowest points. And I think you, because you have that back and forth between the two, I mean, you can see that Eowyn is very lovely. And, and again, in a social context, she would probably be better for him politically. But Arwen knows the man. Arwen seems to have more understanding of him as a person. And so that kind of... I don't think you're left in any doubt who it is you're supposed to think he's meant to be with. Yeah. We'll talk about Faramir later on, I suppose, as it, uh, it transpires. Comes along at just the right time. Uh, so, yeah, immediately afterwards, there's the... Um, who is who was she the one who gave you that jewel? Because no man is going to buy that jewelry for himself. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fairly shrewd of Erwin to feel out that side of the situation. Well, this was a bit of a shock because obviously when you watch, uh, Fellowship, you see, it seems like the, uh, the Arwen Aragorn thing's very, very strong. But then when you see this, it's, it's, it yanks the rock out from under you because you're suddenly party to information you didn't have before of events that have already happened and it's not at all like you assumed. Which is, again, none of this in the book. This is very clever, uh, script writing on the part of, um, Fran and Pippa. Oh, so that's how it's an incredibly intelligent way of adding in sort of basic effectively exposition uh, without it being one long sort of series of conversations so you, you get the point across that Aragorn wants Arwen to go, to go across the water because she'll be safer and see lo- you know he loves her enough that he can live with not having her if she's safe and that that gets across very well Chad? yeah pretty much that um, <laughs> and also I, I would say that this to me 
this works much better in terms of reinforcing their relationship than would have having Arwen at the battle um, and trying to do anything to reinforce their relationship there because at that point I actually think if they'd gone with that part of me would have been thinking girl he's in the middle of a battle will you please stop distracting him he's trying to get on with stuff and it it would actually have, have been more harmful to that bond to put them in that situation because you know I trust them as screenwriters to be able to go to, to have Aragorn say to her look you have to leave I, we can't fight to get side by side I'm constantly watching out for you yeah quite else. possibly so yeah that's what I was about to, to add because you know however much you want to argue well you know women can fight just as well as men yes that's fine but if your partner frankly as a as a woman or a man if your partner is coming under the same kind of fire as you are but 500 yards down the wall where are your thoughts and concerns going to be yeah I would counter that with ancient Greece who had gay couples fighting together and it, it increased unit cohesion oh right but, okay okay it can clearly be made to work um, I don't know if that's the, I don't know if that's a, a, I don't know the tactics enough whether they stayed next to next to each other so that you're not worried you know we you know you've got two people fighting against one person effectively which mm. see that i could see working very well if yeah. you if you were in the same unit and you were literally fighting side by side then i i could see that working but i, I, I all right speaking from my own personal perspective i think if i was fighting in the same battle as alex but he was out of my sight i would be very very worried about what was going him on with him and possibly not focusing on what i was supposed to be doing in those scenarios you have to be able to be an entirely professional soldier and i think the only way it worked in ancient greece was that they were be able to get into the mindset where it was like if this person falls then so be it but i've got to keep the men alive yeah well there was a whole thing about ancient greece about you you're not allowed to run have to fight to the death unless it brings dishonor. I've seen the documentary 300. (laughs) 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 You know, there is talk of Zack Snyder directing one of the many, many Star Wars films that Disney has in the pipeline now. (laughs) Really? Yeah, he's going to be watching one of those. He seems very unsuited to Star Wars. He's visually That's the nicest way I can put it. I don't know. If they can do that R rated Star Wars. Yeah. Okay. Back on track. Mm. Uh, speaking of um, crazy battle scenes which have no real major depth, the Warg attack. <laughs> yeah. Actually, do we? Do we? Is there any more on the, the Arwen Aragorn thing, which is actually kind of heartbreaking? The music is extremely effective. Every single one of these segments, I, and I start crying almost as soon as it comes up, and it's, it's primarily because of the music. Mm-hmm. Can I just quickly bring up the, the comic relief moment? With the falling off the horse? Yeah. Well, just and a bit before that with the, the dwarf men slash women having beards. That's what I do quite like. It's, <laughs> yeah, I, I like that because that's not in the book. I don't know if Peter Jackson likes Terry Pratchett because that is a joke. In, Indeed. In, yeah. in I, I, world, so. I think that Hopefully. may have found its way in there from a Pratchett fan. <laughs> yeah, because that, that makes me like it a lot. Basically gives writers an out say, oh, some of them could be female, we just don't know. Mm. Uh, I think that is a bit of a imagine jab. Imagine if halfway through the Hobbit, Dory uh, ref- ref- says, "I'm a woman." Actually, <laughs> yeah. Well, this is this is something that I think was a bit of a jab at fantasy writing generally, because it's very unusual to have female dwarf characters in in a fantasy book. It's, I, I would say it's only fairly recent fantasy that I've seen that actually has dwarf women in it. 
Hang on, I'm just going to send you guys a picture of Dory, and that I've, I, I just picked a name out of a hat. But uh, if Dory, Dory is revealed is to chick. be female, <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Anyway, that's not going to. Okay. So the Warg attack. Now this was something that was done relatively last minute, and what they ended up doing was uh, they said, right, invisible Wargs are attacking you. Everybody <laughs> slash at midair. And everyone did. They ran around on the mountainside having invisible sword fights with invisible uh, wag riders and wags. And then in post, they added digital wags all over the shop. And uh, I think the only wag that was actually solid was like like a, one of those bucking bronco type things, which had Shaku, the uh, second incarnation of Jed Brophy, um, which Aragorn was holding on to and then went over the cliff. It's, it's a weak spot of the movie. I'm not, I mean, it serves the purpose of, of removing Aragorn from the group and giving you a little taste of action that's to come. Once you've seen the movie, you know there's a huge amount of action coming. It doesn't really achieve much. Yeah, I, I know why they added it. They added it to, to show that Rohan is sort of on the edge of collapse and getting rid of Aragorn just sort of strengthens the Aragorn Arwen bit and make, get, gets him to see that, oh, look, there's thousands of orcs coming this way, but. And it, it emphasizes the value of Aragorn. They start to despair yeah. when he's gone, and then when he's back, there's there's a possibility that he adds hope to a despairing people again. But yeah, it's not the best scene. It's, it's quite well shot. I quite like the the, the way they've they've eventually did it. But I don't know why they are hyenas. They, I think they're changing that for the new film. We shall see yeah. soon, but soon enough. Maybe it won't even. I don't even know if they'll get the wags actually into the first one. But well, but they're they're definitely more wolfy now. Apparently, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it seemed like they sort of did it relatively, kind of like you know, let's see if we can do this. The Legolas shot <laughs> was because he'd cracked a rib, which he reminded everyone about, and still does to this day. And th- thus couldn't jump onto a horse while it was riding, which is understandable. But the, the get out clause they had was to turn him into this rubber character. And it sort of, you know, for the first few seconds it's Orlando Bloom, and then he turns into a rubber character, and then does this thing which defies all physics. <laughs> like he is flung to one side of the horse, mm. and then somehow manages to skitter out the front, and then back and around the back, like in a, like a, like I mean, not even a skateboarder could do that. On yeah, a I skateboard. Don't... Yeah, I don't know why they didn't just have him standing on that hill and sh- fire and shooting arrows down the- at them. Yeah, I don't think he needed to get onto the horse that much. <laughs> no. And even, I mean, if they'd just done it so that he grabbed the reins and jumped up onto the horse on the side that he was on, that would have looked relatively okay. Why did he have to fling himself around the front of the horse, <laughs> risking getting kicked many, many times on the way around? It's a one-second shot. They were clearly very tired when they did it. So <laughs> yeah, but, well, forgive well, me, but geez. It, yeah. it does look a bit like they've played something in reverse. Well, yeah, look at the extra stuff. Basically, Peter Jackson said, yeah, I want you to do this. And, the, and all the animation people were like, what? We can't do that. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> and I think they just had to do something as quickly as possible. And yeah. that's the best they could come up with. Once again, the the Legolas Wibbly model being made to do loads more things than the other ones is far more eye-catching than the rest. Mm. Um Shortly before this, there's actually the bit where Eowyn gives Aragorn the stew that she's made. I mentioned this in the first <laughs> one, but it's it's quite a nice. Vigo doesn't get to do comedy, but his uh, you know his screwed up face of this is clearly the most horrible stew ever created. Um, it, it's a nice touch, and it also shows that Eowyn, despite the fact that she's been given all of this um, 
responsibility may not be the best at everything and doesn't know that she's a terrible cook. Well, it's basically just hot water and raw meat, isn't it? It looked like it, yeah. Yeah. So and hair, I saw as well. Oh Jesus! <laughs> there was a hair in it. It's like oh, big nappy hair. Oh yeah. dear! And he tries to ch- chuck it away the first time, and then she turns around <laughs> and he's like, and he, like it, boiling water drops onto his leg and the hand. Yeah. So yeah, I, d- I, really I did like the sort of the, the comic effect when he, she tried to work out his age as well. So that was oh yeah. Nice. Like what? <laughs> She's very much like a little sister in in this to him. She, yeah. He um he seems fond of her, but he's just seen so much and done so much that she is a child to him. Then we get to see Saruman and Wormtongue and the uh, the the chanting Uruks outside the uh, in in the Nuremberg style backyard of Isengard. First off, Wormtongue. I don't know how he managed to get into Isengard without noticing like 10,000 or a guy. <laughs> or they were around the back. Just hearing <laughs> them. They were very quiet going, shh, 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 wait, wait till he comes out on the balcony. Because um, he seems really surprised when he sees them. If the wall is breached, Helm's Deep will fall. Even if it is breached, it would take a number beyond reckoning, thousands to storm the keep. Tens of thousands. But, my lord, there is no such force. A new power is rising. Its victory is at hand. This night, the land will be stained with the blood of Rohan. March to Helm's Deep. Leave none alive. To war! There will be no door for men. The way they actually got the sound of this crowd was astonishing. They went to, was it a rugby match? Uh, cricket. Cricket match. And got the entire crowd to start chanting what, like, Peter Jackson was sort of talking to them like Bane on a, um, on a <laughs> microphone. Like, New Zealand is yours now! And, um, he, they sort of like, they put the words up on the screen and they got them to chant and they managed to get maybe 10 seconds worth where drunken people weren't shouting totally inappropriate things at them. But it, as opposed to just getting 10 people to do some shouting and then multiplying it by a thousand, this gave it a real power and gravity, and they sound terrifying. Yeah, it sounds a lot better compared with what Christopher Lee had to act to. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> a bunch of guys they could pull together to sort of just caterwaul at him, yeah. But you you wouldn't be able to tell, though, because Christopher Lee really delivers this with such yeah. power and um, like he is talking to 10,000 people. Yeah. He, uh, he tuned out the uh, the surroundings and just sort of put himself in the place. And yeah. Uh, it's yeah. He said they were terrible. He didn't really understand what they were doing, but he'd act anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, can you do it amidst distraction? Christopher Lee can. 
Meanwhile, at Isengard, because we've had so much Saruman in Fellowship, you don't really notice the fact that there's almost none of him, really, in the Two Towers. And the moment when it all hammers home is when that single tear rolls down uh, Wormtongue's face. This, it's there's complex reasons for why that tear's there because obviously he's you know he he wanted to actually seek out power for himself and he didn't mind you know screwing over Rohan to do so, but to actually see what he's sown by his actions and this tornado that's about to bear down on everyone he knows. It clearly gets to him, and that's what really sells that scene. I yeah. think part of that as well is is the shock more than anything else, because ultimately what he was trying to gain was power through influence yeah. and was having personal control of a smallish number of people, um, but who were obviously alive because it's very difficult to control people who are dead, um, which though Baron Samdi may have tried, to be confronted with the fact that ultimately what, Saruman uh, is going for is in fact the steamroller effect that he just wants to blast Rohan away. Mm. I think that's just take that took Wormtongue completely by surprise. Yeah, it's uh, that's the thing when when Theoden is uh, thinking about what they're going to do just prior to them leaving, and uh, Gandalf is like, "You must fight." This isn't a case of Saruman has said, "Swear fealty to Isengard, and we'll let you live." There is really no option. They can run and get killed, or they can run and fight, or they can stand and fight. They are going to die no matter what. It's on their feet or on their knees. And it's that, that realisation that, that, that has to be brought across to Theoden. They're effectively trapped in their own home. He is not coming back. Why do you linger here when there is no hope? If Aragorn survives this war, you will still be parted. If Sauron is defeated and Aragorn made king and all that you hope for comes true, you will still have to taste the bitterness of mortality. Whether by the sword or the slow decay of time, Aragorn will die. And there will be no comfort for you. No comfort to ease the pain of his passing. He will come to death. An image of the splendor of the kings of men in glory, undimmed before the breaking of the world. You will linger on in darkness and in doubt as nightfall in winter that comes without a star. Here you will dwell, bound to your grief under the fading trees until all the world is changed and the long years of your life are utterly spent. nothing for you here only death the Arwen and Elrond scene always gets to me possibly because of the incredibly effective music and the the acting by them I hadn't 
really thought about it too hard until I um, did some research. You know, it's it's very, very sad what actually happens to Arwen. She and Aragorn live for 121 happy years, and then he dies, and then she dies of grief less than a year later. And then, according to Tolkien's belief system, elves who give up their immortality are then forced to go and spend eternity with their uh, their, their partners in the halls of where men go to die. So she has then spends eternity. That's not sad at all. That's brilliant. So I don't know yeah. how. I mean, there there is obviously you know some some sad emotion and the fact that she's separated from her people here, but it, she really does get a lot happier ending than Elrond's really making out at this point. Yeah, so there's a whole thing about um, when elves die, they go to some elvish hall and then they can come back. So it's like, well, you've just slightly destroyed the whole problem of dying. By having that's, it all work out happy. <laughs> that's something that really began to grow on me while I was watching, and Sharon, while we were watching it recently. Elves have a very strange relationship with death. They're terrified of it because it's not part of their natural life. They, you can either, if you're an elf, you either die in battle um, after th- living for thousands of years and just suddenly happens, or you die of grief. I think you can, can you be poisoned or fall ill? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's it. The, the only that you, if you die of grief, it's because you don't want to live anymore. So it's almost like you're choosing. And if you die in battle, then there's a certain glory in that. It's when Legolas freaks out later on, you know, that all of these people are going to die. He's more scared than any of them because while humans live with death on a daily basis, elves don't experience it. They could go for hundreds of years before someone they know dies. They're very wise, but they're almost like children in terms of experience sometimes. I think one effect that this scene had with me was, and it sort of impacted my viewing of him in subsequent watchings of the film, because I didn't feel this way about him particularly before it got to this scene, but it made me really, really angry with Elrond, because he's he's kind of cloaking it all in this this concern for Arwen and and obviously like you say he he seems to have this very messed up relationship with the idea of dying Mm. and he's quite he's horrified at the idea that his daughter may die but he is basically trying to cut her off from making her own decisions and the uh, because he has this power of foresight obviously she's going to trust the information that he provides to her but the fact that, and, and this is something that obviously she calls him on in Return of the King, the fact that he leaves out the crucial piece of information in this scenario, which is that they have a child. Yeah. Um, and that, that whole thing about, you know, and it's, it, it is beautiful the way it's done and his, his speech to her and the music that frames it and the visuals are absolutely heartbreaking. But when he, he gets to that part about, you know, he, he will pass on in glory undimmed before the breaking of the world, but you, you will be left in darkness and in doubt and there will be nothing to ease the comfort of his passing. He's again omitting the information that you will then die of grief. It won't take long at all. But but that, I mean, the fact that she will, you know, she'll have children, she'll have family, there will be she'll other people around her. She'll have a life unknown her. to most elves. Exactly. He is, he is fixated on this idea that she is an elf and she will always be an elf and she can never possibly have any connection with any other people besides Aragorn. And, and what he seems to see it as is she's, she's choosing between one man and everything else. Yeah. And he's yes. not 
giving any capacity for the idea that there might be other things for her beyond that. I can't hate Elrond for this, though, because ultimately this is a world war situation and he's scared for his daughter. Now, I don't, I'm not, you know, saying what he's doing is right, but I understand where it's coming from. It, it is coming from a place of love, even if it is misguided. It's really, yeah, again, it's it's hard to see uh, this as being anything other than what your average father would feel about their daughter. Speaking as a daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking as a father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no man is ever going to be good enough for Lyra. The first time she comes home with a date, I'm going to be like, hey, you, I got a 44 and a shovel. I doubt anyone would miss you. <laughs> 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 but this does actually blind Elrond to the uh, the fact that Aragorn is in fact more than worthy of, of his daughter and it's the fact that he then comes to terms with this and then gives him Anduril to say I now believe in you that is huge and that's why Chris he doesn't just give it to his sons <laughs> yeah, doesn't make any yeah. sense I know it doesn't but narratively speaking it's important for his character Okay, it would it would make more sense if they did what they were going to do is make Elrond go to Lothlorien because he's just round the corner he's <laughs> making the entire trip from Rivendell to um, Dunharrow is maybe an eagle flew him <laughs> and his horse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway but no no ultimately Elrond is the link between Aragorn and Arwen and it's important that Aragorn and Arwen don't meet at this point but the closest the, the person between the two of them it, it's, it's absolutely key that it's, that it's that he is the conduit it is an absolutely wonderful scene, and it does, again, make this point that staying bound to Aragorn costs her. Mm. And that is a point that needs to be made. And Chris, you've never taken a long trip because it mattered? Not that long. <laughs> it's halfway across the world. Yeah, I know. It's just oh, but you could just send... Why can't he single out... Why can't he, like, ship it to Lothlorien? You wanted him to FedEx, Andrew. <laughs> just leave a... You know, Aragorn, stop. Believe you, stop. <laughs> he should have given it to him when he was in Rivendell. Look, I think the world, the world is at, at stake. I, I, I'm pretty sure, you know... He was willing to take that journey. There, for the love of God. Anyway, <laughs> oh, uh, I actually, uh, and I mentioned this to you on Twitter earlier today. The uh, I did some checking on the map, and when when Legolas says the units turn northeast across the plain, no, they don't. They really, really don't. You're absolutely right, Chris. So irritating. If they you just look, look at the map, they come from yeah. the northeast. If the Uruks turn northeast, they're going in a horseshoe. Yes, yeah. the way I, I, Isengard is is northwest. We track a band of Urukai westward across the plain. At least yeah. Vigo remembers it. Yeah, I made a point of looking at the map that is on my wall and checking: is there any way they can come out of Emmonwheel with and then go northeast? But there is no They'd way. Have to be I don't know. If... So far beyond Rohan and then turn northeast yeah. without <laughs> just just turning west to go to Isengard. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's very simple. That um, Orlando doesn't know east from west. <laughs> and for some reason, that was not caught at any point in editing. I, well, there's 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 another bit coming off in the film that was not caught and is inexcusable. Really? Like guys, inexcusable yeah. for you, but okay. Oh, it's oh, it's it's really bad. <laughs> Which is it? It's um at the end um they have you know after Helm's Deep. All the heroes come ride up the hill, and then you have someone on the end which is wearing well, yeah, Aemon's clothes. Yeah. yeah, and he's got 
It's like, why did they not paste his face on? Well, no, we'll uh, we'll do that in, at the end. But you actually, yeah. that's one of the bits that bugs me. It's actually See, two that, that, in quick succession there. That is actually uh, incompetence rather than <laughs> bits that are not in the you know bits that are like a book. It's not like a book problem. It's like that's a a bad filmmaking problem, which it, is it's just they missed it. So yeah, the R one and L one scene. Uh, finishes where she's then going off into the west and it's kind of it's a resolution of that side of the story and you kind of feel like that could be it at that point for Aragorn um, and, and Arwen he has said go into the west Elwon has said yes really go into the west so she decides to go into the west and, and they could just have left it that, that. so that that opens up Eowyn's storyline a little bit I think yeah because that's the point at which you start to think, well, actually, maybe that would work better. Yeah. Uh, shortly after this, Galadriel and Faramir editorialize. <laughs> In terms of Galadriel says, right, everyone paying attention. This is the situation regarding Frodo and the ring and the uh, captain of Gondor. This is the situation regarding the people of Rohan. This is the situation. Everyone already got that. Okay, good. All again done in pickups uh, after the fact of filming, just as a way of giving a nice middle section of the film to bring everyone up to speed. It's a great idea. Yeah, no, yeah. it's the perfect point to do something like that because this is the point where Helm's Deep is just about to kick off. So you want to make sure, okay, everyone up to speed? Right. Huge action scene. <laughs> yeah. Also, it's any yeah. excuse to hear more Kate Blanchett doing Galadriel. She is absolutely magnetic. She's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I was just about to say, I, I love this bit because I really do love Kate Blanchett's voice. My only gripe is that she says, you know this, you have foreseen it, which is perilously close to being, as you know. As you know, Elrond. <laughs> if he knows, why, why is she telling him? And then yeah. when she says, do we let them stand alone? Elrond's like, well, I'm not donating any elves. How about you? You got some? It's because um, she's his mother-in-law. Oh, right. So she's brown. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> so he's basically getting nagged by his yeah. mother-in-law. <laughs> Actually, on that note, this might explain a lot of Elrond's reactions towards A, the world of men, and B, death. Um, he's half-elven, isn't he? Was his mother yeah. uh, or is his father mortal? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, for goodness Honestly. sake, you're supposed to be a specialist. <laughs> you're bitching about Elrond's sons. Yeah. Hang on. Elrond. That that actually does make a point I was going to make that everyone is very weird about uh, about Arwen picking a mortal life when the point of being half elven is he got to choose if he led an elven life or a mortal life. So what's his problem? And he's alive because one of his parents decided to get jiggy with a human. Uh, Son of Erendil, that sounds pretty elvish, and Elwing. Right, so Galadriel's daughter is Elrond's wife and Arwen's mother. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit of trivia. Um, the light of <laughs> Erendil that Galadriel gives to Frodo is the light of Elrond's father. So either way, that, that would explain certain amounts of Elrond's slightly complex relationship with the world of humans and indeed death. Okay, so Aragorn Drifts is uh, picked up by Brago, who knew exactly where he was going to be. He happens to have a bridle and... Uh, Just a bridle and a halter. And a halter, so uh, Aragorn then rides him, rather like Maximus Decimus Meridius in Gladiator. Yeah. It is really significant seeing him see the the army that was heading towards the Hornburg. Uh, it gives him a lot... When he sees that army coming over the, the hill, he 
suddenly goes, oh my god, I need to get to the Hornberg as quickly as possible. Yeah. There's a sudden, um, you know, shift in uh, his objective before it was just like, oh, I need to get somewhere. Oh, now I really need to get somewhere. It might have been an idea actually for them, for him to then race off after this and go, right, yeah. I have not, I have not mm. a second to waste, but he still seems to totter over to uh, the Hornberg, strides yeah. in, bursts through the door. It could be a problem with editing as they decide they were they were just having go and they thought oh no we have to put him in to look at the orcs and they hadn't done a gallop gallop scene for him. All oh, right, okay. Um, but I I really like how the sort of Helm's Deep pose interview they do the the, the the pan round and then oh look there it is it's just it sort of sets the scene of, of you know sort of where it is in comparison with the sort of the land around it and it looks quite nice. <laughs> Probably some of the most spectacular landscape photography takes place in the two towers here because uh, mm. they got the largest amount of uninterrupted land that looked exactly like they needed it to. They didn't have to add anything to it. There was nothing fantastical about it. I think they added, obviously, Helm's Deep. Um, but everything else about the, the landscape of the prairie in Rohan is, is just nature. And it's just, it's staggering how they're able to because very few fantasy films can really just show you this immense landscape and that's where filming it in somewhere mostly uninhabited really actually comes into into play that New Zealand's landscape was just ripe for this kind of film to finally be made yeah the design of the Hornberg is really impressive to me because unlike Minas Tirith is really impressive but it it's not as functional as the Hornberg. The Hornberg actually looks like a, um, a a fortress that would have existed during the medieval era. Yeah. Um, a lot of things about its design make sense from uh, a fortress standpoint, like the wall curves inwards, and that's so archers can fire at enemies at any point along the wall. Um, apart from the castle that's to the right, which is, has more circular design. Um, but everything about it is is really functional. Minas Tirith looks great, but it's a bit more bombastic, a bit more spectacular, yeah. uh, which is still impressive, but I, I just like that this looks functional. That's because Minas Tirith is a, a city and this is a castle. So they, oh, yeah, they, yeah, it's, yeah, it's not so usually meant to be inhabited. But, no. uh, yeah. um, I, I, I think sort of uh, ta- ta- tactically though the deep and wall is incredibly weak, especially the culvert with the the stream running for it. And if I think in the medieval that would probably would have been strengthened a whole lot more than it is in the film. <laughs> you can't yeah. blow, or in the books, you cannot blow it up as easy as they did. And and actually in the book they block up the culvert because orcs are crawling through, which is a structural problem. <laughs> They did make some tactical adjustments in the um, design stages, didn't they? Like it was originally designed with the wall curving outwards, which they said yeah. you, you couldn't do because your archers would all be facing in random directions. <laughs> well, it's more that they can't get a full view of the wall. Yeah. Um, they're only able to fire at the enemy straight in front of them, whereas with a, a wall curved inwards, they can see the... F- every enemy attacking the wall and they can attack anyone trying to get up on the wall with ladders. Can I butt in and be a massive pedant? Yep. Uh, you, shoot a bow, you shoot a bow, you don't fire it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, when that... When well, there's that, no fire involved, is there? Well, yeah. The, when that man says fire, it's like, no, shoot. Oh. Um, <laughs> 
Okay. Th- th- now is the time to be an archery pedant. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, okay. There is one major filmic influence on uh, the build-up uh, to the battle, and, and that is Zulu. It's uh, a film which features Michael Caine, and um, it focuses on a group of British soldiers um, in Africa, and they get word that they're going to be attacked and they have to try and fortify this incredibly small, ill-equipped um, stockade and just prepare to be attacked and most likely killed by thousands of Zulus. And uh, so you spend the first part of the film getting to know everybody and this this palpable tensions just building and building and building and, you know, relationships are strained and it's fantastic to watch. And you start to get, you know, to, to really um, invest in the characters. And so that then when the battle happens, you actually care what's going on. There is far too much, especially since The Lord of the Rings, because they were just trying to replicate the battles, of just like... Big, huge battles where people, you know, two sides fight. It doesn't matter if we don't care who's dying on either side. If it's just too, like in The Mummy Returns, for example. Yeah. I mean, we sort of care about the magi, sort of, because we care about one of them. But it's just being put in there for epic scale battles. It, it doesn't ultimately matter beyond, like, the impression of a battle. Like, at the beginning, in the, uh, in the prologue in, the, in Fellowship, they show you a bit of the battle, but that's really all they needed to show you, because if it goes on for much longer than that, you're just like, what, what, what's being achieved here? But with... Yeah, go. Peter Jackson even made that point uh, in the behind-the-scenes documentaries. They said they had to add scenes with the families and the caves yeah. to the uh, battle sequence to show you, yeah, exactly, what is at stake, what these people are fighting for. And they intercut between, uh, you know, Aragorn saying, fire! Sorry, shoot arrows! <laughs> and, yeah, he says, um, re- release arrows. Okay, that's better. He says. Release between Aragorn shouting, release arrows! And, uh, you know, so the faces of these frightened children. And just, uh, it's like, if they fail here, these Uruks actually are the kind of creatures who would burst in there and murder every single last one of them without a thought and then sleep well that night. And so we get a lot of tense build-up where, you know, like I said, Legolas despairs and Aragorn is trying to find, uh, you know, his purpose here and Aragorn's uh, altercations with Theoden are particularly interesting because um, Theoden didn't want to fight in the first place now he's being forced to so he's like right so we'll fight and we'll probably all die that's fine we'll do that that's what we've got to do we'll we'll, every last man will give their uh, lives to protect uh, the rest of us but you know the the odds are, are clearly against us they will break upon this fortress like water on rock Saruman's hordes will pillage and burn. We've seen it before. Crops can be re-sown. Homes rebuilt. Within these walls, we will outlast them. They do not come to destroy Rohan's crops or villages. They come to destroy his people. Down to the last child. What would you have me do? Look at my men. The courage hangs by a thread. If this is to be our end, then I would have them make such an end as to be worthy of remembrance. Send out riders, my lord. You must call for aid. And who will come? Elves, dwarves, 
aren't so lucky in our friends as you. The old alliances are dead. Gondor will answer. Gondor? Where was Gondor when the Westfall fell? Where was Gondor when our enemies closed in around us? Where was Gondor? Where was Gondor when the Westfold fell? Where was Gondor when our enemies closed in around us? Where was Gondor? And he trails off at that point because he's going to say, where was Gondor when my son was killed? But then he stops because he then thinks to himself, where were you? Where was I, Theoden, when my son was killed? And then he comes back to, no, my Lord Aragorn, we are alone. He's punishing himself. And in effect, he's also punishing the entirety of Rohan for his weakness by pridefully not asking for help at this stage or not investing hope in anyone else he can't trust anyone else he's a fascinating character and as i said before very shakespearean i was to say just it the the next line he says you know that that even if we can't win we'll make such an end that we'll be we'll talk about it it's completely harks back to sort of, you know um beowulf and and sort of anglo-saxon and viking tales is like you know the the greatest honour is to die in battle and, and that's what he's prepared to do he is treading a very very fine line though between um, allowing his people to hope that they might get through this and yet not letting them fall into despair and that's why when the elves show up at Helm's Deep it is such a relief for not only the characters but you as an audience member, because until they these elves show up, there's a sense of like complete misery. The only character who's really trying to hold some hope is um, Aragorn. Everyone else, Legolas, Gimli's kind of a bit apathetic towards the whole situation. So I think Gimli's that- like Jane, and so if you really think we're all going to survive this, I might. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, even though that was that scene is not in the books, I think it was absolutely needed because mm. you needed that speck, that speck of hope that these people could make, for, you know, make it through this. I think it's important that the audience values elves as well because they're shown as being aloof and seemingly not to care about the world of men. And in the book, they mostly didn't. This didn't happen. Yeah, because the whole the whole Helm's Deep scene in the book just doesn't have any tension because there is no sense that there's any chance they're going to win and when they do win it's just like oh how did that happen that was a surprise (laughs) yeah um so yeah the inclusion of the elves is like at least you've got a bit more of a chance and obviously the elves being sort of fabled martial prowess that yeah they can handle a couple of urukai i mean i mean an urukai versus a human is the urukai's gonna win but an urukai versus an elf there's a a bit more it's it's not only that it's that most of the soldier rohan soldiers that are lining the walls are you know 12 year old boys and old men 60 year old men yeah yeah they're not soldiers um, so when, you know, the elves show up, it's not only that, okay, we've got more numbers, we've got people who know what they're doing on our side as well. Mm. I was going to say, because uh, Aragorn knows uh, what Gandalf's got in mind, I think he's thinking if we can just hold out until Gandalf comes back, then we've got the Rohirrim. Yeah. Um, I especially like this thing, because it's got Haldir in it again. <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> Big ups for Haldir. If you compare it to the battle at Minas Tirith in the, in the third one, 
there's one very symbolic reason why it actually remains, you know, even though it's significantly smaller in scale, it's actually more compelling. Denethor is symbolically that city. And so even though he's just one man presiding over all these other Gondorians, he despairs, he gives up, he's unready to fight, uh, he goes, flee, flee for your lives! And so the, the, the average audience member is actually quite happy when Gandalf smacks him with a stick. <laughs> Shut up, prepare for battle. And suddenly it's mm-hmm. Gandalf leading the entirety of Minas Tirith uh, in, in, in a siege. But in, at Helm's Deep, there is a very strong sense that Theoden is leading his people, you know, with, with Aragorn's help very significantly. But it's everyone mucking in together and they're all sort of just trying to fight for survival. It's, that doesn't diminish the battle at Minas Tirith, which is epic and incredible. But there's, it's slightly more focused. Every villager able to wield a sword has been sent to the armory. My lord? Who am I, Gambling? You are our king, sire. And you trust your king. Your men, my lord, will follow you to whatever end. say that the Battle of Helm's Deep is more intimate, yes. uh, whereas uh, Minas Tirith is much more because it's the climax of the trilogy, it has to be like this big, flashy epic battle that you know concludes and puts a full stop on the trilogy mm. whereas this needs to feel like the enemy, you know, the good guys could lose and the cost of this battle is huge. Significantly, uh, the Battle of Minas Tirith becomes a lot more personal when the Rohirrim show up because yeah. you like them. You've sat you with them for one battle yeah. already, yeah. Nothing against the Gondorians, they're great, but Faramir's already down, so... It does add a, an important layer of character to Aragorn as well at this point because um, when it gets to the stage where Theoden, uh, sorry, Theoden does lose hope and he does snap and he can't think what to do next and the um, his generals are basically looking around for somebody to tell them what to do next. It's Aragorn who steps up and says, is there another way for the women and children to get out of the caves? And that kind of underlines the idea that it's not just about birthright. He he does actually have it in him to lead people as a king. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, sort of comparing them. Um, I mean, I know Denethor dies in Return of the King in that battle, but he's not a nice character. 
It's not in the with, battle. He burns himself yeah, alive. Well, like a yeah, but, but I, this adding the elves and adding Haldir specifically, having a hero character die adds a lot more emotion to the battle and makes it more believable. It's not very believable that you have all these hero characters and they, oh, they're fine. One of them dies, yeah. Yeah, they don't even... Get, I mean, Fairden gets a, a spear in his shoulder but it doesn't seem to affect him whatsoever after him going oh no my shoulder he's still able then, to ride a horse and thwack yeah. Uruks with a sword yeah um, but having Legolas doesn't even skin his knee yeah well uh, but having held it this actually this probably this the sounds strange the death of him makes him my favourite character because it's the the way it's sort of handled and the the camera move from when he dies you can see he's just the, the sort of looking at the futility of war. Mm. This is all the, this is, you know, his friends effectively you know, d- d- dead on the battlefield and him knowing that this was, for, you know, for the elves, pointless, that they didn't have any stake in it except for yeah. um, honouring old allegiances and Galadriel saying, yeah, we should really help them. That's and, why I think of these films as war movies rather than action-adventure movies because in action and an adventure, death isn't really given its full um impact it doesn't it doesn't seem as consequential but in war movies they make a point of saying look we've had you know we've had fun and games but you don't really want to be in this situation trust me yeah i think they they actually did quite well with having these films they had to have like a principal character i mean how does not that much of a principal character but at least he's he's known about and die in each of the films because obviously Boromir in the first one, Howdy in this one, and Feoden in the third. And Denethor. And Denethor. Yeah, but he's not a likable character. <laughs> so he's not kind of say that you don't really like Haldir that much, but... So. Oh, yeah, like but at least he's a, Denethor goes crazy and tries to murder his son. Most of the um, audience wanted him to die. Yeah. yeah. Um, but having li- you know, at least likable characters die in each film does yeah, cement it as a war film and mm. gives sort of more tension and more Sort of empathy for all the characters. Don't and, forget Gandalf falling in uh, Fellowship. That's I, not a yeah. disposable death, even if he does come back as the one. I, I think the significant part of that as well is that the, there is, even if it's unspoken, there is an acknowledgement that although they are focusing on the death specifically of people that you, you know and that you recognise, um, because in sort of actiony type movies, that sometimes does happen, but you have it in these, you know, that it's music rising and falling. Oh God, it's so cold and, and yeah, yeah, impassioned yeah. speech to the the hero as they as they go. But that kind of almost seems to emphasise the triviality of every other henchman and and person who's been killed in the course of this movie the way it's framed in these and and i think you make, make a fine point chris about when haldir falls he sees all of these other elves around him who are to the audience nameless faceless people in armor but to him those are his his kinsmen and, and people that he's fought with and i think it, it does sort of make that point that you the it's very difficult for the human mind to absorb the notion of that much death. You have to scale it down to a, a smaller capacity so that you can deal with it. And by bringing it to a, a face that you know and a name that you recognize and a person that you have interacted with, it, it actually helps you to make that connection with the wider death rather than cut you off from it. Yeah. Yeah. I also like the fact that when Haldir goes down, the Uruks are 
also among the dead. So the elves are lying in amongst the other bodies. That they are effectively alike at this point. It's the it's one of the times that actually humanizes the Uruks more than any of their actual behavior in life. That you know we are effectively meat at this point. It's also an incredibly beautiful piece of music they have playing at the. Yeah, this is sort of like um, this is the way I like sort of death scenes in films is like sort of um, muting the the sort of sound effects and pushing in music. Yeah, because um, otherwise you get people screaming or going, you know, it's cold and it's like oh, I'm so cold. cold. Yeah, <laughs> and also yeah, he he doesn't get to. Uh, to give impart any final words of wisdom to Aragorn. He's no. gone by the time Aragorn gets there. Um, the one part that I missed before we started the battle was uh, Where is the Horse and the Rider, which is a oh, yeah. wonderful, wonderful poem read by uh, Bernard Hill. Yeah, that whole scene sort of lit by the open doorway, just it looks, it looks, it's all right, it sort of looks church like. They've got that sort of bright light and he's in a hall and it, it it's supposed to be like it's just a sort of a, a sta- sort of static arming scene, but yeah, when he starts s- s- chanting almost the poem, it's so beautiful and so impactful, and, and it's it's laying the groundwork for this sort of this to be a the the last battle that we're in, and we will do what we can. Yeah, and then of course Legolas skates on a shield, which really oh, upset a lot of people. That's so bad. <laughs> It doesn't bother me. I'll be honest. A lot of people point it out. They, they say it like Greedo shooting first. It's that bad. Come on. I, it's Legolas already shoots arrows like a machine gun. So <laughs> it really doesn't bother me that he surfs down some but stairs on a shield. The whole point of elves is that they can run across... Like in, in the books, he can run across a taut rope. In the Fellowship, he runs up a chain. He can run down a flight of stairs like it was flaps. I think I, 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 when I think they were they talking did about it, it in production, they said it would look cool if, which is a bad idea. Yeah, um, I think the, I think the problem I think if they'd done it how you just running that that would have been a lot harder to do. Run downstairs without tripping yourself over. Even if you've got a wire, it's quite hard to do on a shield. You can, you've got smooth surface. So I understand why they did it. Um, and I know the person who did it was you know a keen snowboarder. So that's why he did it. <laughs> I just think it's awful. <laughs> My attitude, my feelings towards that scene is simply: if it wasn't there, it wouldn't bother me. But it doesn't bother me that it is there. So. Takes six seconds; it's over as soon as it begins. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not the worst scene in the trilogy, but I, I just don't like it. Uh, so, I mean, do we really need to talk about the specifics of the battle—the ladders and the rain and the deeping wall and the explosion? Uh, can I can I mention the rain? I think it's about time <laughs> to talk about the rain and bowstrings. I mean, we already, yeah. I already put this in the earlier show, so <laughs> you're going over yeah. all ground here. But it's a major flaw. Yep. Tell so us. yeah, <laughs> rain and bowstrings do not mix. If you get the, if you've heard the phrase, keep it under your hat, that yep, you comes said that directly before. from, oh, did I? Okay. Yes. Um, I don't remember. You've literally <laughs> said all of this already. We have gone okay. over this. And I think, is, is there, are there any new developments in, in bows um, in between? I did try to, I try to have a look um, at horsehair bowstrings. Yeah. I was trying to see if Rohan could make uh, the, the strings out of horsehair, which would fit in with their horsiness. Have you um, not heard of the Rohan pube bow? 
<laughs> it's self-explanatory. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is... I looked this up. I don't envy the guys who have to make the Rohan tube fire. <laughs> That's what the women were doing in the caves back there. They weren't just sitting there with their kids. They were they were busy, hard at work making those Rohan pubos. I envy even less the people who have to grow the hair for them to get down to your knees before you can cut it off. I, I don't want to. They don't allow to people it. to ever trim in Rohan. They need that hair as I long as possible. I don't want to know what website you went on to find out that. Just <laughs> RohanCubo.com. <laughs> Sorry, dot net. Anyway, they also make nets out of it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I couldn't find any information about that. Cause of course you could. Because no um, one cares. <laughs> they, it is important. I actually found that. I did find a bow website. Which did say, so the whole Helm's Deep scene in Lord of the Rings doesn't exist, didn't, doesn't work right. And then so I said, yes. But <laughs> other people do think this is a problem. I, I, I just thought Sharon was being pedantic about high heeled <laughs> shoes on Catwoman. It's, it's just that in a world where there are dragons and balrogs and stuff like that, it just seems that this problem, it, it, when measured up to all the things that happen in this world, this doesn't seem that unrealistic. Yeah, but the world does also apply to the basic laws of physics. <laughs> Gandalf cannot just fly without an eagle. He has to have an eagle. So, okay, anyway, I Lothlo- give in. <laughs> Lothlor bow's magic, that's fine. That's, yeah, yeah but the world can bow. <laughs> that explains that one. There well, we go. <laughs> anyway, dwarf tossing. and uh, actually around about this point with the dwarf tossing and the battering ram you do get to see Peter Jackson's brief cameo he's the guy who chucks one spear and it spears one Urukai and uh, as far as he's concerned that's the uh, the spear that won the war it turned the tide yep (laughs) and uh, I mean ultimately let's just come to a head uh, at the point where they retreat back to the Hornburg and it plays the sad version of the Rohan theme they decide to ride out now this is done very heroically and it's like yeah we're going to do this thing and they ride out if they stop for one brief moment and you actually played it without the um, bravado music playing they're going absolutely to their deaths there's what there's what three or four of them maybe seven and there's still 8,000 Uruks you know plus out there ready to cut them to pieces they're just going out to their deaths at this point I'd just like to note as well there are only seven of those people in that hall all those kids all those old people that we were you know interacting with before they're all dead the kid that Aragorn was talking to and saying, oh, this is a lovely Palace sword. son of Hammer. Yeah, yeah. He looks like a member of Hansen. Um, he's dead. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. that was really subtly handled. I like that they don't draw your attention to that, but when you see those, you know, six or seven guys trying to barricade the door, you suddenly re- Oh my god, that's all? That's all that's left? Jesus. Yeah. Also, I mean, um, Alex is saying about the 
riding to there just sort of just before that before they have the actual charge music they have um I don't, I don't know what it's actually called. It's the sort of end march music. The end you have, march music, now. I think is one of the nicest piece of, pieces of music in this whole trilogy, and yeah. I love that theme. And just, I think, just playing it there, that sort of does encaps, uh, encapsulate that it's, it's sort of basically effectively a, a charge to the death. And because, yeah. like the um, the end march, which we will talk about in a bit, but that, uh, 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 Treebeard says, you know, we're, we're marching with. Probably to our doom. Or it's like an over the top of the trench World War One scenario. Yeah, yeah. I, I would like to recommend folks see Zulu again. There's a point where the Zulus all crowd up on the hill, and rather than just charging in and attacking, they sing to the uh, uh, to the soldiers that they're about to come down and massacre. They're, it's a it's a death song. And it's a war chant, and it's really disconcerting. And the Uruks manage something along those lines, something between that and a haka, where they're sort of, you know, drumming their spears, pikes on the floor, and just sort of going, which is terrifying. This ride out is a microcosm of the, we're either going to die on our feet or our knees, and ultimately they choose to die on horseback. Yeah, and it's quite nice. He does, he does, um, uh, now for Wrath, now for Ruin, and the Red Dawn, yeah. which, especially because you see the third film, and that's sort of like, you know, the, the, the lead up, and then the third film they have the, the massive charge where he says the full thing yeah. in the other, so it's, it's a nice sort of call forward to that. Yeah, and it's so nice. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like that. It's such a. Your English teacher is going to be smacking you for saying nice so much. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's an incredibly beautiful turn of phrase. It is indeed. I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a cruel taskmaster <laughs> of a podcasting host. Uh, because the odds are so stacked against them, despite the apparently glorious uh, music, it's morning and Gandalf has arrived with Eomer to save the day. You get an even more wonderful piece of uh, choral music as they ride down the hill. And uh, Jackson says it's almost biblical. There's no almost about it. Uh, Gandalf is effectively an avenging white angel on a horse charging in. It's it's not actually magic. He just rides down at the exact point when the sun was going to come over the hill anyway, blinding the enemy and using that to his tactical advantage. But it's a wonderful sight seeing this, you know, crowd of horses pouring down on this black mass of Uruks. Yeah, it's also incredibly lucky they timed it at that point, otherwise they would have been. Yeah, killed. I was going to say, <laughs> if there wasn't that sunlight, all those horsemen would be dead. Yep. Because pikemen versus cavalry, pikemen always win. Yeah. Yep.
then there's uh, there's a little bit in the extended editions which uh, gets trimmed out, which is that after they've been routed, the Uruks charge off back into the forest where the Huorns have uh, gathered, and they all get in, and then suddenly the forest goes... And they uh, get savaged. Now, this was because Tolkien, when he saw Macbeth when he was uh, younger, heard the uh, tales of Barnum Wood coming to the castle, and it was like, wow, the trees are going to actually come. And when he found out it was men covered in leaves, it was a dreadful disappointment to a child. So he was like, right, I am writing a story where the trees actually do kick ass. And that was this. I suppose it's... It's not massively key and imperative to the overall plot, but it's a nice way of showing that the trees in general are fighting back against their own uh, destruction. Yeah, it's just it's just a, a, a nod to the book again, which it's if it's done sort of sparingly and in, in sort of it adds important bits. I mean, this does ex- basically explain where all the urukai ran off to. Yeah, because because otherwise, uh, yeah. It's, yeah, in the theatre, you see them running away, and it's like, oh, everything's fine now. But yeah, there was no one else to mop up. Yeah. And I think it's also important to let the audience know that Saruman is now completely defenceless. I mean, he has his orcs there working in the pits, but the, his main force is now completely wiped out. He's just a guy in a tower at this point. And that's actually one of the abiding memories I have of the book when it describes when they pick their way through to Isengard at the end of the two towers and talk to Saruman, which is the bit at the beginning of the Return of the King, which would have been somewhat anticlimactic. They keep coming across giant piles of dead Uruks who have been massacred by the trees. And it's, it's, it's a little bit disconcerting the way it's, it's never really depicted, but you get the impression that these guys were absolutely brutal, like worse than the tree in the Evil Dead. Oh, God. Yeah, there you go. That took a second to sink in. <laughs> and then there is that brief but really kind of stupid moment where um, as it, there's two in very quick succession. One is where um, it, it's during Sam's wonderful speech, Aragorn hugs Eowyn and... Um, He's wearing his coat because it's an earlier shot from when he gets back after the, uh, you know, after being um, lost in the wilderness. And she, you know, hugs him because she's pleased to see him. So it's like he, if we're to believe this, <laughs> finished the battle, got off his horse, ran back to the Hornberg, found his coat, put it on, hugged Eowyn, took it off, got back on the horse, ran <laughs> straight back again. I don't know. It's, it's just a little bit of a costume thing. And also somehow he divests himself of that uh, awesome male shirt that he uh, found. But... Um, yeah, just a little bit. And then there's this, a slightly more head slapping because that was intentional. They put that in and hope no one would notice it was from earlier. Uh, but ultimately, I suppose it could be like a flashback to earlier and saying, look, they hugged at that point. But this next bit's really stupid. When they reach the crest of the hill and Aragorn and Gandalf's giving his, the battle for Helm's Deep is over. The battle for Middle Earth is about to begin. He's surrounded by, uh, he's got Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Theoden and some bloke who might be Aomer but actually isn't. I don't know exactly what was happening with Carl Urban on that day, but he wasn't present. And they put in a guy so that they could superimpose Carl Urban's face on him later and then forgot to superimpose Carl Urban's face. Just look to the left when you see it next and, and, and <laughs> slap your forehead, forgive them and move on. Yeah, so it's like we were talking for the fellowship um, that was going back and doing a sort of special edition where they sort of touch up the graphics. I want yeah, that to go might back be a good one, yeah. a special edition and paste his face on. <laughs> um, 
I'll just get like a cardboard cutout of Carl. <laughs> like, that won't at all be much more eye-catching. I mean, he looks like Carl Urban's stunt double, maybe, so it's yeah. close enough. But, uh, but I, I think they should have just cut off that that edge. Because yeah. there wasn't anyone like next to him. They could have just cut him off. Because there's only, it's only like one scene he's in. They could have just cut that off and then just... However, if you want to be a pedant, and I know you do, Chris, you could just <laughs> say that's just one of the Aeolings or another person from yeah. Rowan. That has stolen AMS armor. It's a very similar kind of armor. <laughs> it's slightly different. <laughs> There's yeah, this yeah. one blacksmith who just makes the same armor all Which, the time. Apparently, if you get punched in the gut, hurts a lot. Right. So, uh, any more? Badly, obviously, it's badly made. And there's a spike going inwards just at that point. If you just get you get punched there, it goes oh, worst armor ever. <laughs> yeah. um, anything else on Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli? I mean, okay, actually, there is a bit of Legolas and Gimli going on here. The whole they're sort of jovial, you know. Um, I've killed three Uruks. I'm on seventeen. Um, well, you do have a bow and arrow, so there's yeah. quite a lot of them uh, <laughs> that you could kill at a distance. But they're, you know, jolly kind of camaraderie, and especially Gimli's slightly comedic um, approach to uh, killing the Urukai, usually slamming them in the testicles with his <laughs> battle axe. Um, usually, basically every single one he slams in the testicles. At testicle level. <laughs> That kind of makes the battle a bit more fun, especially for the kids and a bit less serious. You know, and then there's, of course, the dwarf tossing scene, which is kind of fun as well. But this is the most characterization, really, that Legolas and Gimli get for the rest of the uh, series. That, that's it for them. They, they get to have a fun little rivalry between each other where they, you know, try and take out more Rurikai than the other. Although the two characters aren't particularly deep, I think they represent the breaking down of boundaries between the races. Yeah. Having these two races who most of the time hate each other, can't stand each other, slowly but surely becoming best friends. I think even though you know it's not particularly complex, it's nice having that small arc for those characters to have. Oh, the, one other thing I wanted to mention of the Urukai specifically is the berserkers who actually frighten the crap out of me. They... Um, uh, th- these are the guys who wear no armor apart from their helmets and just keep coming. When when Legolas shoots that one Uruk, it's not mistakes. He doesn't miss. He shoots him twice, one in each shoulder, and it just keeps coming. Th- these guys fill their helmets with human blood before they put them on, and once they're on, they go into a blood frenzy. So they they really are the uh, this thing that you could mortally wound it, and it would just keep coming. Uh, these guys are inspired by Viking berserkers, aren't they? Because yeah. they're, uh, there's that. I'm not sure if this is true or if it's just a legend, but they say that the Viking berserkers would eat like an, uh, a drug of some kind. I think it was a mushroom, and that would send them into a wild rage, and they just charge into battle without any care for their own life. They go into a berserker fury. Yeah, much like good old Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> I just have one more point. They put a Wilhelm scream in. They do. I noticed that. I was like, seriously, the Wilhelm? Yeah. I think that is probably Peter Jackson insisted. Yeah. To sort of, as a nod back to the dodgy <gasps> horror and like action films of that he sort of set his. Early We're having films a battle. On. We, we've got to have a Wilhelm at some point. Can we maybe yeah. put it at the early part where it's not quite so serious? <laughs> Having yeah. seen the extent to which their Foley editors and their their sound engineers go to to create a unique Original soundscape, set, yeah. 
it seems very unlikely that they would just go, that one scream. We want <laughs> something that just says generic. Yeah. Generic scream number one. It, ha- it has, to be fair, it has become a bit of an in-joke uh, amongst sound effects guys. They kind of put it in for their peers more than anything. Yeah, it turns up in Star Wars in every single movie, at least. Yeah, I think it was, though, Peter Jackson. I mean, that was endemic to those dodgy B-movie sort of, or, or early cinema things that he, I think, you know, like King, the early King Kong, he obviously likes that and... It's Set. his sense of humour as well. The Harry Harryhausen yeah. films, I'm sure, would have had yeah. some Wilhelms in there. He's a fan. So, um, moving on to Merry and Pippin's short part of this tale, uh, we get Entmoot, which is difficult to describe. It's a very long, very boring conversation between some very boring beings that fortunately we're not party to for much at all. Uh, the important part of Entmoot is ultimately when Pippin uh, says to Merry, you know, maybe this is really too much for us. We could just go home. We've got the Shire. And Merry kind of has to crack open that little bubble that Pippin's been living in and and say this is a war that we can't escape ultimately not forever it will envelop everything and it's it it all sort of keys in with the idea of that you know war is terrible but there are certain kinds of war which we can actually get behind uh, a war against your own extinction Pretty much no one can fault you for fighting yeah. for the survival of, of, of um, the people that you love. And it, it's not about um, territories or subjugation. It's, it's about survival. Peter Jackson made a note in the behind-the-scenes documentaries that out of all the wars we've ever fought, um, World War II is probably the one war that we could actually morally justify. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, you know, whether Tolkien agrees with me, there is so much of World War II um, in this film. Uh, yeah. So many parallels. It to is applicable. Yeah. yeah. And then we get the bit where um, Treebeard... Well, Pippin first has the idea of going south and near to Isengard. I don't know whether he knew that they'd removed all the trees. It was certainly a case of, well, let's just see what they've been up to. So it's, it's uncharacteristically clever of him. And then Treebeard does his howl and the Ents turn up like that! And then they start yeah. their march. Which again has this fantastic piece of, you know, building music to it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's my favourite piece from this film. Yeah. And every time I listen to it, it's like, oh, it's that, it's that, it's that bit in the film. When Mary says, yes, Everyone else in the audience was thinking the exact same thing. At long last. Yeah. Not only because, you know, finally these guys are getting off their arse and helping out, it's also the Ents are, you know, they might be boring chaps, but they they look pretty powerful. They look like they could cause some serious damage if they wanted to. So there's a moment of, right, we've got these guys on our side, maybe there is some, you know, hope for the rest of us.
and uh, the actual sacking of Isengard this was done mostly uh, using effects and, and model work and, and thus it actually feels a little bit more removed and divorced from reality um, there's not much grounds eye view of it I was thinking that and I really can't possibly tell Weta how to make a film but if there was going to be any way to improve this scene, possibly Merry and Pippin getting knocked off Treebeard and having to run along the ground while this chaos is going on around them and then getting snatched up by Treebeard again and, and effectively said, just to sort of put you at ground level in this and actually caring about what's going on because it just seems like you're, you've got this constant helicopter view of um, CG Ents kicking the crap out of um, either blokes dressed as orcs in chroma key or CG orcs on a giant bigature while some water comes in and floods a model it's yeah, it's impressive but like I said it's slightly removed I think the problem with that is is drawing too much attention to the water because water yeah. is something that doesn't scale yeah um, so they don't so it, it, if I think they drew, drew, drew too much attention it look that just looks like you know standard water washing over a very small model I'm reminded of the first Superman movie no one else seen that film Nope. You're such a philistine. I, I, I <laughs> saw it like same 10 thing years ago. Okay, well, uh, I'll just say it reminds me of the first Superman movie. Okay. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's still very impressive, and you get that sense that big things are happening. And we get a satisfying sense of closure on Isengard, that it's like, right, you mess with the wrong trees at this point, Saruman. And, and we get to see Christopher Lee panicking. And that's, in the theatrical versions, the last time we see Christopher Lee. That's it. And yeah. Gandalf says, with him absent from the screen, he has no power now at the beginning of Return of the King. That's it. Bye. I do, I do like in that scene, they, they sort of went into detail thought sort of what would harm Ents. So they, you see one being set on fire and well, sort of one being hooked down and, and chopped up with axes. And that's sort of basically the only thing the Orcs could do. I, I like they, they put that in just to show that the Ents are vulnerable to certain things, but if you've got that many of them and all this water there's, there's not really much of a chance to do anything yeah. it's difficult for me however not to think of an enormous badly burned pizza with a giant black sausage sticking out of the middle of it when I see eyes and cards <laughs> but that's just me <laughs> oh, and uh, finally we do get and again in the extended edition in the aftermath the long bottom leaf scene which is lovely this sense of, for a start there's a bit where at the very very beginning Frodo uh, Sam says to Frodo I thought we might you know be able to uh, use this salt if we found some roast chicken and Frodo says roast chicken and it is really the most unlikely thing they could find on this uh, in this particular adventure Pippin finds a roast yeah, chicken I, know, that's really, I find that really funny this is a ro- roast chicken floating on by he also finds a basket shortly beforehand so it's literally a chicken in a basket <laughs> Would you really want to yeah. eat that food, though, no, that was floating? They're hobbits. They're, they've eaten nothing but Ent draft for days now. They're, they're sick, bored. And then, but then, yeah, they find the storeroom. The apple is, of course, a callback to the second breakfast uh, with Pippin. Yeah. And uh, they find all that long bottom leaf and start giggling like mad. And Lyra snapped earlier that uh, Aragorn was uh, smoking his pipe. And she, cause she's only just started latching on to the idea that smoking might be bad for you because we've had to tell her because she saw a few James Bonds and said, shall I smoke? The earlier ones. <laughs> he was making it look cool. said, no, really don't. But we kind of had to sell her, well, smoking pipe weed is okay. I don't know. It's a grey area. There is a, lot, a much more gravitas if I'm smoking a pipe. Than... Yes. 
if you're going to do it, do it properly. It, it does also mean that when you walk past people smoking in the street, she says in a very loud voice, Mummy, that man stinks and he's smoking, and that's very, very bad, isn't it? Oh, God, <laughs> quiet. Yes, now Daddy's going to get punched. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and then you get the long bottom leaf bit there, and uh, it's, it's just a really nice little reward for Mary and Pippin, who ironically have had it the least bad of everyone in this entire series. <laughs> it's like, oh, let's give them a break. Yeah. From what? From boredom, it would appear. Yeah, it's they nice. thought they were going to get killed by an orc that one time. A bit. <laughs> and to be fair, Alex, they were very bored. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, okay, I, I like that. Compared to say what happens to, I don't know, Frodo and Sam. The, but at least yeah. they were excited. And, and, and uh, Pippin's about to go through some really horrible stuff, as is Merry. So, yeah, it's it's an important yeah. reprieve for them. They, they get their reward before they go through all the misery. Yeah, I like the um, pipe weed scenes because they, they sort of call back to it in Return of the King where... Uh, Mary gives Pippin his last last supply. It's the long bottom leaf. You smoked it, like, Pippin. Apparently, he's kept that. You know, it's just, just watching the theatrical. Apparently, he's kept that since the Shire, which is or something quite far away. Oh no, no, because we are shitting on the field of victory, and they're smoking. Oh, okay. so that's in the theatrical edition. Okay, so they do. Well, that that still implies they got it from the Shire, not from there. But yeah, they don't actually explain where that was from. Oh, it doesn't matter. No. But anyway. Sharon asked, what was all that pipeweed for? It wasn't for the orcs of Isengard. And I would imagine it's not for Saruman, because when he goes, your love of the halfling's leaf has made you weak, that um, would imply he's not smoking it, unless he's a bleeding hypocrite. I think he's a hypocrite. I think the book implies it's for him. Ah, so that's actually in the book, then? Uh, yeah, the, yeah, they find the nice. they find that storeroom in the, in the book. Okay. So how can you smoke? I only smoke socially. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the brief sojourn with Merry and Pippin and uh, their extremely powerful friends. The rest of this podcast will be talking about Frodo, Sam and Gollum. The strength of the ring bearer is failing. In his heart, Frodo begins to understand. The quest will claim his life. You know this. You have foreseen it. It is the risk we all took. In the gathering dark, the will of the ring grows strong. It works hard now to find its way back into the hands of men. Men who are so easily seduced by its power. The young captain of Gondor has but to extend his hand, take the ring for his own, and the world will fall. It is close now. So close to achieving its goal. For Sauron will have dominion over all life on this earth, even unto the ending of the world. Time of the elves is over. Do we leave Middle Earth to its fate? Do we let them stand alone? So we start off with Faramir questioning Frodo, and he knows pretty much the answers to everything Frodo's giving him. It's a, a cunning line of questioning to actually see how much Frodo is prepared to tell him 
and thus how open a person he is. And in the book, and this is, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this a lot for the whole Faramir scene. Uh, he invites them in. He says, would you like tea and crumpets? Frodo says, what about the <laughs> ring? And he says, I would not pick up that thing if it lay by the wayside. I will escort you wherever you wish and give you whatever help you need. I was Boromir's brother. Any friend of Boromir's is a friend of mine. You guys are great. I love you. And uh, I will see you later. Yeah. And that's literally I, what happens. I know in the, the prologue I said I preferred book Faramir. Um, but, but did you realise that you were crazy? I yeah, I'd I'd forgotten the flashback scenes. Yeah, which so um, completely set up why Faramir is like, like you know how he is with Frodo and the and the ring. Yeah, he's um, wants to be loved by his father, and he's fixated on Boromir and fixated on the ring. Hmm. So he thinks that the ring is the one thing that can make his his father like him. It's a very measured fixation. He does love Boromir, and he does want to impress his father in his own way, but he is, like, just underneath the surface, he is somewhat jealous of his brother and uh, Mm -hmm. immensely frustrated that his father is a terrible person. (laughs) And really, uh, there is... um, Theory on Fran and Pippa's part was that Faramir reminded um, Denethor of their mother... Um, and it's possible she may have died giving birth to Faramir and so every time he looks at this boy he is disappointed and filled with resentment Boromir recognises that this whole situation is unfair and I really appreciate that it's not just oh I love you and oh I hate you and the the older brother is just like really yeah. blasé about it. Uh, Boromir understands exactly what his father is doing to his yeah. younger brother and uh, he hates the fact that he's getting all this attention and love because he knows it, it should be equal. They they're both contributing to helping uh you know keep Gondor alive but no he gets all the credit. I absolutely love this scene, this whole thing, because it came out of nowhere, uh, and I wasn't expecting it. It it deepens Boromir's character. You get to see the man in his element, doing what he was supposed to do. He is the champion of Gondor. He's a, a you know a war hero. He's supposed to lead them against orcs and help them survive. He is not supposed to be on a quest with the Ring. That is not what he's for. And Denethor sending him off is the stupidest thing that could have been done at that point. Yes. It- I'd say that the, the sort of speech he gives to him is effectively come back with the ring or not at all. Completely yeah. sets up his character and sets up his character to die in the first film because um, he doesn't see another option. And it also shows the value of Boromir in, you know, even he being the apple of his father's eye. Uh, to Denethor, it's like, you know, either I actually care about the ring more than you. That's how much I need this thing. From memory, so I, mean, I haven't, hadn't watched these films for a couple of years until I watched them recently. I found Boromir's... I, I didn't really like Boromir. I don't really like Sean Bean, but watching the, that first film and watching this scene specifically makes Boromir a much more relatable character, and a, I, I like his character a lot more than, than I remembered. Yeah. And, and Faramir, but um, Boromir specifically, because he's been put forward to be more forgotten than I think he can do. Because um, Faramir is, has sort of martial prowess, but he's also a a bit more intelligent than Boromir is. Mm. Boromir is better at being the fighting one, and then he's sent off to be an ambassador and and to be a spy and get this this ring. And he's just that's just out of his depth completely. I think if he's sent if 
Danaford sent Faramir, he might have actually been able to get the ring. Boromir also has the common touch, which cannot be underestimated. He can relate to his men. Leaves more time for drinking, this sense of that uh, they want to fight with him because they like him. Whereas with Faramir, it seems like he's leading in a very quiet, you know, his men are loyal to him, but they know they're not going to be having any fun with him anytime soon because everything with him is deadly serious. Also, he's leading rangers, not soldiers, and there's yeah. a difference. And there's du- they're Dúnedain rather than Gondorians as well, by and large, which is a I different do, kind of person. I do like the way the um, the differences between Boromir and Faramir are exemplified in the way that they react to the ring. Because one thing that I started noticing this time we were watching it, yeah. the ability of various people to resist the ring seems to have uh, an almost direct correlation to what they potentially want it for. If they want it to have it and to use it, their resistance to it is very, very weak and it corrupts them fairly easily. If they want it, or, you know, not not necessarily to use it for great power, but if they want it for themselves, Gollum wanted it for himself. He saw a shiny thing and he wanted to keep it. And he fell to it and, and it, it's taken him completely. That's the um, most simple way of seeing the ring as just this exactly, object yeah. which you just have to have. That's right. Bilbo picks it up through through chance, really, but then it occurs to him that, you know, he's got it now, it's his, he's entitled to it, so he's going to he hang on to it. And it although he, as far as he's concerned. He, exactly. He obsesses about the riddle game. That's right. But although he is relatively resistant to it in terms of the power that it wants to wield, he does ultimately get sucked into being, um, you know, being corrupted by it and, and really, really wanting it. Significantly, it's with him for, what, 60-odd years. For a so long he time, becomes, yes. It becomes a part of him. Exactly. Um, Boromir wants it to use for Gondor, to protect Gondor, and he is has almost no resistance to it at all, despite the fact that he tries. But Faramir wants it to give it to his father. He doesn't want to use it for himself. So I think that, that almost seems to give a little bit more impetus to his eventual ability to be able to say, the reason I want this is not good enough. Now I've seen the harm that it can cause. Yeah. I forget who it was um, in the behind-the-scenes documentary, but one of the writers mentioned... I think it was Philippa mm-hmm. uh, mentioned that they Fran had, almost never talks, so it's almost yeah. definitely going to be Philippa. Um, she mentioned that they had to make Faramir an obstacle yeah. because otherwise it, it diminishes the power of the ring. Yeah. Um, if he can just go, oh, I'd never touch that thing then it's like, well, we've built up this thing to be the ultimate evil, this thing that can corrupt even the strongest of men. And if Faramir can just so lightly toss it aside, then maybe the ring isn't that scary after all. And yeah. All so, it takes is strength of will. Yeah. And, yeah. That also significantly reduces your sympathy for Frodo, given that he is eventually going to capitulate to yeah. it. Yeah. As they did that, they made it's basically the one person who could give it up with a fair bit of ease was Aragorn and he is the owner effective you know so he he would have got it if uh Isildur hadn't been killed so it was, it was a nice sort of play so he yeah. he knows he he should have got it if if all things had worked so and he was the one that gave it up with the most ease because he knows he shouldn't have it I don't think he gives it up with that much ease I think ultimately um, if anyone Sam gives it up with the most ease and even he is okay, he yeah. holds it back a little bit, but the Aragorn requires a lot of will to just be able to close Frodo's hands back around it and say, you know, you know what? All of my misgivings aside, this is not the way to go. The thing is, the the 
the least amount of wheel apart from Sam, though. Yeah. I, I, everyone I, else slower down. I think yeah. Aragorn has enough, um, you know, while, he, while he's watching that ring, he has enough of a grip on reality to recognize if I'm around this thing any longer, I could fall. So yeah. while I still have enough sense, Frodo, get the hell out of here. Yeah, could that be why point. he, you mean not to follow them? Oh my god, I never thought about that. It's, uh, well, why doesn't Aragorn just go after Frodo and Sam with Legolas and Gimli and say, okay, yeah, I know you say you want to go to uh, Mordor on your own, but we need to guard you at this point. It is he just to trust just get himself, himself around the ring. Wow. It's like, um, uh, <coughs> Gandalf, Gandalf and, um, Gladwell, they know, like, like, they and Aragorn know precisely how dangerous it is they want to try and distance themselves as much from from it as possible i think also you've got to remember aragorn is very conscious of how potent how easily he is potentially going to be corrupted by it his whole life he's been aware of the fact that his ancestor doomed the world by not giving this ring up it's it's the forefront of his mind that he is not supposed to have this ring the same weakness and as Alwyn said, he will face the same demons and defeat them. And he does. Mm. And the flip side of that is we were talking about the ease with, or the relative ease with which Sam gives it up. Sam has the purest motive of anybody mm. for actually taking the ring, which he has, he has taken it solely to keep it safe. So, yeah, immediately once you see the relationship between Denethor played fantastically hatefully by John Noble. I mean, like, to, to the level where he's almost a better villain than the actual villains. Um, <laughs> because he's just this embittered hate and fear-filled old man. And because we can relate to that, because we've all known someone throughout our lives who loses themselves in the most negative emotions when they could be nurturing other ones. Um, so automatically there's a tension set up there. You want Faramir to somehow be able to get over this person. And also you can see where he's coming from and why he would actually want the ring to move forwards. So it's not a straightforward case of he represents a threat to Throdo, he must stop. You start to feel for the character. I think it's important to show Demophor in a relatively sane state as well. In Shaven, this it's important to know as well. In yeah. Return of the King, he doesn't ever shave. Because in the theatrical version, it feels like you're just encountering this guy who's loopy and quite insane. Whereas with the extended versions, you get a real sense of the impact Boromir's death has had on him. Yeah. Um, because before, he was a bitter, horrible man. But, you know, his marbles were relatively altogether. But... Um, in, in Return of the King, he's he's completely lost it. He's gone completely. Yeah, you need to show the, the high before you can appreciate how far yeah. he's gone. Yeah, and this is a point of victory as well. He's you know they've they've won back Osgiliath. His his son, the champion, has done it, and you know he praises Boromir, and then manages to slip slip in some crappy slight on Faramir's ability. Passive oh, too aggressive. Few. It's just like yeah. I. <laughs> He doesn't even give him a chance to prove himself. You're worthless, and I'm not even going to let you prove that you are worth something. He, like he has the opportunity to take, try and get the ring from the council, but he's like, no, I am only trusting this to your older brother because he's the only one who won't fail me. This city was once the jewel of our kingdom. A place of light and beauty and music 
And so it shall be once more. Let the armies of Mordor know this. Never again will the land of my people fall into enemy hands. The city of Askilia has been reclaimed. For Gondor! For Gondor! For Gondor! Good speech. Nice and short. Leaves more time for drinking. <laughs> Break out the ale! These men are thirsty! <laughs> Remember today, little brother. Today, life is good. <laughs> what? He's here. Oh, one moment of peace can he not give us that. Where is he? Where is Gondor's finest? Where is my firstborn? Father! <laughs> they say you vanquished the enemy almost single-handed. They exaggerate. <laughs> the victory belongs to Faramir also. But for Faramir, the city would still be standing. Were you not entrusted to protect it? I would have done, but our numbers were too few. All too few. You let the enemy walk in and take it on a whim. Always you cast a poor reflection on me. That is not my intent. You give him no credit and yet he tries to do your will. He loves you, father. Do not trouble me with Faramir. I know his uses and they are few. We have more urgent things to speak of. Elrond of Rivendell has called a meeting. He will not say why, but I have guessed its purpose. It is rumored the weapon of the enemy has been found. The One Ring. Silu's Bane. And it has fallen into the hands of the elves. Everyone will try to claim it. Men, dwarves, wizards, we cannot let that happen. This thing must come to Gondor. Gondor is dangerous, I know. Ever the ring will seek to corrupt the hearts of lesser men, but you, you are strong. And our need is great. It is our blood which is being spilled. Our people who are dying. Sauron is biding his time. He's massing fresh armies. He will return. And when he does, we will be powerless to stop him. You must go. Bring me back this mighty gift. Oh, no. My place is here with my people. Not in Rivendell. Would you deny your own father? If there's need to go to Rivendell, send me in his stead. You? Oh, I see. A chance for Faramir, Captain of Gondor, to show his quality. I think not. I trust this mission only to your brother. The one who will not fail me. Remember today, little brother. 
I am intrigued as to what motivated them to make the choices they did in terms of the editing of this one because Faramir's character comes off the worst in the difference between the theatrical editions and the extended editions. And while I fully appreciate that they couldn't get all of the nuances in because they were just trying to focus on the main storylines for the theatrical editions... Could maybe have left out the wild Something, just anything to show that that there's a little bit more to him than than he gets in the theatrical edition. Maybe a few less minutes of um, Uruk's fighting elves, I don't know. I I think they try to... Um, leave out flashbacks. They could be worried that that would confuse, that would confuse people. people. Yeah. Like, Hang on, um, Borum is alive again now. Yeah, <laughs> but his hair is different. I'm I don't confused. understand. <laughs> I, I don't know. Faramir's character is ultimately given far more life with the extended editions, and and in Return of the King, when he comes back, you and you already care about him that much more because the I believe these came out like a month before the uh, release of the, the uh, movies, didn't they? Yeah. So suddenly we're all on, on Team Faramir, and there's people in the audience who are all rooting for him, and other people who are like, "Who's this guy again?" But uh, the, the main reason why they made Faramir an obstacle is, I think I've already mentioned before, they trimmed out Shelob and the Winding Stair, which is all supposed to happen in Frodo and Sam's section of the Two Towers. The point where the Two Towers book ended was where Frodo got stung by Shelob and then carted off by the orcs to Kidathungal. They didn't want to intercut Frodo being threatened by a spider, which is one kind of fantastical scenario with uh, an enormous, you know, tending towards slightly more realistic, gritty um, siege on a fortress. It's too much, and the endings would end up cancelling each other out. So they had to uh, give Frodo an entirely different, some considerably more emotional obstacle to overcome. And so they looked at Faramir and said, look, we've got to upgrade his character anyway. And that, that's what this is, actually. It's an upgrade. They take a base-level character and they give him a lot more substance. Um, and and thus he became their major obstacle. Which, again, works very well with the Shades of Grey of uh, the Lord of the Rings universe. Because Faramir is by far from being evil. He's um, He is trying to do the best he can at this point. But what he's doing is leading to great evil, which is a nice shadow of what Boromir ended up with. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Lord of the Rings increasingly becomes more Shades of Grey, especially uh, when there's dealings with the uh, the world of men, because um, they're in a crisis situation. And ultimately, what might be the best way out it could actually lead to, to catastrophe. Okay, so shortly after the... Um, the wonderful flashback scene. Uh, you get the forbidden pool and Gollum's return. And you asked Sharon, what would happen if he said, yeah, it is forbidden to go into the forbidden pool. There's <laughs> a pain of death. And Frodo had gone, I don't know him. What, what struck me particularly was that it seemed, I wasn't quite sure what Faramir was trying to do because if the idea was to get Frodo to reveal himself, which is ultimately seems what he seems to be what he's driving at. What if Frodo had been a particularly canny hobbit and said to him, what's forbidden about a pool? Why is it pain of death to go in there? That it's makes no sense. It's our drinking water and he's diving in there. He's filthy. He's probably yeah, going to give still, a little cholera. death? That seems a little extreme. You know, they don't, they don't really come across as that kind of people. Yeah. Well, but, that, of um, course, if he was the old Faramir, it would be cake or death. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because it's too close to the secret hideaways. They... Yeah. It'll attract too much attention. I don't know. It's yeah. it's ultimately a mag- it might not even be forbidden. Yeah. It, it's all a setup to get Frodo to yeah. reveal. It is a setup, and he knows that Frodo will break. Just and say that 
the Forbidden Forest in Harry Potter isn't that forbidden if they send students in with every year a teacher. True. Yeah. Fine <laughs> point. Yes. Yeah. The somewhat forbidden forest slash pool. Yeah, it's just a name. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's entrapment for Frodo, and, uh, this is one of the most tragic events of the entire series because it's handled so badly, uh, by Faramir and his men that they sow one of the greatest evils. Uh, they break Smeagol at this point. He was at his highest point, and he yeah. was trusting someone for the first time in, in, yeah, 500 years. Well, any chance of Gollum slash Smeagol recovering from their obsession with the ring and returning to society, possibly. It would be Smeagol. Gollum yeah. is the obsession with the ring. Yeah. Well, a- any chance Smeagol of Smeagol recovering coming back... Gollum. A- any chance of Smeagol coming back is completely dashed at that point. Yeah. Like, Literally dashed against the rocks. Yeah. Oh, uh, they actually uh, cut down a lot of the um, brutality in the theatrical version. They're, they're really rough with that. him in the theatrical in the uh, yeah. extended ones, there's a lot of getting the boot in in the extended edition. Yeah, yeah. You say um, about Smeagol, they actually they they break him so much they actually they turn him the other way because in uh, the scenes or just after this when they're they're walking through the forest, it's Gollum and Smeagol are agreeing to kill the hobbits. Yeah, which is you know Smeagol's character has gone completely the other way. He was yeah. you know in just the earlier part of his film he was he was calling them his friends and he was trying to get rid of Gollum because he thought Gollum would hurt them and now he's prepared to kill them. It's just that one... He focuses on this as a betrayal by Frodo because Frodo lured him into this. And he he sees everything in such a simplistic way that he can't see that Frodo was was pinned at that point. I don't think this is the final blow, though, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a bit but i think it, oh, it yes, is the yeah, beginning it's the beginning of the fall um but Had i it think not happened, more that happens. final blow wouldn't have actually uh, no. affected him in some no, way it, it in fact it, that final did. blow that you're going to talk about in a bit would actually have invigorated smeagol at that yeah, point quite probably quite um, probably but yeah i think it is it is ultimately the feeling that he's been let down by by frodo who he was starting to put some trust in um and starting to believe that that there could be some unconditional salvation mm. from this direction. Pay close attention to uh, his right hand during the scene when Smeagol is cowering, because his right hand is Gollum, caressing him and comforting him. It's an abusive relationship. Joshua equated it with a heroin addict and uh, their relationship with their sponsor. Um, but it also seems to me like uh, a husband battering his wife and then drawing her back in and saying, you know, you can't live without me, when it's actually the other way around. This sense of the power that the person who kicks downwards feels from having this punching bag around. Yeah, that that scene sort of shows how well they um, sort of humanise the Gollum character or the Gollum Smeagol character, because normally... Sort of you know, feelings and emotion comes from faces mm. and he's facing away and you can tell just by the movements when he's Gollum and when he's Smeagol that they've done an incredible job at sort of animating the character to enough that it it feels real. That's how, you know, that's why the character works so well that you can tell exactly who he is just, just from the back. Mm. It's physically expressive. Yeah. That's enough. <laughs> Where are you leading them? 
Answer me. Smeagol. <laughs> Why does he cry, Smeagol? <laughs> Cruel and unhelpful. Master Tricksters. <laughs> of course he did. <laughs> I told you he was Trixie. I told you he was false. Master is our friend. Our friend. Master betrayed us. No, not its business. Leave us alone. Filthy little hobbitses. They stole it from us. No. No. What did they steal? Suddenly, Gollum's back forever, and there is a sense of loss. The, the pressure starts building up, and Faramir turns around and, and uh, finds out about the ring. Is it just after this that um, that he uh, says, Chancellor Far- Faramir, Captain of Gondor, to show his quality? I think it must be, because this is the point at which he realises that they've got the ring, isn't it? Yeah, because, of course, Gollum just effectively dropped He's the just minute. told him, yeah. Um, and... The ring calls out to Faramir, and uh, the 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 lady who was doing the voice of the ring at this point previously, when Frodo was just lying down and stroking the ring, she was singing to him soothingly, just. And at this point, it's calling out to Faramir in this seductive, twisted, horrible black speech. Just saying, take me right now. I can make you powerful. I can give you everything you need and want. It fills Frodo with loathing and revulsion that that the ring would reject him for Faramir. uh, He's starting at that point to feel, in the same way that Gollum feels betrayed by Frodo at this point, he feels betrayed by the ring that abandoned him and went to a hobbit and went to another hobbit and he can't get back. It's like a spouse who can't believe that their ex has moved on. Also, um, while this is happening, just before uh, Frodo shouts no, you see him, like the eyes, uh, his eyes roll back into his head and it's... It's almost as if he is so connected to the ring at this point that when the ring tries to reach out and grab somebody, he can feel it, you know, Mm -hmm. throughout his entire body. He can feel the power, you know, surging through the ring. It's not this invisible force anymore. And as we said yesterday, the, uh, he was going to turn into a literal golem creature cowering in the corner, but, um, it's probably a good idea that they didn't go with that for the for these editions at least, uh, because that would have been just all subtlety would have been out the window there, and it's like you know all metaphor aside, he would literally turn into this. So then Faramir takes him to Asgiliath via the countryside. I believe in the theatrical edition, as he takes him ac- across, you can't see Minas Tirith in the background, even though it should geographically be there, and they added it again for the extended edition. I think it's because when they, they did a screening for the um, execs, someone said, hang on, how come Helm's Deep is in the background? Said, that's 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 Minas Tirith. Well, I'm confused, and if I'm confused, the audience is going to be confused. Take it out! Well, it's... 
fair enough. They didn't want to fight about it, and they just <laughs> leave it out. The only people who uh, get really, you know, uppity about the fact that it should be there, we will give them that back for the extended edition. There weren't many examples of executive meddling, but this is one of the few. Ultimately, it's such a small thing that it doesn't bother me too much. That oh, it doesn't bother it me either. Yeah. Most of us would want to watch the extended edition anyway, so. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's a notable part of production, though. It's, a, it's one of the few moments where the execs actually dug their oar in. And, uh, and the way Hollywood was changing between the 1990s and the 2000s, yeah. we're starting to see a much more controlling and, <laughs> dare I say, evil Hollywood coming into this decade. Well, it, the, the Lord of the Rings productions are actually remarkable for the fact that they actually kept out for like well, ninety nine percent of the time. But even at the time, though, this, this sort of thing happened. I mean, like, look what happened to the Matrix films. Look what happened to the Matrix films. <laughs> yeah, true enough. God. But then, was that because a they for a portion of the time they would have been in LA and literally thousands of miles away and when they flew over to try and have some influence Peter had got into the ha- or Peter Jackson had got into the habit of saying oh hi you're here take this camera go over there and shoot something for me oh speaking of in those days um, one point on the uh, the extras had us howling with laughter is when they were talking about the editing and uh, Peter was watching some edits which were being sent down a big pipe to him it's the like it's the internet basically, and um, that he was able to talk to his editors via like a, a video on a screen of a computer, and they could see his face and everything. And they're describing a Skype call as if <laughs> yeah. it's this incredible new piece of technology. And I just howled with laughter. It's like okay, we have come forwards in some ways very significantly since then. We call yeah. it a magic window. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, the person called it a, like a fat pipe, and there's like a person driving a car down the pipe. That explains the internet. <laughs> there was an instance where they put a lot of the visual effects or something like that onto an iPod, like yep. a first-gen iPod the size of a big white brick with a cartwheel on the front, and then walked <laughs> it through the streets of London and avo- just barely avoided getting run down and mugged by some kids who were wanted to get hold of I don't know if they'd if they'd been flashing around the iPod and going, hey, kids, I've got some uh, parts of the Lord of the Rings on here. I think it's walking through dodgy parts of London at dawn is... Yeah, bad idea. Hang on a minute, something's just occurred to me. By fat pipe, did he mean broadband? <laughs> um, I think he meant the uh, uh, yeah, cable broadband. It's a series of tubes. <laughs> yeah. But he said, at one point, he said they were sending these things down this fat pipe, and I, I think it's something to do with the internet, and I thought, yeah. is he being sarcastic? <laughs> it, it's so weird for us now, because the internet is so integrated yeah. into our daily lives. It was in to, its infancy at that point, though. Yeah. Seriously. I mean, it's... Yeah. It, it had been gathering for years, but it really wasn't until just a couple of years later that it really became this all-encompassing thing, possibly with the uh, social networking revolution. We didn't have it, did we? We didn't have internet when these films came out. We had out. the Dreamcast. <laughs> my my dad works in IT, uh, and he has done for most of his life, and he, sa- and he told me stories that there was a time where he could count the number of websites on two hands that uh, that's ha- it's just like and for him this whole internet exploding phenomenon is a- amazing because it happens so fast yeah. i mean it really just like 15 20 years 
and it's just completely exploded. Mm. Let's move on. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so back to Osgiliath and the Nazgul attacking, and yep. Um, yep. I, I say I think this is one of my favourite pieces of acting from Elijah Wood. Oh, good. Because he, what the yeah, yeah, because he's, he's so out of the Frodo character. It's all, you know, it emphasises the, the power the ring has, and mm. especially the power of the ring close to Mordor and with the Nazgul around. Yeah. And, and the, um, the ring starts to sort of thrum this kind of heartbeat that actually goes in time with the beats of the wings of the fell beasts. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, just that one, those like two lines he does, it's just like that's the best piece of acting I think he's done. He and <laughs> David Wenham really sells the fear that these uh, rangers have of Nazgul because with their bows and arrows, what can they do against these? The, you know, aerial assault by unkillable foes. It's, th- there's that sense of, also this sort of, this gives us sort of a preview of the the really intense war that we're actually going to get into in the next one. I and mean, we're, we're already seeing the um, uh, the Helm's Deep, but the actual the war in um, Osgiliath, specifically at the beginning of the Return of the King, is is like um, an actual straight out. Oh fuck! I, I, I want to say Saving Private Ryan when they're getting absolutely massassacred. Yeah, they, do, they do say that um, uh, they they wanted to have to have a sort of Berlin 1945 or London Blitz feel, yeah, which it does completely. Because there's you know there's all the destroyed buildings and sort of trying to pick your way through that and still fight. Is... Yeah, they, they look like ruins. That's the thing. There's no sense that this used to be a habitable city. We've already if got Boromir's just... word on that. Yeah, yeah. It, when you go, you know, to visit the Colosseum and places like that, that's what it looks like. It used, it looks like something that used to be used by people a long time ago. But how, why are they fighting for this thing? It just looks dead. It's because if they can hold it, then they can actually yeah. hold back uh, the, the oh, from, from, I know. I mean, from a, you know, yeah. Rhetorical. Yeah, yeah rhetorical, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I'd also, who are they holding? Who are they holding it from at this point? We're getting a lot of rocks flying through the air, but we don't see a single orc. Yeah, I get the sense that Sauron is simply trying to weaken. He's not actually going for an all-out assault at this point. It's yeah, just, just let's down, yeah. whittle them down a bit. Yeah. Also, um, Osgiliath, from the sounds of things, when um, when Boromir talks about it being a centre of, of light and, and learning and, and all the rest of it, um, it, there's obviously a great spiritual and uh, possibly what's the word I'm looking for um, symbolic meaning in taking it from the Gondorians. It would be like attacking America and taking New York. Yeah. It's not strategically all that important necessarily, but it gives you a, a smack to the heart of the people that you're trying to attack. I think yes. they've been fighting this war for a very long time, and Osgiliath has taken the brunt of all of the assaults. So it may have been a long time ago that it was actually somewhere inhabitable. Yeah, it, um, used, it was the um, the capital of Old Gondor. So I think that's mm. as far as they got this, the symbolic atmosphere and. That's probably one of the first, well, the, it was the second place after Minas Morgul that was attacked. So it's been a, a war, war zone for, for many years. And it does, I think, you know, harken back to a time where they were, there was peace. And it's obviously, I don't think there has been, there's not been peace there since Minas Morgul was, was captured. Is there almost, is there anything of Osgiliath in the books at all? Because obviously there isn't, 
the focus on Faramir at the beginning of Return of the King either, and we don't get this. Uh, I don't remember it. I think oh, it just mm-hmm. Gandalf turns up in Minas Tirith with Pippin, and Pippin potters about the city, talking to people. I, I think only just they could see the ruins of Askilith from Minas yeah. Tirith and mentioning that that was the the capital. But I don't think there's. So this is just something that they've, uh, pardon the pun, capitalised on this sense of war on the ground that they could actually show you what it's like fighting in the trenches against these orcs. Yeah. And it, so, yeah, the, the, the Nazgul attacking, um, it only needs to be the one for you to feel that they're already in an entirely losing situation. It gets within a hair's breadth of grasping the ring from Frodo, and Frodo actually finally seems to want it to catch him. As I say, um, I like that scene because it, um, it sort of harkens back to Weathertop, um, yeah. but he does the opposite. In, in Weathertop, he grasps it back, and in this, he is prepared to put the ring on just for it to, yeah, as you said, for it to end. Yeah. It's I think it's it's partly that, but I think there's also an element of he'd be willing to let the Nazgul take him wearing the ring as long as it meant he could keep it for that little bit longer. You see, I, I had a different interpretation. I got the sense that the ring had actually asserted control over Frodo yeah. at this point, that it, Frodo was almost in a coma state where he wasn't really aware of what he was doing the ring, the was, ring was just him over to the, uh, the yeah, easiest yeah. place to be grabbed Yeah, that would stand to reason it's incredibly powerful and he's under its sway uh, but both are, are open to interpretation I think as you know, that, that there's a certain amount of uh, Frodo being complicit with this puppeteering mm-hmm. which is frightening as well either way it's an extremely powerful scene and um I think it's you might be right about the ring taking over because Frodo doesn't seem to be of his right mind when Sam pulls him to the ground and he pulls Sting on Sam he wouldn't have done that without the ring taking a huge amount of his of who he was away albeit briefly Frodo looks shocked afterwards when yeah. he, while he's holding it to his neck he's like wait what am I doing oh my god it's like he's just suddenly come to his senses, suddenly regained control over his body. He really doesn't know what he's doing. Punctuated by I can't do this anymore, which is... It's a heartbreaking sentence because I don't think there are five words which better sum up nervous breakdown than those. Yeah. And that's why it's so important that Sam is there with him in that moment and why you know it's so important that Sam decided to come with him because he needed Sam to pick him up from this point Um, and the speech that Sam gives is my favourite moment in the entire trilogy it's Um, it's, I I, I kind of nickname it the meta speech because he's not just talking about the, this, these films and the situations they're in. He's talking about all storytelling. He's talking about why we tell each other stories and why we create these epic journeys and uh, with all these characters that we can relate to. Um, because there, <laughs> there is some good in this world and it is worth fighting for. I, I just, I know that line and I, I agree with Philippa said that that line could be cheesy if executed badly but Sean delivers it with such sincerity Mm. that 
it doesn't matter that it's slightly corny because you believe him when he says it. I misquoted Frodo there saying, I can't do this anymore. It's actually, I can't do this, Sam. But the intent is absolutely still exactly the same. It's, it's that sense of, of loss and uh, loss of control and the ability to actually keep moving forwards, which, um, like I say, is absolutely twinned in with nervous breakdown. It's something that I've... Uh, do I go in there? Probably best not to. <laughs> it's something that I'm familiar with. I think this speech for me as well. My response to this is kind of summed up by um, the music that plays over um, the, the tail end of it, where um, where Sam says to uh, to Frodo that there's what's the exact bit that he says at that moment where it cuts to Gollum. That there's some good in this world, Mister Frodo. Good in this world. So that's that's what it is. It's no, we're holding on, and it's worth fighting for. Frodo looks at Sam, and it cuts to Gollum, and his eyes go down. The note draws out, and then it plays the Hobbit theme, and suddenly it's about Frodo and Sam being the good in this world, and there being something worth fighting for for them, and Gollum Smeagol is suddenly separated from them. Yeah, the the use of the the music at that particular moment, um, when Sam says that there's some good at this in this world and it's worth fighting for, and Gollum seems to realise in that moment that the good, it he has no part in that anymore. He there is nothing good in him. There is nothing worthwhile in him whatsoever. Because if there was, Sam would see it. I think he sees the earnestness in Sam. And that's the, the, the goodness in the, the Hobbit nature that he now sees himself as being completely and utterly separated from. And it started with his hope for redemption came with Frodo because he sees that Frodo is like him, is being seduced by the ring, but is resisting it. And that's giving him some belief that he could come back from that too and when um, Faramir's men or when when Frodo delivers him into the hands of Faramir's men that's a hell of a kick but I think that the the final stroke on his um, uh, his short-lived belief that he could return that Smeagol could return is when he realises that Sam can see good in the world but Sam doesn't see any good in him And it, it just reinforces the idea of Gollum being this this child who is who has had so long being told that they're worthless or Smeagol, should I say, because it's Gollum's the one who's been doing the telling um, that they've been told over and over and over again you're worthless, you have no value in this world, you might as well be dead. You, the only thing that that's keeping you alive is me. You're nothing without me, and you you know there's nothing to you beyond that. And he he's got to the point now where he he accepts that utterly so this ending although it has this upbeat swell and you've got you know Frodo being reinvigorated in what he needs to do for his task Gollum slash Smeagol is now completely lost and that's there is a a real tragedy I think in the, the core of that ending It's 
Oh, you know, I can't say better than that, Sharon. Well done. <laughs> Anybody yeah, else want to try? That's the thing. When there's silence, that just means I can't really add much to what's yeah. just been said. So, yeah. yeah, well done, Sharon. Chris? Um, yeah, I don't know anything else to say. Yeah. <laughs> It's your Sam. Don't you know your Sam? I can't do this, Sam. I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. Something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Furrow, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? good in this world, Mr. Furl. And it's worth fighting for. of our country the laws of your father if you let them go your life will be forfeit and it is forfeit release them now you're absolutely right Shannon while he does win over um uh Faramir here and it actually saves the day in the in the short term uh Gollum this was the final nail in the coffin for Smeagol, and he's now lost and worse than he was before. As, as we said earlier, he is complicit and scheming 
And the only thing holding him back from cutting their throats right then and there is fear of reprisal. So it becomes about, you know, being able to, to kill them both and get away with it. And he becomes a plain dealing villain. Now to me, this is a great, it's a tragedy for Smeagol, but it also diminishes the character significantly because without that conflict, we don't get this fascinating character again. He's horrible in Return of the King from start to finish. That's a fine point. That never occurred to me before. I know I prefer Gollum in Two Towers to Return of the King, and I always put it down to the animation style because he's much more detailed in Return of the King. And I too much detail. No, no, no. Literally, you know, you see every wrinkle and every crease and every every pit in his skin, and I, I thought there was something in that that I didn't that maybe did the uncanny valley thing I don't know but I think you've got a fine point I think it's because you lose that duality yeah you lose that sense of he simply becomes the enemy uh, the insidious spy Uh, I know you said uh, in the last episode that uh, this is Aragorn's film I think it's more Spiegel slash Gollum's film I I, I absolutely agree with you Chris for me this is Gollum's movie and the Um, reason why he's you know, less interesting. Return of the King is because he's not the focus anymore. Yeah, yeah. All, all his character development is in this film, and then he gets none in the, the next film, and he got none in the first films. So this is and obviously Aragorn has more in the first, so this is the Gollum film, and it's just they had to. Unfortunately, they had to end the film a certain way, knowing that they couldn't. They didn't really have enough time to progress the character anymore. So basically, whenever Gollum's not on screen, it's Aragorn's film. But as soon as yeah. it's back to Gollum, it doesn't matter really about Frodo and Sam. They're just getting through the day. We, we may mention this. I think it's. I think the how Shaw knew it because of and um, I think it was Philip or Fran wrote the the, the the words to Gollum's song, which is the end song, and that. Um, has tended to play and you sort of like harken back to an important point in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, first one is going on about Arwen because she has a lot of character development more, you know, more so than the books. And this one, it, it is Gollum's and it, it sort of encapsulates Gollum's character. Yeah. And it's an incredibly beautiful song and my favorite end song. Um, and then in the last one, it's, about you know going to the west and ultimately what happens afterwards. Yeah, and that's Frodo's song. Yeah, that's Frodo's song. Whereas uh, may it be is Aragorn's from from the point of view of uh, yeah. Arwen. Now Gollum's song uh, it's sung by Gollum to Smeagol, but because he exemplifies the everything else outside of himself as the rest of the world, he's singing to Smeagol, but also to the hobbits. So you're lost, you can never go home. It's to Smeagol, it's reminding him, I am your home. This is here. This is as much as you're going to get, and it's me. We survived because of me. We survived because of me! Um, sorry about that, Chris. I mean, yeah, it's really creepy. You're a liar and a thief. How much then? Murderer. Go away. Go away. <laughs> I hate you. I hate you. And, yeah, it's... Did you do that at your wedding? Yeah, <laughs> and actually on my wedding night. <laughs> what? Oh, Joe, I'm hoping 
the, all of you these little random bits of, of incredibly creepy voice replication that Alex does in these podcasts will start to accrue me a little bit of sympathy for how I feel when he suddenly comes out with it at the most appro- inappropriate moments. And it might get me a lucrative voiceover career. Well, yeah. It could well. At which point, I'm sure I will stop complaining. All I'm he saying, did... Weta, is if Andy Circus loses his voice for whatever reason, then just, you know, just yeah, thinking. I'm, su- I'm surprised he didn't have a accident before The Hobbit. <laughs> Send in a demo disc of you. Just, you know, turns up at the front door. <laughs> Mr. Circus. <laughs> Actually, Alex really did impress a small child at the Fellowship Festival oh, by coming yeah. <laughs> out with the Gollum voice. And this kid was just sat there, mouth open, totally, totally gone. Anyway, That's Gollum's fun. song, sung by Emiliano Torini, half Icelandic, half uh, Italian, uh, sounds a little bit like Bjork. Never made any other major songs after this year. I have her album, um, which I will pimp now. It is called... I might buy that. I really, I really like how her voice sounds. And so, um, of, I mean, the, the three film, the three songs, they are, to me, because they don't have much music. They are, you know, well, music per se. They are sort of basically. Which they don't have much music. Well, they, they have, have music. more music than any film ever. Okay. No, I mean, I mean the, the the end song. Yeah, not the, pop not song the to me. Well. <laughs> I, I think that I, I know what you mean. Okay. My point was that they I are never miss their opportunity to tease. They are heavily on the, the singer. The singer has to be perfect for them to work. Yeah, and I think they do that in the first two. I do not think they do that in the third. But that's for the next film. I'm that's actually going to. I, I'm going to <laughs> put a moratorium on you ever saying anything about that <laughs> that song when we talk about it because it's going to get incredibly emotional but in and say just want to remind everyone I don't like that song then I'm <laughs> probably going to kick you out of the podcast okay. it'll be I'll the very end so you won't lose anything just say it here uh, just say it here I don't like the way Annie, Annie Lennox voice sounds yeah you're crazy <laughs> <laughs> okay Love in the Time of Science is Emiliano Torini's album seriously if you like Gollum's song check her out it's available on Amazon for £6.79. Which is your current favourite of the three, either cut? Um, Josh. Uh, this film, the extended version of The Two Towers. Uh, when I originally watched the theatrical cuts uh, in cinema as a small 12-year-old boy... Um, <laughs> 12, 13 I, and 14. Yeah, yeah. Um I, I thought The Return of the King was the best, but I think that was because a lot of emotions were tied up with that finale, and, you know, it was a resolution, and it was... I felt like, yes, this is everything I wanted this trilogy to be. The third one was my favourite. But on repeat viewings and watching it as an adult now, I feel like a lot of my favourite scenes are in this version of the film, uh, this version of The Two Towers. Um, Gollum is my favourite character, and all the best Gollum stuff is in this film. Mm. Um, even though um, the Battle of Minas Tirith is much more impressive on both a technical scale and just in terms of the way it's choreographed... Um, and the emotional th- kick of losing Theoden, of course. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciated how intimate Helm's Deep was just getting down to the ground level with these soldiers who are inexperienced 
and with uh, people who you know the people in the caverns so that you get a real sense that they're fighting for something in in the helm's deep battle um yeah so i i love the two towers extended edition uh chris uh <laughs> this is very, very it's like having to choose between your children yeah. well, <laughs> um sharon then. I, well actually I, I do know it's, it's one or two uh-huh um I like free, but it, I, I think it has problems. Um, especially one scene, which I think is the worst in the entire movie, but we'll get to that. <laughs> which, um, just give me a heads up, which one is it? It's when they, when Frodo's in the bed and they'll come smiling, it's the cheesiest thing. Yeah, okay. So it's one or two. I, I, I like them both equally for different reasons. I like the fellowship because it's a more insular story. And you're following the fellowship and, like for the, I mean, if you if you said book, I like the first book far more than the other two, just because it's the best. It's the the, the storyline is is presented sort of better. Um, it, it's in the, like the second, it's more focused, yeah, yeah, the second film they fix the problems with the storytelling of the book. So second and third books, there's a lot of waiting for battles to happen, a lot of very brief battles, and then um, a lot of. Uh, wandering through very rocky environments. Yes, that was the problem I had. The There's only so many times is, you can describe rocks. Yes, the main problem I have is is you know having the Aragorn Legos Gimli as what like one half, and then having the Frodo Sam bit the second half is is terrible storytelling. Yeah. Um, especially as it goes back to bits and it's but so the second film. I mean, the, both extended one and two. Um, second film, I there are some. Magnificent bit, especially the, the Battle of Helm's Deep is superbly done, and um, the the, tr- the March of the Ents is is one of my favourite moments. But I think I have to pick both of them. <laughs> Brilliant, <laughs> Sharon, <laughs> Sharon. Which is your favourite of the three? Um, I'm going to say the extended version of uh, the Two Towers. Wow! Because for most of the reasons that Josh gave, and most of the reasons that Chris gave, frankly, yeah. um, I I love. Fellowship, I think it's a fantastic setup, but for me, the deepening and the, the further characterization that comes with the two towers is always going to appeal to me more. There's that the music in the two towers, um, strikes so many chords with me on so many levels. And if I was going to list all the scenes in the entire trilogy that make me just want to get totally lost in the emotion of the moment, the majority of them come in in the specifically the extended version of the two towers i actually i don't think it's really possible to say that i dislike the theatrical cut for that reason because there are so much of the um the added scenes um that are incredibly meaningful to me that I'm actually cross with them for taking out <laughs> for the theatrical version because I don't think they needed to. I think they made it shorter. Not as cross as Christopher Lee. Well, <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, but but you know, there's there are several scenes that I think make a they make the narrative process of the second film different um, for the theatrical version, um, which I think is a great shame. But it's it's primarily to do with music, characterization, and the deepening of the um, the emotion and the story that comes with the second film. I, I love all of it. The There's right a, like, wizard was very cross. Two or three bits that I could probably do without. Most of them surrounding slightly dodgy 
action scenes involving Legolas, <laughs> slightly off-key humour involving Gimli. They're taking the hobbits to but Isengard. Oh, and that. Oh my god. <laughs> but they are—they are tiny things ultimately in the overall. Um, the overall impact that the uh, the two towers has, and it's, it's if I'm going to pick one favourite, it's going to be that one. What do your elf eyes see? The Uruks have turned northwest across the plain. Ah, that's better. Yeah, yeah see that that even though I, I hate that bit of passion, um, the quality of the rest of it makes me. When I was watching, if I was watching it just for, for fun, you know, I say for fun and not doing this, even though this is. Fun. For emotional um, engagement. But it's also work. Yeah. Um, yeah, if it was for emotional engagement, I can completely ignore that because the, the rest of the film is, is so magnificent. Yeah. I, I would like to say that if we were strictly talking about the theatrical cuts of these movies, I'd actually say The Two Towers was the weakest one and that mm. maybe The Return of the King... At the theatrical cuts, The Return of the King is my favourite. Mm. But if we were talking about the extended versions, I actually think The Return of the King is the weakest yeah. of the extended mm. film. No, we will definitely be talking about that one next week. I, I, I also agree. I think the theatrical cut of Return of the King is better. The reason I asked you guys what your favourite one was was I suspected everyone was going to say Extended Two Towers because that has seems to be, have become the fan favourite, which means shows that despite the fact that they had all of these narrative obstacles to overcome, they actually achieved it, which is fantastic. My favourite at the moment and it used to be extended two towers and still might be watching fellowship again uh, extended not even just extended just just the theatrical one brought me back to that first moment when i first saw the film and i think it's possibly because the hobbit's just about to come out i'm getting those stirrings again of this whole brand new adventure that we're about to set out on and i just that feeling I got when I was like, they have done this better than any other filmmakers that I've ever seen. This outstrips everything, and it still does for me. Yeah, and I, yeah. I don't think on a technical scale that Fellowship actually, in terms of what they do, uh, outstrips the, the the next two dramatically. And there's, there's a lot more fairies and elves and goblins and stuff. Um, but in terms of, of films that handle fairies and elves and goblins, it's the best. Yeah, basically, all you said there is precisely the reason that I can't pick between the two. Mm. Um, there's just, they're just, both of them are so good that it's, in, I just find it incredibly, I, because there's, there's, there's bits. They both of each bring different film. things to the table. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the problem, and I like both but of them. But that's not a problem, that's great. It's great <laughs> that they actually were able to, to move forward and, and actually give two really strong, and I, Return of the Kings is getting a real kicking here as well. It's brilliant as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think actually a lot of my my residual feelings towards Return of the King are about the fact that it's like, why did you have to happen at all? Why did it have to finish? That is partially my reason I don't like the end song because it's the end. Yeah, I've, maybe, I've, that's, it, maybe that's what it really is, there, Chris. It's not. No, I, 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 I hate her voice as well. Um, <laughs> wonderful, I think, wonderful song. I think when <laughs> no, I like the song. No, thanks. I like the song. I just don't like the voice. That's the problem. Okay, that's the last time you're going to say it. <laughs> I think for me, the reason why ultimately Return of the King becomes less impressive the more you watch it is because so much of it is bringing things to an end. Yeah. And when you watch it for the first time, that is really important and it 
brings everything you know you've invested into uh, a satisfying conclusion but when you watch them again all the interesting characterization and build up is in the previous two films and it, it, that doesn't diminish Return of the King Return of the King is still a fantastic film it's just that when I think oh which film do I fancy watching oh I think I'll put on the two towers because there's just more interesting stuff going on you don't it's a lot the thing I love about the two towers it's all middle it starts running and it finishes running it's yeah. like you know the, 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 this is the ever never ending journey ultimately there's no big you know uh, poncy beginning where they're like you must go to Mount Doom it's we're already on the way and then when we finish there's no now the quest has ended on the shores of the sea so it's it's just it's the wonderful middle bit of everything that we love Try. 